Dearest, this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dearest, by H. Beam Piper. Colonel Ashley Hampton chewed his cigar and forced himself to relax, his glance slowly traversing the room, lingering on the mosaic of book spines in the tall cases, the sunlight splashed on the faded pastel colors of the carpet, the soft-tinted autumn landscape outside the French windows, the trophies of Indian and Filipino and German weapons on the walls. He could easily feign relaxation here in the library of Greyrock, as long as he looked only at these familiar inanimate things and avoided the five people gathered in the room with him, for all of them were enemies. There was his nephew, Stephen Hampton, graying at the temples but youthfully dressed in sports clothes, leaning with an obvious if slightly premature proprietorship against the fireplace, a whiskey and soda in his hand. There was Myra, Stephen's smart, sophisticated-looking blonde wife, reclining in the chair beside the desk. For these two he felt an implacable hatred. The others were no less enemies, perhaps more dangerous enemies, but they were only the tools of Stephen and Myra. For instance, T. Barnwell Powell, prim and self-satisfied, sitting on the edge of his chair and clutching the briefcase on his lap as though it were a restless pet which might attempt to escape. He was an honest man, as lawyers went, painfully ethical. No doubt he had convinced himself that his clients were acting from the noblest and most disinterested motives. And Dr. Alexis Werner, with his Van Dyke beard and his Viennese accent as phony as a Soviet-controlled election, who had preempted the chair at Colonel Hampton's desk. This wrangled the old soldier, but Dr. Werner would want to assume the position which would give him appearance of commanding the situation. He probably felt that Colonel Hampton was no longer master of Greyrock. The fifth, a Neanderthal type in a white jacket, was Dr. Werner's attendant and bodyguard. He could be ignored, like an enlisted man unthinkingly obeying the orders of his superior. But you are not cooperating, Colonel Hampton, the psychiatrist complained. How can I help you if you do not cooperate? Colonel Hampton took the cigar from his mouth. His white mustache, tinged a faint yellow by habitual smoking, twitched angrily. Oh, you call it helping me, do you? he asked acidly. Why else am I here? the doctor parried. You're here because my loving nephew and his charming wife can't wait to see me buried in the family cemetery. They want to bury me alive in that private bedlam of yours, Colonel Hampton replied. See, Myra Hampton turned to the psychiatrist, we are persecuting him. We are all envious of him. We are plotting against him. Of course, this sullen, suspicious silence is a common paranoid symptom. One often finds such symptoms in the cases of senile dementia, Dr. Werner agreed. Colonel Hampton snorted contemptuously. Senile dementia. Well... He must have been senile and demented to bring this pair of snakes into his home because he felt the obligation to his dead brother's memory. And he willed Greyrock and his money and everything to Stephen. Only Myra couldn't wait till he died. She Lady Macbeth, her husband, into this insanity accusation. However, I must fully satisfy myself before I can sign the commitment, the psychiatrist was saying. After all, the patient is a man of advanced age, 
Seventy-eight, to be exact. Seventy-eight, almost eighty. Colonel Hampton could hardly realize that he had been around so long. He had been a little boy, playing soldiers. He had been a young man, breaking the family tradition of Harvard and wangling an appointment to West Point. He had been a new second lieutenant at a little post in Wyoming, in the last dying flicker of the Indian Wars. He had been a first lieutenant, trying to make soldiers of militiamen, and hoping for orders to Cuba before the Spaniards gave up. He had been the hard-bitten captain of a hard-bitten company, fighting Moros in the jungles of Mindanao. Then, through the early years of the twentieth century, after his father's death, he had been that Rara Avis in the American service, a really wealthy professional officer. He played polo and served a turn as military attaché at the Paris Embassy. He had commanded a regiment in France in 1918, and in the post-war years he had rounded out his service in command of a regiment of Negro cavalry, before retiring to Greyrock. Too old for active service, or even a desk at the Pentagon, he had drilled a home guard company of four F's, N boys, and paunchy middle-agers through the Second World War. Then he had been an old man, sitting alone in the sunlight, until a wonderful thing happened. Get him to tell you about this invisible playmate of his, Stephen suggested. If that won't satisfy you, I don't know what will. It had begun a year ago last June. He had been sitting on a bench on the east lawn, watching a kitten playing with a crumpled bit of paper on the walk circling warily around it as though it were some living prey, stalking cautiously, pouncing and striking the paper ball with a paw and then pursuing it madly. The kitten, whose name was Smokeball, was a friend of his. Soon she would tire of her game and jump up beside him to be petted. Then suddenly he seemed to hear a girl's voice beside him. Oh, what a darling little cat! What's its name? Smokeball, he said, without thinking. She's about the color of a shrapnel burst. Then he stopped short, looking about. There was nobody in sight, and he realized that the voice had been inside his head rather than in his ear. What the devil, he asked himself, am I going nuts? There was a happy little laugh inside of him, like bubbles rising in a glass of champagne. Oh, no, I'm really here. The voice, inaudible but mentally present, assured him, You can't see me, or touch me, or even really hear me, but I'm not something you just imagined. I'm just as real as... as Smokeball there. Only I'm a different kind of reality. Watch. The voice stopped, and something that had seemed to be close to him left him. Immediately the kitten stopped playing with the crumpled paper and cocked her head to one side, staring fixedly as at something above her. He'd seen cats do that before, stare wide-eyed and entranced, as though at something wonderful which was hidden from human eyes. Then, still looking up and to the side, Smokeball trotted over and jumped into his lap, but even as he stroked her, she was looking at an invisible something beside him. At the same time, he had a warm and pleasant feeling, as of a happy and affectionate presence near him. No, he said slowly and judicially, that's not just my imagination, but who, or what, are you? I'm... Oh, I don't know how to think it so that you'll understand. The voice inside his head seemed baffled, 
like a physicist trying to explain atomic energy to a Hottentot. I'm not material. If you can imagine a mind that doesn't need a brain to think with. Oh, I can't explain it now, but when I'm talking to you, like this, I'm really thinking inside your brain, along with your own mind. And you hear the words without there being any sound. And you just don't know any words that would express it. He had never thought much one way or another about spiritualism. There had been old people, when he had been a boy, who had told stories of ghosts and apparitions, with the firmest conviction that they were true. And there had been an Irishman, in his old company in the Philippines, who swore that the ghost of a dead comrade walked post with him when he was on guard. Are you a spirit? he asked. I mean, somebody who once lived in a body, like me. No. The voice inside him seemed doubtful. That is, I don't think so. I know about spirits. They're all around, everywhere. But I don't think I'm one. At least, I've always been like I am now, as long as I can remember. Most spirits don't seem to sense me. I can't reach most living people either. Their minds are closed to me, or they have such disgusting minds I can't bear to touch them. Children are open to me, but when they tell their parents about me, they are laughed at or punished for lying. And then they close up against me. You're the first grown-up person I've been able to reach for a long time. Probably getting into my second childhood, Colonel Hampton grunted. Oh, but you mustn't be ashamed of that, the invisible entity told him. That's the beginning of real wisdom, becoming childlike again. One of your religious teachers said something like that long ago, and a long time before that there was a Chinaman whom people called Venerable Child, because his wisdom had turned back again to a child's simplicity. That was Lao Tse, Colonel Hampton said, a little surprised. Don't tell me you've been around that long. Oh, but I have. Longer than that. Oh, for very long. And yet the voice he seemed to be hearing was the voice of a young girl. You don't mind my coming to talk to you, it continued. I get so lonely, so dreadfully lonely, you see. Erm, so do I. Colonel Hampton admitted. I'm probably going bats, but what the hell? It's a nice way to go bats, I'll say that. Stick around, whoever you are, and let's get acquainted. I sort of like you. A feeling of warmth suffused him, as though he had been hugged by someone young and happy and loving. Oh, I'm glad. I like you, too. You're nice. Yes, of course. Dr. Werner nodded sagely. That is a schizoid tendency. The flight from reality into a dream world people by creatures of the imagination. You understand there is usually a mixture of psychotic conditions in cases like this. We will say that this case begins with simple senile dementia, physical brain degeneration, a result of advanced age. Then the paranoid symptoms appear. He imagines himself surrounded by envious enemies who are conspiring against him. The patient then withdraws into himself and in his self-imposed isolation he conjures up imaginary companionship. I have no doubt. In the beginning he had suspected that this unseen visitor was no more than a figment of his own lonely imagination. But as the days passed, this suspicion vanished. Whatever this entity might be, an entity it was, entirely distinct from his own conscious or subconscious mind. At first she... He had early to come to think of the being as feminine, 
had seemed timid, fearful lest her intrusions into his mind prove a nuisance. It took some time for him to assure her that she was always welcome. With time, too, his impression of her grew stronger and more concrete. He found that he was able to visualize her, as he might visualize something remembered or conceived of in imagination, a lovely young girl, slender and clothed in something loose and filmy, with flowers in her honey-colored hair, and clear blue eyes, a pert, cheerful face, a wide smiling mouth with an impudently up-tilted nose. He realized that this image was merely a sort of allegorical representation, his own private object abstraction from a reality which his senses could never picture as it existed. It was about this time that he begun to call her dearest. She had given him no name, and seemed quite satisfied with that one. I've been thinking, she said, I ought to have a name for you, too. Do you mind if I call you Popsy? Huh? He had been really startled at that. If he needed any further proof of Dearest's independent existence, that was it. Never in the utmost depths of his subconscious would he have ever been likely to label himself Popsy. Know what they used to call me in the army? he asked. Slaughterhouse Hampton. They claimed I needed a truckload of sawdust to follow me around and cover up the blood. He chuckled. Nobody but you would think of calling me Popsy. There was a price, he found, that he must pay for Dearest's companionship. The price of eternal vigilance. He found that he was acquiring the habit of opening doors and then needlessly standing aside to allow her to precede him. And, although she insisted that he need not speak aloud to her, that she could understand any thought which he directed to her, he could not help actually pronouncing the words, if only in a faint whisper. He was glad that he had learned, before the end of his plea beer at West Point, to speak without moving his lips. Besides himself and the kitten's smoke-ball, there was one other at Greyrock who was aware, if only faintly, of Dearest's presence. That was old Sergeant Williamson, the colonel's negro servant a retired first sergeant from the regiment he had last commanded. With increasing frequency he would notice the old negro pause at his work, as though trying to identify something too subtle for his senses, and then shake his head in bewilderment. One afternoon in early October, just about a year ago, he had been reclining in a chair on the west veranda, smoking a cigar and trying to recreate, for his companion, a mental picture of an Indian camp as he had seen it in Wyoming in the middle of the nineties, when Sergeant Williamson came out from the house carrying a pair of the Colonel's field boots and a polishing kit. Unaware of the Colonel's presence, he set down his burden, squatted on the floor and began polishing the boots, humming softly to himself. Then he must have caught a whiff of the Colonel's cigar. Raising his head, he saw the Colonel and made as though to pick up the boots and the polishing equipment. Oh, that's all right, Sergeant, the Colonel told him. Carry on with what you're doing. There's room enough for both of us here. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. The old Sergeant resumed his soft humming, keeping time with the brush in his hand. You know, Popsy, I think he knows I'm here, Dearest said. Nothing definite, of course. He just feels there's something here that he can't see. I wonder. I've noticed something like that. Funny, he doesn't seem to mind, either. Colored people are usually scary about ghosts and spirits and the like. I'm going to ask him. He raised his voice. Sergeant, 
Do you seem to notice anything peculiar around here, lately? The repetitious little two-tone melody broke off short. The soldier's servant lifted his face and looked into the colonel's. His brow wrinkled, as though he were trying to express a thought for which he had no words. You notice that too, sir? he asked. Well, yes, sir, colonel. I don't know exactly how to say it, but there is something at that. It seems like, like a kind of, a kind of blessedness. He chuckled. That's it, colonel. There's a blessedness. Wonder if and I get in religion now. Well, all this is very interesting, I'm sure, doctor, T. Barnwell Powell was saying, polishing his glasses on a piece of tissue and keeping one elbow on his briefcase at the same time. But really, it's not getting us anywhere. So to say, you know, we must have that commitment signed by you. Now, is it or is it not your opinion that this man is of unsound mind? Now have patience, Mr. Powell, the psychiatrist soothed him. You must admit that as long as this gentleman refuses to talk, I cannot be said to have interviewed him. But what if he won't talk? Stephen Hampton burst out. We've told you about his behavior, how he sits for hours mumbling to this imaginary person he thinks is with him, and how he always steps aside when he opens a door to let somebody who isn't there go through ahead of him, and how... Oh, hell, what's the use? If he were in his right mind, he'd speak up and try to prove it, wouldn't he? What do you say, Myra? Myra was silent, and Colonel Hampton found himself watching her with interest. Her mouth had twisted into a wry grimace, and she was clutching the arms of her chair until her knuckles whitened. She seemed to be in some intense pain. Colonel Hampton hoped she were, preferably something slightly fatal. Sergeant Williamson's suspicion that he might be getting religion became a reality, for a time, that winter after the miracle. It had been a blustery day in mid-January, with a high wind driving swirls of snow across the fields, and Colonel Hampton, fretting indoors for several days, decided to go out and fill his lungs with fresh air. Bundled warmly, swinging his blackthorn cane, he had set out, accompanied by Dearest, to tramp cross-country to the village, three miles from Greyrock. They had enjoyed the walk through the white, wind-swept desolation, the old man and his invisible companion, until the accident had happened. A sheet of glassy ice had lain treacherously hidden under a skift of snow. When he stepped on it, his feet shot out from under him. The stick flew from his hand, and he went down. When he tried to rise, he found that he could not. Dearest had been almost frantic. Oh, Popsy, you must get up, she cried. You'll freeze if you don't. Come on, Popsy, try again. He tried, in vain. His old body would not obey his will. It's no use, Dearest, I can't. Maybe it's just as well, he said. Freezing's an easy death. And you say people live on his spirits after they die. Maybe we can always be together now. I don't know. I don't want you to die yet, Popsy. I never was able to get through to a spirit, and I'm afraid. Wait, can you crawl a little, enough to get over under those young pines? I think so. His left leg was numb, and he believed that it was broken. I can try. He managed to roll onto his back, and with his head towards the clump of pine seedlings, using both hands and his right heel, he was able to propel himself slowly through the snow until he was out of the worst of the wind. 
That's good. Now try to cover yourself, dearest advised. Put your hands in your coat pockets and wait here. I'll try to get help. Then she left him. For what seemed a long time, he lay motionless in the scant protection of the young pines, suffering miserably. He began to grow drowsy. As soon as he realized what was happening, he was frightened, and the fright pulled him awake again. Soon he felt himself drowsing again. By shifting his position, he caused a jab of pain from his broken leg, which brought him back to wakefulness. Then the deadly drowsiness returned. This time he was wakened by a sharp voice, mingled with a throbbing sound that seemed to be part of a dream of the cannonading in the Argonne. Duh! Look a duh! It was, he realized, Sergeant Williamson's voice. Getting soft in the head is ah, you old worthless no-count. He turned his face to see the battered jeep from Greyrock, driven by Arthur, the stableman and gardener, with Sergeant Williamson beside him. The older negro jumped to the ground and ran toward him. At the same time, he felt dearest with him again. We made it, Popsy, we made it. She was exulting. I was afraid I'd never make him understand, but I did. And you should have seen him bully that other man into driving the jeep. Are you all right, Popsy? Is you all right, Colonel? Sergeant Williamson was asking. My leg's broken, I think. But outside of that, I'm all right, he answered both of them. How did you happen to find me, Sergeant? The old negro soldier rolled his eyes upward. Colonel, it were a miracle of the blessed Lord, he replied solemnly. An angel of the Lord done appeared to me. He shook his head slowly. I's a sinful man, Colonel. I couldn't see the angel face to face, but the glory of the angel was before me and guided me. They used his cane and a broken-off bow to splint his leg. They wrapped him in a horse blanket and hauled him back to Greyrock and put him to bed, with Dearest clinging solicitously to him. The fractured leg knit slowly, though the physician was amazed at the speed with which, considering his age, he made recovery, and with his unfailing cheerfulness. He did not know, of course, that he was being assisted by an invisible nurse. For all that, however, the leaves on the oaks around Grey Rock were green again before Colonel Hampton could leave his bed and hobble about the house on a cane. Arthur, the young negro who had driven the jeep, had become one of the most solid pillars of the little AME church beyond the village, as a result. Sergeant Williamson had also become an attendant at the church for a while, and then stopped. Without being able to define, or spell, or even pronounce the term, Sergeant Williamson was a strict pragmatist. Most Africans are, even after five generations removed from the slave ship that brought their forefathers from the Dark Continent. And Sergeant Williamson could not find the blessedness at the church. Instead, it seemed to center about the room where his employer and former regiment commander lay. That, to his mind, was quite reasonable. If an angel of the Lord was going to tarry upon earth, the celestial being would naturally prefer the society of a retired USA colonel to that of a passel of trifling no-counts at an old clapboard church house. Be that as it may, he could always find the blessedness in Colonel Hampton's room, and sometimes, when the colonel would be asleep, the blessedness would follow him out and linger with him for a while. Colonel Hampton wondered, anxiously, where Dearest was now. He had not felt her presence since his nephew had brought his lawyer and the psychiatrist into the house. 
he wondered if she had voluntarily separated herself from him for fear that he might give her some sign of recognition that these harpies would fasten upon as an evidence of unsound mind. He could not believe that she deserted him entirely, now when he needed her most. Well, what can I do? Dr. Werner was complaining. You bring me here to interview him, and he just sits there and does nothing. Will you consent to my giving him an injection of sodium pentothal? Well, I don't know, now, T. Barnwell Powell objected. I've heard of that drug, one of the so-called truth serum drugs. I doubt if testimony taken under its influence could be admissible in a court. This is not a court, Mr. Powell, the doctor explained patiently, and I am not taking testimony. I am making a diagnosis. Pentothal is a recognized diagnostic agent. Go ahead, Stephen Hamilton said. Anything to get this over with. You agree, Myra? Myra said nothing. She simply sat, with staring eyes, and clutched the arms of her chair as though to keep from slipping into some dreadful abyss. Once a low moan escaped her lips. My wife is naturally overwrought by this painful business, Stephen said. I trust that you gentlemen will excuse her. Hadn't you better go and lie down somewhere, Myra? She shook her head violently, moaning again. Both the doctor and the attorney were looking at her curiously. Well, I object to being drugged, Colonel Hampton said, rising, and what's more, I won't submit to it. Albert, Dr. Werner said sharply, nodding towards the colonel. The pithecanthropoid attendant in the white jacket hastened forward, pinned his arms behind him and dragged him down into the chair. For an instant, the old man tried to resist, then, realizing the futility and undignity of struggling, subsided. The psychiatrist had taken a leather case from his pocket and was selecting a hypodermic needle. Then Myra Hampton leaped to her feet, her face working hideously. No! Stop! Stop! she cried. Everyone looked at her in surprise. Colonel Hampton no less than the others. Stephen Hampton called out her name sharply. No, you shan't do this to me. You shan't. You're torturing me. You are all devils, she screamed. Devils! Devils! Myra, her husband barked, stepping forward. With a twist, she eluded him, dashing around the desk and pulling open a drawer. For an instant she fumbled inside it, and when she brought her hand up, she had Colonel Hampton's forty-five automatic in it. She drew back the slide and released it, loading the chamber. Dr. Werner, the hypodermic in his hand, turned. Stephen Hampton sprang at her, dropping his drink. And Albert, the prognathus attendant, released Colonel Hampton and leaped at the woman with the pistol, with an unthinking promptness of a dog whose master is in danger. Stephen Hampton was the closest to her. She shot him first, point-blank in the chest. The heavy bullet knocked him backwards against a small table. He and it fell over together. While he was falling, the woman turned, dipped the muzzle of her pistol slightly, and fired again. Dr. Werner's leg gave way under him, and he went down, the hypodermic flying from his hand and landing at Colonel Hampton's feet. At the same time, the attendant, Albert, was almost upon her. Quickly, she reversed the heavy colt, pressed the muzzle against her heart, and fired a third shot. T. Barnwell Powell had let the briefcase slip to the floor. He was staring slack-jawed, at the tableau of violence which had been enacted before him. The attendant, having reached Myra, was looking down at her stupidly, 
Then he stooped and straightened. She's dead, he said unbelievingly. Colonel Hampton rose, put his heel on the hypodermic and crushing it. Of course she's dead, he barked. Do you have any first aid training? Then look after these other people. Dr. Werner first, the other man's unconscious. He'll wait. No, look after the other man first, Dr. Werner said. Albert gaped back and forth between them. God damn it, you heard me, Colonel Hampton roared. It was Slaughterhouse Hampton, whose service ribbons started with the Indian campaigns, speaking. An officer who never for an instant imagined that his orders would not be obeyed. Get a tourniquet on that man's leg, you. He moderated his voice and manner about half a degree and spoke to Werner. You're not the doctor. You're the patient now. You'll do as you're told. Don't you know that a man shot in the leg with a forty-five can bleed to death without half trying? You all do like the colonel says, or for God you're all going to wish you had, Sergeant Williams said, entering the room. Get a move on. He stood just inside the doorway, holding a silver-banded malacca walking stick that he had taken from the hall stand. He was grasping it in his left hand, below the band, with the crook out, holding it at his side as though it were a sword in a scabbard, which was exactly what that walking stick was. Albert looked at him, and then back at Colonel Hampton. Then, whipping off his necktie, he went down on his knees beside Dr. Werner, skillfully applying the improvised tourniquet, twisting it tight with an 18-inch ruler the colonel took from the desk and handed to him. Go and get the first aid kit, Sergeant, the colonel said, and hurry, Mr. Stevens been shot, too. Yes, sir. Sergeant Williamson executed an automatic salute and about face and raced from the room. The colonel picked up the telephone on the desk. The county hospital was three miles from Greyrock, the state police substation a good five. He dialed the state police number first. Sergeant Mallard, Colonel Hampton at Greyrock. We've had a little trouble here. My nephew's wife just went juramentado with one of my pistols, shot and wounded her husband and another man, and then shot and killed herself. Yes, indeed it is, Sergeant. I wish you'd send somebody over here as soon as possible to take charge. Oh, you will? That's good. No, it's all over, and nobody to arrest, just the formalities. Well, thank you, Sergeant. The old Negro cavalryman re-entered the room, Without the sword cane and carrying a heavy leather box on a strap over his shoulder, he set this on the floor and opened it, then knelt beside Stephen Hampton. The colonel was calling the hospital. Gunshot wounds, he was saying, one man in the chest and the other in the leg, both with a forty-five pistol, and you'd better send a doctor who's qualified to write a death certificate. There was a woman killed, too. Yes, certainly, the state police have been notified. This ain't so bad, Colonel, Sergeant Williamson raised his head to say. I've seen men shot wuss'n dis that was mocked duty inside a month, sir. Colonel Hampton nodded. Well, get him fixed up as best you can till the ambulance gets here. And there's whiskey and glasses on that table over there. Better give Dr. Werner a drink. He looked at T. Barnwell Powell, still frozen to his chair, aghast at the carnage around him. And give Mr. Powell a drink, too. He needs one. He did, indeed. Colonel Hampton could have used a drink, too. The library looked like beef day at an Indian agency, but he was still Slaughterhouse Hampton, and consequently could not afford to exhibit queasiness. It was then, for the first time since the business had started, that he felt the presence of Dearest, 
Oh, Popsy, are you all right? The voice inside his head was asking. It's all over now. You won't have anything to worry about anymore. But, oh, I was afraid I wouldn't be able to do it. My God, dearest, he almost spoke aloud. Did you make her do that? Popsy! The voice in his mind was grief-stricken. You, you're afraid of me. Never be afraid of dearest Popsy. And don't hate me for this. It was the only thing I could do. If he'd given you that injection, he could have made you tell him all about us, and then he'd have been sure you were crazy, and they'd have taken you away. And they treat people dreadfully at that place of his. You'd have been driven really crazy before long, and then your mind would have been closed to me, so that I wouldn't have been able to get through to you any more. What I did was the only thing I could do. I don't hate you, dearest, he replied mentally, and I don't blame you. It was a little disconcerting, though, to discover the extent of your capabilities. How did you manage it? You remember how I made the sergeant see an angel? The time that you were down in the snow? Colonel Hampton nodded. Well, I made her see. Things that weren't angels, Dearest continued. After I'd driven her almost to distraction, I was able to get into her mind and take control of her. Colonel Hampton felt a shudder inside of him. That was horrible. That woman had a mind like a sewer. I still feel dirty from it. I made her get the pistol. I knew where you kept it, and I knew how to use it, even if she didn't. Remember when we were shooting muskrats that time along the river? Uh-huh. I wondered how she knew enough to unlock the action and load the chamber. He turned and faced the others. Dr. Werner was sitting on the floor with his back to the chair Colonel Hampton had occupied. His injured leg stretched out in front of him, Albert was hovering over him with mother-hen solicitude. T. Barnwell Powell was finishing his whiskey and recovering a fraction of his normal poise. Well, I suppose you gentlemen see, now, who was really crazy around here. Colonel Hampton addressed them bitingly. That woman has been dangerously close to the borderline of sanity for as long as she's been here. I think my precious nephew trumped up this ridiculous insanity complaint against me as much to discredit any testimony I might ever give about his wife's mental condition as because he wanted to get control of my estate. I also suppose that the tension she was under here this afternoon was too much for her, and the scheme boomeranged on its originators. Curious case of poetic justice. But I'm sorry you had to be included in it, doctor. Attaboy, Popsy! dearest enthused. Now you have them on the run. Don't give them a chance to reform. You know what Patton always said. Grab them by the nose and kick them in the pants. Colonel Hampton relighted his cigar. Patton only said pants when he was talking for publication, he told her sotto voce. Then he noticed the unsigned commitment paper lying on the desk. He picked it up, crumpled it, and threw it into the fire. I don't think you'll be needing that, he said. You know, this isn't the first time my loving nephew has expressed doubts about my sanity. He sat down in the chair at the desk, motioning to a servant to bring him a drink. And see to the other gentleman's glasses, Sergeant, he directed. Back in 1929, Stephen thought I was crazy as a bedbug to sell all my securities and take a paper loss, around the 1st of September. After October 24th, I bought them back at about 20% of what I'd sold them for, after he'd lost his shirt. That, he knew, would have an effect on T. Barnwell Powell, 
and in December 1944 I was just plain nuts, selling all my munitions shares and investing in a company that manufactured baby food. Stephen thought that Rundstedt's Ardennes counteroffensive would put off the end of the war for another year and a half. Baby food, eh? Dr. Werner chuckled. Colonel Hampton sipped his whiskey slowly, then puffed on his cigar. No, this pair were competent liars, he replied. A good workmanlike liar never makes up a story out of the whole cloth. He always takes a fabric of truth and embroiders it to suit the situation. He smiled grimly. That was an accurate description of his own tactical procedure at the moment. I hadn't intended this to come out, Doctor, but it happens that I am a convinced believer in spiritualism. I suppose you'll think that that's a delusional belief, too. Well, Dr. Werner pursed his lips. I reject the idea of survival after death, myself, but I think that people who believe in such a theory are merely misevaluating evidence. It is definitely not, in itself, a symptom of a psychotic condition. Thank you, Doctor. The Colonel gestured with a cigar. Now, I'll admit their statements about my appearing to be in conversation with some invisible or imaginary being. That's all quite true. I'm convinced that I am in direct voice communication with the spirit of a young girl who was killed by the Indians in this section about a hundred and seventy-five years ago. At first, she communicated by automatic writing. Later, we established direct voice communication. Well, naturally, a man in my position would dislike the label of spirit medium. There are too many invidious associations connected with the term. But there it is. I trust both of you gentlemen will remember the ethics of your respective professions and keep this confidential. Oh, brother! Dearest was fairly hugging him with delight. When bigger and better lies are told, we tell him, don't we, Popsy? Yes, and try and prove otherwise, Colonel Hampton replied around his cigar. Then he blew a jet of smoke and spoke to the men in front of him. I intend paying for my nephew's hospitalization and for his wife's funeral, he said, and then I'm going to pack up all his personal belongings and all of hers. When he's discharged from the hospital, I'll ship them wherever he wants them, but he won't be allowed to come back here. After this business, I'm through with him. T. Barnwell Powell nodded primly. I don't blame you in the least, Colonel, he said. I think you have been abominably treated, and your attitude is most generous. He was about to say something else, when the doorbell tinkled and Sergeant Williamson went out into the hall. Oh dear, I suppose that's the police now, the lawyer said. He grimaced like a small boy in a dentist's chair. Colonel Hampton felt Dearest leave him for a moment. Then she was back. The ambulance. Then he caught a sparkle of mischief in her mood. Let's have some fun, Popsy. The doctor is a young man with brown hair and a mustache, horn-rimmed glasses, a blue tie, and a tan leather bag. One of the ambulance men has red hair, and the other has a mercurochrome stain on his left sleeve. Tell them your spirit guide told you. The old soldier's tobacco-yellowed mustache twitched in amusement. No, gentlemen, it is the ambulance, he corrected. My spirit control says. He relayed Dearest's descriptions to them. T. Barnwell Powell blinked. A speculative look came into the psychiatrist's eyes. He was probably wishing the commitment paper hadn't been destroyed. Then the doctor came bustling in. Brown-mustached, blue-tied, spectacled, 
carrying a tan bag, and behind him followed the two ambulance men, one with a thatch of flaming red hair and the other with a stain of mercurochrome on his jacket sleeve. For an instant, the lawyer and the psychiatrist gaped at them. Then T. Barnwell Powell put one hand to his mouth and made a small gibbering sound, and Dr. Werner gave a faint squawk. And then both men grabbed, simultaneously, for the whiskey bottle. The laughter of Dearest tinkled inaudibly through the rumbling mirth of Colonel Hampton. The End End of Dearest by H. Beam Piper Flame Down. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is by Yuan G. Flame Down by H. B. Fife. Charlie Holmes lost touch with reality amid rending and shattering sounds that lingered dimly. Blackness engulfed him in a wave of agony. He was not sure exactly when the possibility of opening his eyes occurred to him. Vaguely, he could sense, remember was too definite, much tugging and hauling upon his supine body. It doubtless seemed justifiable, but he flinched from recalling more clearly that which must have been so extremely unpleasant. Gently now, he tried rolling his head a few inches right, then left. When it hurt only one-tenth as much as he feared, he let his eyes open. Hello, rasped the bulbous creature squatting beside his pallet. Charlie shut his eyes quickly and very tightly. Something with a dampish, spongy tip, probably one of the grape-red tentacles he had glimpsed, prodded his shoulder. Hello, insisted the scratchy voice. Charlie peeped wearily, was strapped at it, and opened his eyes resignedly. When hell am I? he inquired. It sounded very trite, even in his confused condition. Sections of the dark red skin before him, especially on the barrel-shaped belly, quivered as he spoke. Surely, grated the remarkable voice, you remember something. The crash, gasped Charlie, sitting up abruptly. He held his breath, awaiting the knifing pain it seemed natural to expect. When he felt none, he cautiously fingered his ribs, and then a horrid thought prompted him to wiggle his bare toes. Everything seemed to be in place. He lay in a small room on a thin pallet of furs. Floor and walls of slick ochre clay reflected the bright outside light pouring through a wide doorway. "'What's all the sand?' he demanded, squinting at the heat waves outside. "'You do not recognize it? Look again, Earthman!' "'Earthman,' thought Charlie. "'It must be real. I can still see him. What a whack on the head I must have got. You are in pain?' asked the creature solicitously. Oh, no, just... I can't remember the, the crash, and then... Ah, oh, yes, you have not been conscious for some time. His reddish host rippled upward to stand more or less erect upon three thick tentacles. Even with us, memory is slow after shock, and you may be uneasy in the light of gravity. Light gravity? reflected Charlie. This can only mean... Mars! Sure, that must be it. I was piloting a rocket and cracked up somewhere on Mars. It felt right to him. He decided that the rest of his memory would return. 
Are you able to rise? asked the other, extending a helpful tentacle. The Earthman managed to haul himself stiffly to his feet. Say, my name is Holmes, he introduced himself dizzily. I am Koteki. In your language, learned here since from other spacemen, I might say, fiery canal man. Has to be Mars, muttered Charlie under his breath. What a bump! When can you show me what's left of my ship? There will be no time, answered the Martian. Bunches of small muscles twitched here and there across the front of his round, pudgy head. Charlie was getting used to the single eye, half the size of an orange and not much duller. With imagination, the various lumps and organs surrounding it might be considered a face. The priestesses will lead the crowd here, predicted Ko. They know I took an earth man, and I fear that they are finished with the others. Finished with what? demanded the earth man, shaking his head in hopes of clearing it enough to figure out what was wrong. It has been an extremely dry season. Ko rippled his tentacles and moved listenly to the doorway, assuming a grotesque furtive posture as he peered out. The people are maddened by the drought. They will be aroused to sacrifice you to the canal gods, like the others who survived. Canal gods? croaked Charlie. This can't be right. Aren't you civilized here? I can't be the only earthman they've seen. It is true that earthmen are perfectly safe at most times. But the laws, the, the Earth Consul... Ko snapped the tip of a tentacle at him. The canals are low. You can feel the heat and dryness for yourself. The crowds are inflamed by temple prophecies. And then your ship flaming down from the skies. He snapped all his tentacle tips at once. From somewhere outside, a threatening murmur became audible. It was an unholy blend of rasping shouts and shriller chanting, punctuated by notes of a brassy gong. As Charlie listened, the volume rose noticeably. Ko reached out with one tentacle and wrapped six inches about the earthman's wrist. When he plunged through the doorway, Charlie perforce went right with him. Whipping around the corner of the hut, he had time for a quick squint at the chanters. Ko alone had looked weirdly alien. Two hundred like him! Led by a dozen bulgy figures in streaming robes, masked and decorated in brass, the natives were swarming over the sand towards the fugitives. They had evidently been busy. Above a distant cluster of low buildings, a column of smoke spiralled upward suggestively. Ko led the way at a floating gallop over a sandstone ridge and down a long slope toward what looked like the junction of two gullies. The canal, he wheezed. With luck we may find a boat. A frenzied screech went up as the mob topped the ridge and regained sight of them. Charlie, having all he could do to breathe in the thin air, tried to shake his wrist loose. Now that they were descending the slope, he saw where the water was. They slid down a four-foot drop in a cloud of fine, choking dust, and were faced by several punt-like craft stranded in the mudflat behind. The water was fifty feet further. We should have gone downstream, said Ko, but we can wade. Their momentum carried them several steps into the mud before Charlie realized how wrong that was. Then, as they floundered about to regain the solid bank, it became apparent that they would never reach it in time. They are catching us, rasped Ko. The howling crowd was scarcely a hundred yards away. The heat waves shimmered above the reddish desert sand until the Martians were blurred before Charlie's burning eyes. 
His feet churned the clinging mud, and he felt as if he were running in a dream. "'I'm sorry you're in it, too,' he panted. "'It does not matter. I act as I must.' The earthman rubbed sweat from his eyes with the back of a muddy hand. "'Everything is wrong,' he mumbled. "'I still can't remember cracking up the ship. Why did I always want to be a rocket pilot? Well, I made my bed.' The oncoming figures wavered and blurred in the heat. Co emitted a grating sound reminiscent of an earthly chuckle. "'As do all you mortals who finally have to lie in them,' he rasped. "'I will tell you now, since I can carry this episode little farther. "'You have never piloted a spaceship.' Charlie gaped at him incredulously. "'You—you—what about the wreck?' "'It was a truck that hit you, Charles Holmes. "'You have no more sense than to be crossing the street with your nose in a magazine just purchased on the corner.' "'With some dulled, creeping, semi-detached facet of his mind, "'Charlie noted that the running figures still floated above the sand without actually drawing near. "'Are you—do you mean I'm d—' "'Of course you are,' grated Co amiably. And in view of certain actions during your life, there will be quite a period of, shall we say, probation. When I was assigned to you, your reading habits suggested an amusing series of variations. You cannot know how dull it is to keep frustrating the same old dreams. Amusing? repeated Charlie, beyond caring about the whimper in his tone. The mob was dissolving into thin smoke, and the horizon was shrinking. Ko himself was altering into something red of skin, but equipped with a normal number of limbs, discounting the barbed tail. The constant heat of the desert began at last to seem explicable. "'For me a great amusement,' grinned Ko, displaying hideous tusks. "'Next time I'll be a Venusian. You will lose again.' Then we can visit other planets and stars. Oh, well, we shall see a lot of each other. He cheerfully polished one horn with a clawed finger. You won't enjoy it, he promised. End of Flame Down by H.B. Fife, Recorded by Yuan G. in Pretoria, South Africa. The Flying Cuspidors by V. R. Francis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Bologna Times. The Flying Cuspidors by V. R. Francis. A trumpet tutor. In love can be a wonderful sight, if local 802 will forgive a saying so, when extraterrestrials get involved too. Oh, brother! V. R. Francis, who lives in California and has previously appeared in men's magazines, became 21 and sold to Fantastic Universe all in the same week. This was love, and what could be done of it? It's been happening to guys for a long time now. 
Hotlips Grogan may not be as handsome and good-looking like me, or as brainy and intellectual, but in this fiscal year of 2056 he is the gonest trumpet tutor this side of Alpha Centauri. You would know what I mean right off if you ever hear him give out with Stars Fell on Venus, or Martian Love Song, or Shine on Harvest Luna. Believe me, it is out of this world. He is not only hot, he is radioactive. On a clear day, he is playing notes you cannot hear without you are wearing special equipment. That is for a fact. Mostly he is a good man. Cool, solid, and in the warp. But one night he is playing strictly in three or four wrong keys. I am the ivory man for this elite bunch of musicians, and I am scooping up my 3D music from the battered electronic 88 when he comes over, looking plenty worried. Eddie, he says, I got a problem. You got a problem, all right, I tell him. You are not getting a job selling Venusian fish the way you play today. He frowns. It is pretty bad, I suppose. Bad is not the word. I say, but I spare his feelings and do not say the word. It is. What gives? He looks around him, careful to see if anybody in the place is close enough to hear. But it is only afternoon rehearsal on the gambling ship Saturn, and the waiters are busy mopping up the floor and leaning on their long-handled sterilizers, and the boys in the band are picking up their music to go down to earth to get some shut-eye, or maybe an atomic beer or two, before we open that night. Hot Lips Grogan leans over and whispers in my ear, It is the thrush, he says. The thrush? I say loud, before he clamps one of his big hands over my kisser. The thrush? I say, softer. You mean the canary? He waves his arms like a bird. Thrush, canary. I mean, Stella Starlight. For a moment I stand with my mouth open and think of this. Then I rub it for the ninety-seventh time at the female warbler, who is standing talking to Frankie, the band leader. She is a thrush new to the band, and plenty cute, a blonde, with everything where it is supposed to be, and maybe a little extra helping in a couple of spots. I give him my usual approving once-over, just in case I miss something. The last ninety-six approving once-overs I give her. What about her? I say. It is her fault. I play like I do, Hotlips Grogan tells me sadly. Come on. Leave us go guzzle a beer, and I will tell you about it. Just then, Frankie comes over, looking nasty like as usual, and he says to Grogan, You are not playing too well today, Hot Lips. Maybe you hurt your lip on a beer bottle, huh? As usual, also, his tone is pretty short on sweetness and light, and I do not see why Grogan, who looks something like a gorilla's mother-in-law, takes such guff from a beanpole like Frankie. But Grogan only says, I think something is wrong with my trumpet. I have it fixed before tonight. Frankie smirks. Do that, he says, looking like a grinning weasel. We want you to play for dancing, not for calling a Martian moose. Frankie walks away, and Hotlips shrugs. Leave us get our beer, he says simply, and we go to the ferry.
We pile into the space ferry with the other musicians and anyone else who is going down to dirty old terra firma, and when everybody who is going aboard is aboard, the doors close, and the ferry drifts into space. Hot Lips and I find seats, and we look back at the gambling ship. It is a thrill you do not get used to, no matter how many times you see it. The sailor boys who built the Saturn, they give it the handle of satellite too then, would not know their baby now. Frankie does such a good job of revamping it. Of course, it is not used as a gambling ship then, at least not altogether, if you know what I mean. Way back in 1998, when they get it in the sky, they are more interested in it being useful than pretty. Anybody that got nasty and unsanitary ideas just forgot them when they saw that iron casket floating in a sky that could be filled with hydrogen bombs or old laundry without so much as a four-bar intro as warning. Frankie buys the satellite, too, at a war surplus sale when moon flights become as easy as commuters' trips, and he smooths out its shape so it looks like an egg, and then puts a fin around it for ships to land on. After that, it does not take much imagination to call it the Saturn. Then he gets his Western Hemisphere license and opens for business. My daydreaming stops, for suddenly Hot Lips is grabbing my arm and pointing out the window. What for are you grabbing my arm and waving your fist at the window, Hot Lips? I inquire politely of him. Eddie, he whispers all nervous and excited from something. I see one. I give him a blank stare. You see one what? One flying cuspidor, he says, his face serious. I see it hanging out there by the Saturn, and then suddenly it is gone. Whoosh. Hallucination, I tell him. But I look out hard and try to see one too. I don't, so I figure maybe I am right after all. I do not know about this men from space gimmick the science fiction people try to peddle, but lots of good substantial citizens see flying cuspidors, and I think to myself that maybe there is something to it. So I keep looking back at the Saturn, but nothing unusual is going on that I can see. My logic and super salesmanship evidently convinces Hot Lips, for he does not say anything more about it. Anyway, in a few minutes, we joggle to a stop at Earthport, pile out, wave our identification papers at the doorman with the lieutenant's bars, and then take off for the Atomic Café a block away. Entering the gem of a drinking establishment, we make our way through the smoke and noise to get a quiet little corner table and give Mamie the high sign for two beers. A few minutes later, she comes bouncing over with the order, and a cheery word about how invigorating it is to see us high-class gentlemen instead of the bums that usually hang around a joint like this trying to make time with a nice girl like her. That is all very nice, I say to her politely, and we are overjoyed beyond words to see you too, Mamie, but Hot Lips and I have got strange and mysterious things to discuss, so I would appreciate it if you would see us later instead of now. With this, I give her arm a playful pat, and she blushes and takes the hint. When we are alone, I ask Hot Lips, now, what is the trouble which he has? Like I tell you before, 
Hotlip says, I have a problem, so here it is. He takes a deep breath and lets fly all at once. I am in love of the thrush, Stella Stotlight. I am drinking my beer when he says this, and suddenly I get a snootful and start coughing, and he whams me on the back with his big paw so I stop more in self-defense than in his curing me. Somehow the idea of a big bruiser like Hotlips Grogan in love with a sweet fluffy thing like Stella Starlight seems funny. So, I say, so that is why I play so bad tonight, he says. Seeing I do not quite catch on to the full intent of his remarks, he continues, I am a happy man, Eddie. I got my trumpet a paid-for suit of clothes, a one-room apartment with green wallpaper. Could a man ask for much more? Not unless he is greedy, I agree. Hotlips Grogan is staring at his beer as though he sees a worm in it and looking sadder than ever. It is a strange and funny thing, he says, dreamy-like. There she is singing, and there I am, giving with the trumpet and all of a great big sudden whammo. It hits me, and I feel a funny feeling in my stomach, like maybe it is full of supersuds or something, and my mouth is dry, just like cotton candy. Indigestion, I suggest. He shakes his big head. No, he says. It is worse than indigestion. He points to his stomach and sighs. It is love. Fine, I say. Happy, it is not worse. All you got to do is tell her get married, and have lots and lots of kids. Hotlips Grogan's big eyebrows play hopscotch around his button nose, so I can tell he does not think I solve all his troubles with my suggestion. You are a good man, Eddie, he tells me, but you are too intellectual. This is an affair of the heart. He sighs again. I am never in love of a girl before, he goes on more worried, and I do not know how to act. Besides, the thrush is with us only a day, and Frankie already is making with the eyes. So what should I do? Give you lessons? The idea is so laughable, I laugh at it. Anyway, Frankie always makes with the eyes at thrushes. Yes, Hotlips Grogan admits, but never before have I been in love of any of the thrushes Frankie has made with the eyes at. Frankly, Eddie, I am worried like all get-out about this. Sometimes I do not even understand the way you play, even before the thrush comes, hot-lips, I admit. Like, for instance, yesterday, when we play A Spaceship Built for Two. This is a song, as you know, that does not have in it many high notes, but even when you play the low notes, they sound somewhat like they maybe are trying to be high notes. It is a matter which is perplexing to one of my curious nature. Hotlips looks sheepish for a minute, and then he says, It has a physical disability with me, Eddie. When I am young and practicing with my trumpet one day, I have an accident and get my tongue caught in the mouthpiece, and it is necessary for the doctor to operate on my tongue and cut into it like maybe it is chopped liver. I am sorry to hear this, Hotlips, I say. I do not tell anyone this before, Eddie, Hotlips confesses. But afterward, when I play the trumpet, I play two notes at one time, which at first is pretty embarrassing. 
That is great, Hot Lips, I proclaim, as a big idea hits me. You can play your own harmony. With talent like that and my brain. But Hot Lips is shaking his head. No, Eddie, he says. The other note is way off in the stratosphere someplace, and no one can hear it, even when the melody note is low. And the higher the note is, you can hear. The higher the other note is, you cannot hear. Besides, now I cannot even play what I am supposed to play, what with the thrush around. I sit there with my beer in my hand and think about it for a while, while Hot Lips looks at me like a lost sheepdog. I scratch my head, but I do not even come up with dandruff. Finally, I say, Well, thrush or not, if you play no better than you do this afternoon, Frankie will make you walk back home without a spacesuit. That is for positive, Hotlips agrees sadly. So what can I do? I am forced to admit that I do not know just what Hotlips can do. However, I say, I have an idea. And I call Mamie over and tell her the problem. So you are a woman, and maybe you know what my musician friend can do, I suggest. Mamie sighs. I am at a loss for words concerning what your friend can do, but I know just how he feels, for it is like that with me, too. I am in love of a handsome young musician who comes in here, but he does not take notice of me, except to order some beer for him and his friend. I click my teeth sympathetically at the nose. And I am too shy and dignified a girl to tell him. Mamie continues sadly. So you see, I have the same problem as your friend and cannot help you. See, I whisper to Hot Lips, it is perfectly normal. Yes, he hisses back, but I am still miserable, and the only company I desire is that of Stella Starlight. Maybe it really is your trumpet, I suggest. Not very hopeful, though. Hot Lips shakes his head. Look, he says, and takes the trumpet from his case and puts it to his lips, and listen to this. Inwardly, I quiver like all get-out, because I figure that is just what the management will tell us to do, once Hot Lips lets go. Hot Lips puffs out his cheeks, and a soft note slides from the end of the trumpet, low, clear, and beautiful, without a waver in a space load. Only a few people close by can hear the note, and they do not pay us any attention, except to think that maybe we are a little nuttier than is normal for musicians. From his first note, Hot Lips shifts to a higher note, which is just as pretty. Then he goes on to another one, and then to another, improvising a melody I do not hear before, and getting higher all the time. After a while I can hardly hear it, it is so high, but I can feel the glass in my hand vibrating like it wants to get out on the floor and dance. I hold on to it with both hands, so my beer will not slosh over the side. Then there is no sound at all from the trumpet, but Hot Lips' cheeks are puffed out, and he is still blowing for all he is worth, which is plenty, if he can play like this when Stella Starlight is around. I tap Hot Lips on the shoulder. Hot Lips, that is all very well for any bats in the room, which maybe can hear what you play, but he does not pay me any attention. Suddenly, 
there is a large crinkle crash of glass from the bar and a hoarse cry from the bartender as he sees his king-sized mirror come down in little pieces at the same time glasses pop into fragments all over the room and spill beer over the people holding them even my own glass becomes nothing but ground glass and the beer sloshes over the table at the moment however i do not worry about that there are other things to worry about which are more important like hotlips and my health for instance which is not likely to be so good in the near future like i say hotlips does not play loud and it is noisy in the place so there are not too many who hear him but they look around all mad and covered with beer and see him there with the trumpet in his hand and a funny look on his big face and they put two and two together i can see they figure that the answer is four and what makes things worse they are between us and the front door so we cannot sneak past like maybe we are just tourists hot lips i say to him my voice not calm like as usual i think it is a grand and glorious idea that we desert here and take ourselves elsewhere Hotlips agrees. But where, he wants to know. I am forced to admit to myself that he comes up with a good question. Over here, Mamie said suddenly, and we look across the room to see her poking her nose through a side door. We do not wait for a formal invite, but zoom across the floor and through the door into another, emptier room. Mamie slams the door and locks it just as two or three bodies thump into it like they mean business. The manager is out there, and is not completely overjoyed with your actions of a short while ago, Mamie informs us, explaining. I recognize the thump the character makes. Evidently, I surmise, he is in no mood to talk to concerning damages and how we can get out of paying them, so we will talk to him later instead of now. See what I mean, though, Eddie? Hotlip says, I play fine when Stella Starlight is not in the place. Like I say, it is love, and what can I do about it? It is a problem, I say. Even if you do play, you will no doubt be fired and cannot pay for the damages to the ballroom and to the customer's clothing. Already there are holes in my plastic clothing where the beer splashes. If you can only give out on the Saturn like you play here, I sigh, we can break all records and show Frankie... Suddenly, Mamie is tugging at my arm. Mamie, I inquire politely of her. Why are you tugging at my arm? That is it, she informs me, and leans forward and whispers in my ear. But, I say. Hurry, she says, pushing us out another door. You have only got this afternoon to do it. But, I say again. And Hotlips and I are in the alley, looking at the door, which Mamie closes in our face. What does Mamie say? Hotlips wants to know eagerly. Can she fix it up with me in Stella Starlight? I scratch my head. That I do not know, Hotlips. But she does give me an idea which is so good I am surprised at myself. I do not think of it alone. Hotlips gives me a blank stare. Which is... Come on, I say mysteriously. You and me have got things to do. It is hard to say who was more nervous that night, hot lips or a certain piano player with my name. 
Frankie is smirking like always, and Stella Starlight is sitting and looking beautiful while she waits for her cue. Hotlips is fumbling with his trumpet, like maybe he never sees one before. And I, even I, am not exactly calm like always. The band begins to warm up, but we do not knock ourselves out because there are still no customers to speak of. Frankie's license makes it plain that he has to stay over the Western Hemisphere, so he has to wait until it gets dark enough there for the people to want to go night-clubbing, even though it is not really night on the Saturn, or morning, or anything else. We play along like always, and Hotlips has his trumpet pressed into his face, and nothing but beautiful sounds come from the band. I do not know if Frankie is altogether happy about this, for he does not like Hotlips, and would like this chance to bounce him. But what surprises me most is that the thrush, Stella Starlight, keeps looking back at Hotlips like she notices him for the first time, and is plenty worried by what she sees. We have a short break after a while, and I am telling Hotlips that the idea goes over real great when Stella Starlight waltzes over. Hotlips' big eyes bug out, and I can see him shaking and covered with goosebumps. You do not play like that before, Hotlips, she coos. What did you do? Hotlips blushes and stammers. Eddie and I fix, but I give him a kick in his big shins before he gives the whole thing away. Hotlips does some practicing this afternoon, I tell her, to get his lip in shape for tonight. She looks at me like she is looking through me, and she turns back to Hotlips and says, soft and murmuring. Please do not play too high, Hotlips. I am delicate and disturbed by high sounds. She waltzes away, and I scratch my head and try to figure out what this pitch is for. Hotlips is not trying to figure out anything. He just sits there looking like he has just got his trumpet out of hock for the last time. Hotlips, I say to him. Go away, please, Eddie he tells me. I am in heaven. You will be in the poorhouse, or maybe even jail, if you tell somebody how we fix your playing, I warn him. I still feel funny feelings, though, Eddie, he tells me, frowning, like I cannot hit high notes now if I try. Then do not try, I advise. One problem at a time is too much. There is a commotion at the entrance on the other side of the dance floor, where some people all dressed up come in. A woman is holding her head and moaning and threatening to faint all over the place. Frankie hurries over to us, running fidgety hands through his hair. For goodness sake, play something, he almost begs. What gives? I inquire. Flying cuspidors, Frankie says in a frantic tone. They are all around the place, like they are maybe mad at something, and a few minutes ago they buzz the ferry and get the passengers all nervous and upset. If they do that again, business will be bad. Maybe even now it will be bad. Play something. He hops out in front with his baton and gives us a quick one, too. And we all swing into space on my hands, real loud, so as to get people's minds off things, which Frankie wants to get people's minds off of. Stella Starlight gets up to sing, but she looks more like she would rather do something else. She stares at Hot Lips and at the trumpet on his lips, and begins to quiver like she is about to do a dance. 
I remember she says she does not like high notes, and this song has some pretty well up in the stratosphere, especially for the trumpet section, which is hot lips. She is frowning like maybe she is thinking real hard about something, and is surprised her thoughts do no good. Her face becomes waxy, and there is a frightened look on it. She quivers some more, as the notes go up and up and up. Then she lets out a shriek like maybe she is going to pieces. And then she does, actually. Right before our popping eyeballs, she goes to pieces. As each one in the band sees what is going on, he stops playing, until finally Hotlips is the only one. But the trumpet is in Hotlips' hand, and the music is coming from the recording machine we place under his chair. The notes are clear and smooth, and you can almost feel the air shaking with them. But nobody notices the music, or where it's coming from. They are too busy watching the thrush, Stella Starlight. She stands there, her face as white as clay, shaking like a carrot going through a mixmaster. And then tiny cracks appear on her face, on her arms, even in her dress. And then a large one appears in her forehead and goes down through her body. She splits in the middle like a cracked walnut, and there in the center, floating three feet from the floor, is a small, flying cuspidor. Nobody in the room says anything. They just stand there, bug-eyed and frightened like anything. Somewhere across the room, a woman faints. I do not feel too well myself, and I am afraid to look to see how Hotlips takes this. There is no sound. But I hear a voice in my mind, and know that the others hear it too. The voice sounds like it is filled with wire and metal and is not exactly human. It says, You win, Hot Lips Grogan. I, as advanced agent in disguise, tell you this. We will go away and leave you and your people alone. We place a mental block in your mind, but you outsmart us, and now you know our weakness. We cannot stand high sounds which you can play so easy on your trumpet, we find ourselves a home someplace else. With that, the cuspidor shoots across the room and plows right through the wall. That's the engine room, Frankie wails. There is a sudden explosion from the other side of the wall, and everybody decides all at once they would like to be someplace else, and they all pick the same spot. The space ferry is pretty crowded, but we jam aboard it and drift away from the Saturn, musicians, waiters, and paying customers all sitting in each other's laps. The Saturn is wobbling around, with flames shooting out at all angles, and Frankie is holding his head and moaning. In the distance, you can just about make out little specks of cuspidors heading for the wild black yonder. So all is well that ends well. So all is well that ends well, and this is it. Frankie uses his insurance money to open a rest home on Mars for ailing musicians. Hotlips is all broken up, in a manner of speaking, over Stella Starlight's turning out to be not human, but he consoles himself with a good job playing trumpet in a burlesque house with the girls where costumes made of glass and other brittle stuff. As for me... Mamie gets me a job playing piano at the place where she works, and everything is okay except for one thing. When Mamie is around, I cannot seem to concentrate on my plan. I feel a funny feeling in my stomach, like maybe it's full of supersuds or something. 
and my mouth is dry like cotton candy. I think maybe it is indigestion. End of The Flying Cuspidors by V. R. Francis Invasion by Mary Leinster This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite Invasion by Mary Leinster It was August 19, 2037. The United Nations was just fifty years old. Televisors were still monochromatic. The Nitics had just won the World Series in Prague. Compub observers were publishing elaborate figures on moving specks in space which they considered to be Martian spaceships on their way to Earth, but which United Nations astronomers could not discover at all. Women were using gilt lipsticks that year. Heat induction motors were still considered efficient prime movers. Thorn Hard was a high-level flyer for the Pacific Watch. Athelitis was the most prominent of nationally advertised diseases and was to be cured by RO-17, the foundation of personal charm. Somebody named Nerdlinger was President of the United Nations and somebody else named Krasin was Commissar of Commissars for the Compubs. Newspapers were printing flat pictures in three colors only and deploring the high cost of stereoscopic plates. And Thorn Hard was a high-level flyer for the Pacific Watch. That is the essential point, of course, Thornhard's work with the watch. His job was officially hanging somewhere above the 20,000-foot level with his detector screens out, listening for unauthorized traffic, and the normal state of affairs between the compubs and the United Nations being one of highly armed truce, unauthorized traffic meant nothing more or less than spies. But on August 19, 2037, Thornhard was off-duty. Decidedly so. He was sitting on top of Mount Wendell in the Rockies. He had a ravishingly pretty girl sitting on the same rock with him, and he was looking at the sunset. The plane behind him was an official watch plane, which civilians are never supposed to catch a glimpse of. It had brought Thorn Hard and Sylvia West to this spot. It waited now, half hidden by a spur of age-eroded rock, to take them back to civilization again. It's G.C. General Communication Phone muttered occasionally like the voice of a conscience. The colors of the mountain changed and blended. The sky to westward was a glory of myriad colors. Man and girl high above the world sat with the rosy glow of dying sunlight in their faces and watched the colors fade and shift into other colors and patterns even more exquisite. Their hands touched. They looked at each other. They smiled queerly, as people smile who are in love or otherwise not quite sane. They moved inevitably closer. And then the G.C. phone barked raucously. Thorn hard stiffened all over. He got up and swung down to the stubby little ship with its gossamer-like wings of cellate and touched the report button. Plane 257A reporting 710 line. Thorn hard flying. On Mount Wendell. On leave. Orders? He was throwing on the screens even as he reported, and the vertical detector began to whistle shrilly. His eyes darted to the dial, and he spoke again. Added report. 
Detector shows traffic approaching bound due east, 700 miles an hour. High altitude. Correction. 65 miles. Correction. 600. He paused. Traffic is decelerating rapidly. I think, sir, this is the reported ship. And then there was a barely audible whining noise high in the air to the west. It grew in volume and changed in pitch. From a whine it became a scream. From a scream it rose to a shriek. Something monstrous and red glittered in the dying sunlight. It was huge. It was of no design ever known on Earth. Wings supported it, but they were obscured by the blasts of forward rockets checking its speed. It was dropping rapidly. Then lifting rockets spouted flame to keep it from too rapid a descent. It cleared a mountain peak by a bare two hundred feet, some two miles to the south. It was a hundred-odd feet in length. It was ungainly in shape, monstrous in conformation. Colossal rocket tubes behind it now barely trickled vaporous discharges. It cleared the mountaintop, went heavily on in a steep glide downward, and vanished behind a mountain flank. Presently the thin mountain air brought the echoed sound of its landing, of rapid-fire explosions of rocket tubes, and then silence. Thorn Hard was snapping swift staccato sentences into the report transmitter, describing the clumsy glittering monster, its motion, its wings, its method of propulsion. It seemed somehow familiar, despite its strangeness. He said so. Then a vivid blue flame licked all about the rim of the world and was gone. Simultaneously the G.C. speaker crashed explosively and went dead. Thorn went on grimly, switching in the spare. A very violent electrical discharge went out from it then. A, a blue light seemed to flash all around the horizon at no great distance, and my speaker blew out. I have turned on the spare. I do not know whether my sender is functioning. The spare speaker cut in abruptly at that moment. It is. Stay where you are and observe. A squadron is coming. Then the voice broke off, because a new sound was coming from the speaker. It was a voice that was unhuman and queerly horrible and somehow machine-like. Hoots and howls and whistles came from the speaker. Wailing sounds. Ghostly noises devoid of consonants but broadcast on a wavelength close to the G.C. band and therefore produced by intelligence, though unintelligible. The unhuman hoots and wails and whistles came through for nearly a minute and stopped. Stay on duty, snapped the G.C. speaker. That's no language known on Earth. Those are Martians. Thorn looked up to see Sylvia standing by the watchplane door. Her face was pale in the growing darkness outside. Beginning duty, sir, said Thorn steadily. I report that I have with me Miss Sylvia West, my fiancé, in violation of regulations. I ask that her family be notified. He snapped off the lights and went with her. The red rocket ship had landed in the very next valley. There was a glare there which wavered and flickered and died away. Martians, said Thorne in fine irony. We'll see when the watchplanes come. My guess is compubs using a searchlight. Nervy. The glare vanished. There was only silence, a curiously complete and deadly silence, and Thorne said suddenly, There's no wind. There was not, not a breath of air. The mountains were uncannily quiet. The air was impossibly still for a mountaintop. Ten minutes went by. Twenty. The detector whistles shrilled. There's the watch, said Thorn in satisfaction. Now we'll see. And then, abruptly, there was a lurid flash in the sky to northward, two thousand feet up and a mile away. The unearthly green blaze of a hexynitrate explosion lit the whole earth with unbearable brilliance. 
Stop your ears! snapped Thorn. The racking concussion wave of hexynitrate will break human eardrums at an incredible distance. But no sound came, though the seconds went by. Then two miles away there was a second gigantic flash, then a third. But there was no sound at all. The quiet of the hills remained unbroken, though Thorn knew that such cataclysmic detonations should be audible at twenty miles or more. Then lights flashed on above, two, three, six of them. They wavered all about, darting here and there. Then one of the flying searchlights vanished utterly and a fourth terrific flash of green. The watch-planes are going up, said Thorn dazedly, blowing up, and we can't hear the explosions. Behind him the G.C. speaker barked his call. He raced to get its message. The watch-planes we sent to join you, said a curt voice he recognized as that of the commanding general of the United Nations, have located an invisible barrier by their sonic altimeters. Four of them seem to have rammed it and exploded without destroying it. What have you to report? I've seen the flashes, sir, said Thorn unsteadily, but they made no noise, and there's no wind, sir, not a breath since the blue flash I reported. A pause. Your statement bears out their report, said the G.C. speaker harshly. The barrier seems to be hemispherical. No such barrier is known on Earth. These must be Martians, as the Compubs said. You will wait until morning and try to make peaceful contact with them. This barrier may be merely a precaution on their part. You will try to convince them that we wish to be friendly." "'I don't believe they're Martians, sir.' Sylvia came racing to the door of the plane. "'Thorn! Something's coming! I hear it droning!' Thorn himself heard a dull droning noise in the air coming toward him. "'Occupants of the rocket ship, sir,' he said grimly, seem to be approaching. "'Orders?' "'Evacuate the ship,' snapped the G.C. phone. Let them examine it. They will understand how we communicate and prepare to receive and exchange messages. If they seem friendly, make contact at once.' Thorn made swift certain movements and dived for the door. He seized Sylvia and fled for the darkness below the plane. He was taking a desperate risk of falling down the mountain slopes. The droning drew near. It passed directly overhead. Then there was a flash and a deafening report. A beam of light appeared aloft. It searched for and found Thorn's plane, now a wreck. Flash after flash and explosion after explosion followed. They stopped. Their echoes rolled and reverberated among the hills. There was a hollow, tremendous intensification of the echoes aloft, as if a dome of some solid substance had reflected back the sound. Slowly the rollings died away. Then a voice boomed through a speaker overhead, and despite his suspicions Thorn felt a queer surprise. It was a human voice, a man's voice, full of horrible amusement. Tornhard! Tornhard! Where are you? Thorn did not move or reply. If I have not killed you, you hear me?" the voice chuckled. Come see me, Tornhard. Der dome of force is big, yes, but you can no more get out than your friends can get in. And now I have destroyed your phone, so you can no longer chat with them. Come and see me, Tornhard, so I will not be bored. We will discuss their compubs, and bring their lady friend. You may play their chaperone. The voice laughed. It was not a pleasant laughter. And the humming drone in the air rose and dwindled. It moved away from the mountaintop. It lessened and lessened until it was inaudible. Then there was dead silence again. By his accent he's a Baltic Russian, said Thorn grimly in the darkness. 
which means compubs, not Martians, though we're the only people who realize it, and they're starting a war, and we, Sylvia, must warn our people. How are we going to do it? She pressed his hand confidently, but it did not look promising. Thorn Hard was on foot, without a transmitter, armed only with his belt weapons and with a girl to look after, and moreover imprisoned in a colossal dome of force which hexynitrate had failed to crack. It was August 20th, 2037. There was a triple murder in Paris which was rumored to be the work of a compub spy, though the murderer's unquestionably Gaelic touches made the rumors dubious. Newspaper vendor units were screaming raucously, Martians land in Colorado! and the newspapers themselves printed colored photos of hastily improvised models in their accounts of the landing of a blood-red rocket ship in the widest part of the Rockies. The intercontinental tennis matches reached their semi-finals in Havana, Cuba. Thorn Hard had not reported to watch headquarters in twelve hours. Quadruplets were born in Des Moines, Iowa. Crassen, commissar of the commissars of the compubs, made a diplomatic inquiry about the rumors that a Martian spaceship had landed in North America. He asked that compub scientists be permitted to join in the questioning and examination of the Martian visitors. The most famous European screen actress landed from the morning transatlantic plane with her hair dyed a light lavender, and beauty shops throughout the country placed rush orders for dye to take care of the demand for lavender hair which would begin by mid-afternoon. The heavyweight champion of the United Nations was warned that his title would be forfeited if he further dodged a fight with his most promising contender and Thorn Hard had not reported to watch headquarters in twelve hours. He was, as a matter of fact, cautiously parting some bushes to peer past a mountain flank at the red rocket ship. Sylvia West lay on the ground behind him, both of them weary to the point of exhaustion. They had started their descent from Mount Wendell at the first gray streak of dawn in the east. They had toiled painfully across the broken country between to this point of vantage. Now Thorn looked down upon the rocket ship. It lay a little askew upon the ground, seeming to be partly buried in the earth. A hundred feet and more in length, it was even more obviously a monstrosity as he looked at it in the bright light of day. But now it was not alone. Beside it was a white tower, reared upward, pure white and glistening in the sunshine. A bulging, uneven shaft rose a hundred feet sheer. It looked as solid as marble. Its purpose was unguessable. There was a huge fan-shaped space where the vegetation about the rocket ship was colored a vivid red. In air photos, the rocket ship would look remarkably like something from another planet. But nearby, Thorn could see a lazy trickle of fuel fumes from a port pipe on one side of the monster. That tower is nothing but cellate foam, which hardens. And Sylvia, see? She came cautiously through the brushwood and looked down. She shivered a little. From here they could see beneath the bows of the rocket ship, and there was a name there, in the Cyrillic alphabet, which was the official written language of the compubs. Here on United Nations soil it was insolent. It boasted that the red ship came not from an alien planet, but from a nation more alien still to all the United Nations stood for. The compubs, the Union of Communist Republics, were neither communistic nor republics, but they were much more dangerous to the United Nations than any mere Martians would have been. We'll have some heavy ships here to investigate soon, said Thorn grimly. Then I'll signal. He flung back his head. High up and far away, beyond that invisible barrier against which watch-planes had flung themselves in vain, there were tiny motes in mid-air. 
These were watch-planes, too, hovering outside the obstacle they could not see, but which even hexynitrate bombs could not break through. And very far away, indeed, there was a swiftly moving dark cloud. As Thorne watched, that cloud drew close, and his eyes glowed. It resolved itself into its component specks. Small, two-man patrol scouts. Larger, ten-man cruisers of the air. Huge, massive dreadnoughts of the blue. A complete combat squadron of the United Nations Flying Forces was sweeping to position about the dome of force above the rocket ship. The scouts swept forward in tiny, whirling clouds. They sheared away from something invisible. One of them dropped a smoking object. It emitted a vast cloud of paper which the wind caught and swept away and suddenly wrapped about a definite section of an arc. More and more of the tiny smoke bombs released their masses of cloud-like stuff. In mid-air a dome began to take form, outlined by the trailing streaks of gray. It began to be more definitely traced by interlinings. An aerial lattice spread about a portion of a six-mile hemisphere. The top was fifteen thousand feet above the rocket ship, twenty-five thousand feet from sea level as high as Mount Everest itself. Tiny moats hovered even there, where the smallest of visible specks was a ten-man cruiser. And one of the biggest of the aircraft came gingerly up to the very inner edge of the latticework of fog and hung motionless, holding itself aloft by powerful helicopter screws. Men were working from a trailing stage. Scientists examining the barrier even hexynitrate would not break down. Thorn set to work. He had come toilsomely to the neighborhood of the rocket ship because he would have to do visual signaling, and there was no time to lose. The dome of force was transparent. The air fleet would be trying to communicate through it with the Martians they believed were in the rocket ship. Sunlight reflected from a polished canteen would attract attention instantly from a spot near the red monster, while elsewhere it might not be observed for a long time. But trying every radio waveband and every system of visual signaling and watching and testing for a reply, Thorne's signal ought to be picked up instantly. He handed his pocket speechlight receptor to Sylvia. It is standard equipment for all flying personnel, so they may receive non-broadcast orders from flight leaders. He pointed to a ten-man cruiser from which shone the queer electric blue glow of a speechlight. Listen in on that, he commanded. I'm going to call them. Tell me when they answer. He began to flash dots and dashes in that quaintly archaic telegraph alphabet watch-flyers are still required to learn. It was the watch-code call, sent over and over again. "'They're trying to make the Martians understand,' said Sylvia, unsteadily, with the speech-like receiver at her ear. Flash, 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 Thorne kept on grimly. The canteen-top was slightly convex, so the sunlight beam would be spread. Accuracy was not needed, therefore. He covered and uncovered it, and covered and uncovered it. They answered, said Sylvia eagerly. They said, Thorn Hard, report at once. There was a hissing, roaring noise over the hillside where the red rocket ship lay. Thorn paid no attention. He began to spell out in grim satisfaction, Rocket ship is... Look out, gasped Sylvia. They say look out, Thorn. Then she screamed. As Thorne swung his head around, he saw a dense mass of white vapor rushing over the hillside toward them. He picked Sylvia up in his arms and ran madly. The white vapor tugged at his knees. It was a variation of the vortex stream. He fought his way savagely toward higher ground. The white vapor reached his waist. It reached his shoulders. He slung Sylvia upon his shoulder and fought more madly still to get out of the wide white current. It submerged him in its stinging, bitter flood. 
As he felt himself collapsing, his last conscious thought was the bitter realization that the bulbous white tower had upheld television lenses at its top, which had watched his approach and inspection of the rocket ship, and had enabled those in the red monster to accurately direct their spurt of gas. His next sensation was that of pain in his lungs. Something that smarted intolerably was being forced into his nostrils, and he battled against the agony it produced. And then he heard someone chuckle amusedly, and felt the curious furry sensation of electric anesthesia beginning. When he came to himself again, a machine was clicking erratically, and there was the soft whine of machinery going somewhere. He opened his eyes and saw red all about him. He stirred, and he was free. Painfully he sat up and blinked about him with streaming gas-irritated eyes. He had been lying on a couch. He was in a room, perhaps fifteen feet by twenty, of which the floor was slightly off-level. And everything in the room was red. Floor and walls and ceiling, the couch he had lain on, and the furniture itself. There was a monstrous bulk of a man sitting comfortably in a chair on the other side of the room, pecking at a device resembling a writing machine. Thorn sat still for an instant, gaining strength. Then he flung himself desperately across the room, his fingers curved into talons, five feet, ten, with the slant of the floor giving him added impetus. Then his muscles tightened convulsively. A wave of pure agony went through his body. He dropped and lay writhing on the floor while the high-frequency currents of an induction screen had their way with him. He was doubled into a knot by his muscles responding to the electric stimulus instead of his will. Sheer anguish twisted him and the room filled with a hearty bellow of laughter. The monstrous whiskered man had turned about and was shaking with merriment. He picked up a pocket gun from beside him and turned off a switch at his elbow. Thorn's muscles were freed. "'Go back, my friend,' boomed the same voice that had come from a speaker the night before. "'Go to der couch. You amuse me, and you have already been useful, but I have no hesitation in killing you. You are torn hard. My name is Kreinborg. How do you do?" "'Where's my friend?' demanded Thorn savagely. "'Where is she?' "'Der lady friend?' "'Der.' The whiskered man pointed negligently with the pocket-gun. "'I gave her a bunk to slumberin.' There was a niche in the wall which Thorn had not seen. Sylvia was there, sleeping the same heavy, dreamless sleep from which Thorn himself had just awakened. He went to her swiftly. She was breathing naturally, though tears from the irritating gas still streaked her face, and her skin seemed to be pinkened a little from the same cause. Thorn swung around. His weapons were gone, of course. The huge man snapped on the induction screen switch again and put down his weapon. With that screen separating the room into two halves, no living thing would cross it without either such muscular paralysis as Thorn had just experienced, or death. Coils in the floor induced alternating currents in the flesh itself, very like those currents used for supposed medical effects in the medical batteries and shockers. "'Be calm,' said Craneborg, chuckling. "'I am pleased to have company. This is their loneliest spot in the Arukis. It was chosen for that reason. But I shall be here for maybe months, and now I shall not be lonely. We of their compubs have scientific resources such as your fools have never dreamt of. But there is no scientific substitute for a pretty woman." He turned again to the writing device. It clicked half a dozen times more, and he stopped. A strip of paper came out of it. 
He inserted it into the slot of another mechanism and switched on a standard GC phone as the paper began to feed. In seconds the room was filled with unearthly hoots and wails and whistles. They came from the device into which the paper was feeding, and they poured into the GC transmitter. They went on for nearly a minute and ceased. Craneborg shut off the transmitter. My code, he observed comfortably, giving their good news to Stalingrad. Everything is going along beautifully. I roused their fair Sylvia and kissed her a few times to make her scream into a record, and I interpolated her screamings into their last code transmission. Your wise men think their Martian have vivisected her. They are concentrating their entire fighting force of their United Nations outside their dome of force, and all for a few kisses. Thorn was white with rage. His eyes burned with a terrible fury. His hands shook. Kringborg chuckled again. Oh, she is unharmed, so far. I have not much time now. Presently der two of you will while away their time, but not now. He switched on the GC receiver, and the room filled with a multitude of messages. Thorn sat beside Sylvia, watching, 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 while invisible machinery whined softly, and Craneborg listened intently to the crisp, curt official reports that came through on the fighting force band. Three combat squadrons were on the spot now, one, three, and eight. Four more were coming at fast cruising speed, four hundred miles an hour. One combat squadron of the whole fleet alone would be left to cope with all other emergencies that might arise. A television screen lighted up, and Thorn could see where the lenses on the bulbous tower showed the air all about filled with fighting planes, hovering about the dome of force like moths beating their wings against a screen. The strongest fighting force in the world, helpless against a field of electrical energy. It is amusing, chuckled Craneborg, looking at the screen complacently. Der Dome of Force is new invention. It is heterodyning of one frequency upon another at predetermined distance. It has all the properties of matter except mass and limit of strength. There is no limit to its strength, but it cannot be made except in sphere. So at first it seemed only defensive weapon. With it we could defy their United Nations to attack us. But we wish to do more. So I propose plan, and I have their honor of carrying it out. If I fail, Krasan disavows me. But I shall not fail, and I shall end as commissar for their continent of North America. He looked wisely at Thorn, who sat motionless. You keep quiet, eh? And wait for me to say something indiscreet? Very well. I tell you. We are in sort of a goldfish globe of electric force. Your air fleet cannot break in. You know that. Also, if they were in, they could not break out again. So I wait, very patiently, pretending to be Martian, until all your fighting force has gathered around in readiness to fight me. But I shall not fight. I shall simply make do and larger goldfish globe outside of this one, and then I go out and make faces at their fighting force of their united nations, imprisoned between their two of them, and then their compub fleet comes in. He stood up and put his hand on a doorknob. 
Is it not pretty? he asked blandly. In two weeks their air fleet will begin to starve. In three there will be cannibalism. Unless their compubs accept their surrender. Imagine, he laughed. But do not fear, my friend. I have provisions for a year. If you are amusing, I feed you. In any case, I exchange food for kisses with their charming Sylvia. It will be amusing to change her from woman who screams as I kiss her to one who weeps for joy. If I do not have to kill you, you shall witness it. He vanished through a doorway on the farther side of the room. Instantly Thorn was on his feet. The dead slumber in which Sylvia was sunk was wholly familiar. Electric anesthesia, used not only for surgery but to enforce complete rest at any chosen moment. He dragged her from that couch to his own. He saw her stir, and her eyes were instantly wide with terror. But Thorn was tearing the couch to pieces. Cover. Pneumatic mattress. He ripped out a loosely fitting frame piece of steel. Quick now, he said in a low voice. I'm going to short the induction screen. We'll get across it. Then, out the door. She struggled to her feet, terrified, but instantly game. Thord slid the rod of metal across the stretch of flooring he had previously been unable to cross. The induced currents in the rod amounted to a short circuit of the field. The rod grew hot, and its paint blistered smokily. Thorn leaped across with Sylvia in his wake. He pointed to the door, and she fled through it. He seized a chair, crashed it frenziedly into the television screen, and had switched on the G.C. phone when there was a roar of fury from Craneborg. Instantly there was the splitting sound of a pocket gun, and in the red room the racking crash of a hexynitrate pellet. Nothing can stand the instant crash of hexynitrate. Its concussion wave is a single pulsation of the air. The cellate diaphragm of the G.C. transmitter tore across from its violence, and Thorn cursed bitterly. There was no way now of signaling. A second racking crash as the second pellet flashed its tiny green flame. Craneborg was using a pocket gun, one of those small, terrible weapons which shoot a projectile barely larger than the graphite of a lead pencil, but loaded with a fraction of a milligram of hexynitrate. Two hundred charges would feed automatically into the bore as the trigger was pressed. Thorn gazed desperately about for weapons. There was nothing in sight. To gain the outside world he had to pass before the doorway through which the bullets had come. And suddenly Thorn seized the code-writer and the device which transmitted that code as a series of unearthly noises which the world was taking for Martian speech. He swung the two machines before the door in a temporary barrier. Whatever else Craneborg might be willing to destroy, he would not shoot into them. Thorn leaped madly past the door as Craneborg roared with rage again. He paused only to hurl a chair at the two essential machines, and as they dented and toppled he fled through the door and away. Sylvia peered anxiously at him from behind a huge boulder. He raced toward her, expecting every second to hear the spitting of Craneborg's pocket gun. With the continuous fire stud down, the little gun would shoot itself empty in forty-five seconds, during which time Craneborg could play it upon him like a hose that spouted death. But Thorn had done the hundred yards in eleven seconds years before. He bettered his record now. The first of the little green flashes came when he was no more than ten yards from the boulder which sheltered Sylvia. The tiny pellet had missed him by inches. Three more, and he was safe from pursuit. "'But we've got to get away!' he panted. 
He can shoot gas here and get us again. He can cover four hundred yards with gas and more than that with guns. They fled down a tiny watercourse, midget figures in an infinity of earth and sky, scurrying frenziedly from a red slug-like thing that lay askew in a mountain valley. Far away and high above hung the warplanes of the United Nations big ones and little ones hovering in hundreds about the outside of the dome of force they could neither penetrate nor understand. A quarter of a mile, a half a mile. There was no sign from Craneborg or the rocket ship. Thorn panted. He can't reach us with gas now, and it looks like he doesn't dare use a gun. They'd know he wasn't a Martian. At night he'll use that helicopter, though. If we can only make those ships see us. They toiled on. The sun was already slanting down toward the western sky. At four, by the sun, Thorn could point to a huge air dreadnought hanging by lazily revolving gyros barely two miles away. He waved wildly, frantically, but the big ship drifted on, unseeing. The fighting force was no longer looking for Thorn and Sylvia. They had been carried into the rocket ship fourteen hours and more before. Sylvia's screaming had been broadcast with the weird hoots and whistles the United Nations believed to be the language of interplanetary invaders. The United Nations believed them dead. Now a watch was being kept on the rocket ship, to be sure, but it was becoming a matter-of-fact sort of vigilance pending the arrival of the rest of the fighting force and the cracking of the dome of force by the scientists who worked on it night and day. On level ground, Thorn and Sylvia would have reached the edge of the dome in an hour. Here they had to climb up steep hillsides and down precipitous slopes. Four times they halted to make frantic efforts to attract the attention of some nearby ship. It was six when they came upon the rim. There was no indication of its existence save that three hundred yards from them boughs waved and leaves quivered in a breeze. Inside the dome the air was utterly still. "'There it is,' panted Thorn. Wearied and worn out as they were, they hurried forward, and abruptly there was something which impeded their movements. They could reach their hands into the impalpable barrier, for one foot, two, or even three, but an intolerable pressure thrust them back. Thorn seized a sapling and ran at the barrier as if with a spear. It went five feet into the invisible resistance and stopped, shot back out as if flung back by a jet of compressed air. He told the truth groaned Thorn. We can't get out. Long shadows were already reaching out from the mountains. Darkness began to creep upward among the valleys. Far, far away a compact dark cloud appeared, a combat squadron. It swept toward the dome and disassociated into a myriad specks which were aircraft. The flyers already swirling about the invisible dome drew aside to leave a quadrant clear and Combat Squadron Seven merged with the rest, making the pattern of dancing specks markedly denser. "'With a fire,' said Thorn desperately. "'They'll come, of course, but Craneborg took my lighter.' Sylvia said hopefully, "'Don't you know some way, rubbing sticks together?' "'I don't,' admitted Thorn grimly. "'But I've got to try to invent one. While I'm at it, you watch for flyers.' He searched for dry wood. He rubbed sticks together. They grew warm, but not enough to smoke, much less to catch. He muttered, A drill. That's the idea. All the friction in one spot. He tugged at the ring under his lapel, and a parachute fastened into his uniform collar shot out in a billowing mass of gossamer silk, flung out by the powerful elastics designed to make its opening certain. Savagely he tore at the shrouds and had a stout cord. 
He made a drill and revolved it as fast as he could with the cord. A second dark cloud swept forward in the gathering dusk and merged into the mass of flyers about the dome. Five minutes later, a third. Dense as the air traffic was, riding lights were necessary. They began to appear in the deepening twilight. It seemed as if all the sky were alight with fireflies, whirling and swirling and fluttering here and there. But then the fire drill began to emit a tiny wisp of smoke. Thorn worked furiously. Then a tiny flickering flame appeared, which he nursed with a desperate solicitude. Then a larger flame. Then a roaring blaze. It could not be missed. A fire within the dome could not fail to be noted and examined instantly. A searchlight beam fell upon them, illuminating him in a pitiless glare. Thorn waved his arms frantically. He had nothing with which to signal save his body. He flung his arms wide and up and wide again in an improvised adaptation of the telegraphic alphabet to gesticulation. He sent the watch call over and over again. A little cloud of riding lights swept toward Dome from an infinite distance away. Darkness was falling so swiftly that they were still merely specks of light as they swept up to and seemed to melt into the swirling, swooping mass of flyers about the dome. Cold sweat was standing out on Thorn's face. Despite the violence of his exertions he was even praying a little, and suddenly the searchlight beam flickered a welcome answer. We understand report. Thorn flung his arms about madly, sending, Get away quick. Com pubs here. We'll make other dome outside to trap you. The searchlight beam upon him flickered an acknowledgment. He knew what was happening after that. The GC phones would flash the warning to every ship, and every ship would dash madly for safety. A sudden concerted quiver seemed to go over the whirling maze of lights aloft, a swift simultaneous movement of every ship in flight. Thorn breathed an agonized prayer. There was a flash of blue light. For one fractional part of a second the stars and skies were blotted out. There was a dome of flame above him and all about the world of bright blue flame which instantly was and instantly was not. Then there was a ghastly blast of green hexynitrate going off. In this glare were silhouetted a myriad motes in flight, but there was no noise. A second flare, and then Thorn Hard, groaning, saw flash after flash after flash of green. Monster explosions, colossal explosions, terrific detonations which were utterly soundless as the ships of the fighting force in flight from the menace of which Thorn had warned them crashed into an invisible barrier and exploded without cracking it. It was August 24th, 2037. For three days now, seven of the eight great combat squadrons of the United Nations Fighting Forces had been prisoners inside a monstrous transparent dome of force. There was a financial panic of unprecedented proportions in the great financial districts of New York and London and Paris. Martial law was in force in Chicago, in Prague, in Madrid, and in Buenos Aires. The compubs were preparing an ultimatum to be delivered to the government of the United Nations. Thorn and Sylvia were hunted fugitives within the inner dome of force which protected the red rocket ship from the seven combat squadrons it had imprisoned. Newspaper vendor units were shrieking, Air fleet still trapped! 
and a prominent American politician was promising his constituents that if a foreign nation dared invade the sacred territories of the United Nations, a million embattled private planes would take to the air. And he seemed not to be trying to be humorous. Scientists were wringing their hands in utter helplessness before the incredible resistance of the dome. It had been determined that the dome was a force field which caused particles charged with positive electricity to attempt to move in a right-hand direction about the source of the field, and particles charged with negative electricity to attempt to move in a left-handed direction. The result was that any effort to thrust an external object into the field of force was an attempt to tear the negatively charged electrons of every atom of that substance free from the positively charged protons of nuclei. An object could only be passed through the field of force if it ceased to exist as matter, which was not an especially helpful discovery. And Thornhart and Sylvia were still hunted fugitives inside the inner dome. The sun was an hour high when the helicopter appeared to hunt for them by day. After the first time they had never dared light a fire, because Kreinborg and the helicopter searched the hills for a glow of light. But this day he came searching for them by day. Thorn had speared a fish for Sylvia with a stick he had sharpened by rubbing it on a crumbling rock. He was working discouragedly on a little contrivance made out of a forked stick and the elastic from his parachute pack. He was haggard and worn and desperate. Sylvia was beginning to look like a hunted wild thing. Two hundred yards from them the most formidable fighting force the world had ever seen littered the earth with gossamer-seeming cellate wings and streamlined bodies at all angles to each other and it was completely useless. The least of the weapons of the air fleet would have been a godsend to Thorn and Sylvia. To have had one ship, even the smallest where they were, would have been a godsend to the fleet. But two hundred yards with the dome of force between made the fleet just exactly as much protection for Sylvia as if it had been a million miles away. The droning hum of the helicopter came across the broken ground, now louder, now momentarily muted. Its moments of loudness grew steadily more strong. It was coming nearer. Thorn gripped his spear in an instinctive, utterly futile gesture of defense. Sylvia touched his hand. We'd better hide. They hid. Thick brush concealed them utterly. The helicopter went slowly overhead, and they saw Craneborg gazing down at the earth below him. Nearly overhead he paused, and suddenly Thorn groaned under his breath. It's the flagship! he whispered hoarsely to Sylvia. Oh, what fools we were, the flagship! He knows the general would have brought it to earth opposite us, to question us! The flagship was nearly opposite. To find the flagship was more or less to find where Thorn and Sylvia hid, but they had not realized it until now. The speaker in the helicopter boomed above their heads. Ah, uh, my friends, I think you hear me. Answer me. I have offer to make. Shivering, Sylvia pressed close to Thorn. Their compub fleet is on their way, said Craneborg, chuckling. Seven-eighths of their United Nations fleet is just outside. You have observed it. In six hours their compub fleet begins their conquest of their country and their execution of persons most antagonistic to our regime. But I have still weary weeks of keeping their air fleet prisoner until its personnel is too weak from starvation to offer resistance to our soldiers. So I make their offer. Come and while away their weary hours for me. 
and I accept you both from their executions. I shall find it necessary to decree. Refuse, and I get you anyhow, and you will regret your refusal very much. Thorn's teeth ground together. Sylvia pressed close to him. Don't let them get me, Thorn, she panted hysterically. Don't let him get me. The droning, monotonous hum of the helicopter over their heads continued. The little flying machine was motionless. The air was still. There was no other sound in the world. Silence, save for the droning hum of the helicopter, then something dropped. It went off with an inadequate sort of explosion, and a cloud of misty white vapor reared upward on a hillside and began to settle slowly, spreading out. The helicopter moved, and other things dropped, making a pattern. The air's still, said Thorn quite grimly. That stuff seems to be heavier than air. It's flowing downhill, toward the dome wall. It will be here in five minutes. We've got to move. Sylvia seemed to be stricken with terror. He helped her to her feet. They began to move toward higher ground. They moved with infinite caution. In the utter silence of this inner dome, even the rustling of a leaf might betray them. It was the presence of the air fleet within clear view that made the thing so horrible. The defenders of a nation were watching the enemy of a nation, and they were helpless to offer battle. The helicopter hummed and droned, and Craneboard grinned and searched the earth below him for a sign of the man and girl who had been the only danger to his plan, and now were unarmed fugitives. And there were four air dreadnoughts in plain sight, and five thousand men watching. And Craneborg hunted, for sport, a comrade of the five thousand men, and a woman every one of them would have risked or sacrificed his life to protect. He seemed certain that they were below him. Presently he dropped another gas-bomb, and another, and then Sylvia stumbled and caught at something, and there was a crashing sound as a sapling wavered in her grasp. And Thorn picked her up and fled madly, but billowing white vapor spouted upward before him. He dodged it, and the helicopter was just overhead, and more smoke spouted, and more, and more. They were hemmed in, and Sylvia clung close to Thorn and sobbed. Five thousand men in a thousand grounded aircraft shouted curses that made no sound. They waved weapons that were utterly futile. They were as impotent as so many ghosts. Their voices made not even the half-heard whisper one may attribute to a phantom. The fog vapor closed over Thorn and Sylvia as Craneborg grinned mockingly at the raging men without the dome of force. He swept the helicopter to a position above the last view of Thorn and Sylvia, and the downward-beating screws swept away the foggy gas. Thorn and Sylvia lay motionless, though Thorn had instinctively placed himself in a position of defense above her. The fighting force of the United Nations watched, raging while Craneborg descended deliberately into the area the helicopter screws kept clear. While he searched Thorn's pockets reflectively and found nothing more deadly than small pebbles which might strike sparks and a small forked stick, while he grinned mockingly at the raging armed men and made triumphant gesticulations before carrying Sylvia's limp figure to the helicopter, while the little ship rose and swept away toward the rocket plane. It descended and was lost to view. Thorn lay motionless on the earth. Seven-eighths of the fighting force of the United Nations was imprisoned within the space between two domes of force no matter could penetrate. A ring two miles across and ten miles in outer diameter held the whole fleet of the United Nations paralyzed. There was sheer panic throughout the Americas and Europe and the few outlying possessions of the United Nations. 
and it was at this time, with a great fleet already halfway across the Pacific, that the Compubs declared war in a fine gesture of ironic politeness. It was within half an hour of this time that the Seventh Combat Squadron, the only one left unimprisoned, dived down from fifty thousand feet into the middle of the Compub fleet and went out of existence in twenty minutes of such carnage as is still stuff for epics. The Seventh Squadron died, but with it died not less than three times as many of the foe. And then the Compub fleet came on. Most of the original force remained surely enough to devastate an undefended nation, to shatter its cities and butcher its people, to slaughter its men and enslave its women, and leave a shambles and smoking ash-heaps where the very backbone of resistance to the red flag had been. It was twenty minutes before Thorn Hard stirred. His lungs seemed on fire, his limbs seemed lead. His head reeled and rocked. He staggered to his feet and stood there swaying dully. A vivid light, brighter than the sunshine, played upon him from the flagship of the fleet which now was helpless to defend its nation. Thorn's befogged brain stirred dazedly as the message came. Compub fleet on way. Seventh Combat Squadron wiped out. Nation defenseless. You are only hope. For God's sake, try something. Anything. Thorn roused himself by a terrific effort. He managed to ask a question by exhausted gestures in the watch visual alphabet. Craneborg took her to rocket ship, came the answer. She recovered consciousness before being carried inside. And Thorn, reeling on his feet and unarmed and alone, turned and went staggering up a hillside toward the rocket ship's position. He could only expect to be killed. He could not even hope for anything more than to ensure that Sylvia also die mercifully. Behind him he left an unarmed nation awaiting devastation, with a mighty air-fleet speeding toward it at six hundred miles an hour. As he went, though, some strength came to him. The fury of his toil forced him to breathe deeply, cleansing his lungs of the stupefying gas which, because it was visible as a vapor, had been carried in the rocket-ship. A visible gas was, of course, more consistent with the early pretense that the rocket-ship bore invaders from another planet and Thorn became drenched with sweat, which aided in the excretion of the poisonous stuff. His brain cleared, and he recognized despair and discounted it, and began to plan grimly to make the most of an infinitesimal chance. The chance was simply that Craneborg had ransacked his pockets and ignored a little forked stick. Scrambling up a steep hillside with his face hardened into granite, Thorn drew that from his pocket again. Crossing a hilltop, he stripped off his coat. He traveled at the highest speed he could maintain, though it seemed painfully deliberate. An hour after he had started, he was picking up small round pebbles wherever he saw them in his path. By the time the tall bulbous tower was in sight, he had picked up probably sixty such pebbles, but no more than ten of them remained in his pockets. They, though, were smooth and round, and even perhaps an inch in diameter, and all very nearly the same size and he carried a club in his hand. He went down the last slope openly. The television lenses on the tower would have picked him out in any case if Craneborg had repaired the screen. He went boldly up to the rocket ship. Craneborg, he called. Craneborg! He felt himself being surveyed. A door came open. Craneborg stood chuckling at him with a pocket gun in his hand. Ha! Just in time, my friend. I have been very busy. Their Kampub fleet is just due to pass and refuel above their welcoming United Nations combat squadrons. 
I have been giving them last-minute information and assurance that their domes of force are solid and can hold forever. I have a few minutes to spare, which I had intended to default to their fair Sylvia. But what do you wish? I'm offering you a bribe, said Thorn, his face a mask. A billion dollars and immunity to cut off the outer dome of force. Craneborg grinned at him. It is too late. Besides being traitor, I would be assassinated instantly. Also, I shall be commissar for North America anyhow. Two billion, said Thorn without expression. No, said Craneborg amusedly. Throw away their club. I shall amuse myself with you, Thornhart. You shall watch their progress of romance between me and Sylvia. Throw away their club. The pocket gun came up. Thorn threw away the club. What do you want if two billion's not enough? Amusement, said Craneborg jovially. I shall be bored in this inner dome waiting for their air fleet to starve. I wish amusement, and I shall get it. Come inside. He backed away from the door, his gun trained on Thorn, and Thorn saw that the continuous fire stud was down. He walked composedly into the red room in which he had once awakened. Sylvia gave a little choked cry at the sight of him. She was standing desperately defiant on the other side of the induction screen area on the floor. There was a scorched place on the floor where Thorn had shorted that screen and the bar of metal had grown red-hot. Craneborg threw the switch and motioned Thorn to her. I do not bother to search you for weapons, he said dryly. I did it so short a time ago, and you had only club. Thorn walked stiffly beside Sylvia. She put out a shaking hand and touched him. Craneborg threw the switch back again. The screen is on, he chuckled. Console each other, children. I am glad you came, Thornhart. We watched their grand review of their Kampub fleet. Then I turn little infention of mine upon you. It is heat-ray of very limited range. It will be my method of wooing their fair Sylvia. When she sees you in torment, she kisses me sweetly for their privilege of stopping their heat-ray. I count upon you, my friend, to plead with her to grant me their most extravagant of concessions. When their heat-ray is searing their flesh from your bones, I feel that she is soft-hearted enough to oblige you. Yes? He touched a button and the repaired television screen lighted up. All the dome of mountains and sky was visible in it. There were dancing motes in sight, which were aircraft. I have removed all metal work from that side of their room, added Craneborg comfortably, so I can dare to turn my back. You cannot short their induction screen again. That was clever, but you face scientist, Thornhart. You have lost. A sudden surge of flying craft appeared on the television screen. The grounded fleet of the United Nations was taking to the air again. In the narrow two-mile strip between the two domes of force it swirled up and up. Craneborg frowned. Now what is their idea of that? he demanded. He moved closer to the screen. The pocket gun was left behind, five feet from his fingertips. Tornhart, you will explain it. They hope, said Thorn grimly, your fleet can make gaps in the dome to shoot through. 
If so, they'll go out through those gaps and fight. Foolish, said Kreinborg blandly. Their only weapon we have to use is their normal metabolism of their human system. Hunger. Thorn reached into his pocket. Kreinborg was regarding the screen absorbedly. Through the haze of flying dots which was the United Nations fleet, a darkening spot to westward became visible. It drew nearer and grew larger. It was dense. It was huge. It was deadly. It was the Compub battle fleet, nearly equal to the imprisoned ships in number. It swept up to view its helpless enemy. It came close, so every man could see their only possible antagonists rendered impotent. Such a maneuver was really necessary when you think of it. The Compub fleet had encountered one combat squadron of the United Nations fleet, and that one squadron, dying, had carried down three times its number of enemies. It was necessary to show the Compub personnel the rest of their enemies imprisoned in order to hearten them for the butchery of civilians before them. Craneborg guffawed as the Compub fleet made its mocking circuit of the invisible dome, and Thorn raised his head. Craneborg, he said grimly, look. There was something in his tone which made Craneborg turn, and Thorn held a little forked stick in his hand. Turn off the induction screen, or I kill you. Craneborg looked at him and chuckled. It is bluff, my friend, he said dryly. I have seen many weapons. I am scientist. You play their game of poker. You try bluff. But I answer you with their heat ray. He moved his great bulk, and Thorn released his left hand. There was a sudden crack on Craneborg's side of the room. A pebble a little over an inch in diameter fell to the floor. Craneborg wavered and toppled and fell. Three times more, his face merciless, Thorn drew back his arm, and three times Craneborg's head jerked slightly. Then Thorn faced the panel on which the induction screen switch was placed. Several times he thrust his hand through the screen and abruptly drew it back with pain, in an attempt to throw the switch. At last he was successful, and now he walked calmly across the room and bent over the motionless Craneborg. Skull fractured, he said grimly. All right, Sylvia? He went through the narrow doorway beyond, picking up the pocket-gun as he went. There was a noise of whining machinery. Now Thorn was emptying pellets into the mechanism that controlled the dome of force. There was a crashing of glass. It stopped. There were blows and thumpings. That noise stopped, too. Thorn came back, his eyes glowing. He flung open the outer door of the rocket ship, and Sylvia went with him. He pointed. Far away, the fighting force of the United Nations was swirling upward. Like smoke from a campfire, or wing dance from a tree stump, they went up in a colossal twisting spiral, beyond the domes and above them. The domes existed no longer, up and up and up, and then they swooped down upon the suddenly fleeing enemy, vengefully, savagely, with all the fury of men avenging not only what they have suffered, but also what they have feared. The combat squadrons of the United Nations fell upon the invaders. Green hexy-nitrate explosions lighted up the sky. Ear-cracking detonations reverberated among the mountains. There was battle there, and death, and carnage, and utter destruction. The roar of combat filled the universe. Thorn closed the door and looked down at Craneborg, who breathed stenoriously, his mouth foolishly open. Our men will be back for us, he said shortly. We needn't worry. Then he said, Huh. He called himself a scientist, and he didn't know a slingshot when he saw one. But then Thornhard dropped a weapon made of a forked stick and strong elastic from his shoot-pack, 
and caught Sylvia hungrily in his arms. End of Invasion by Mary Leinster Keep out. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Megan Argo. Keep Out by Frederick Brown. With no more room left on Earth, and with Mars hanging up there, empty of life, somebody hit on the plan of starting a colony on the Red Planet. It meant changing the habits and physical structure of the immigrants, but it worked out fine. In fact, every possible factor was covered, except one of the flaws of human nature. Daptine is the secret of it. Adaptine, they called it at first, then it got shortened to daptine. It let us adapt. They explained it all to us when we were ten years old. I guess they thought we were too young to understand before then, although we knew a lot of it already. They told us just after we landed on Mars. "'You're home, children,' the head teacher told us after we had gone into the glassite dome they built for us there. And he told us there'd be a special lecture for us that evening, an important one that we must all attend. And that evening he told us the whole story, and the whys and wherefores. He stood up before us. He had to wear a heated spacesuit and helmet, of course, because the temperature in the dome was comfortable for us, but already freezing cold for him, and the air was already too thin for him to breathe. His voice came to us by radio from inside his helmet. "'Children,' he said, "'you are home. This is Mars, the planet on which you will spend the rest of your lives. You are Martians, the first Martians. You have lived five years on Earth, and another five in space. Now you will spend ten years, until you are adults, in this dome.' although toward the end of that time you will be allowed to spend increasingly long periods outdoors. Then you will go forth and make your own homes, live your own lives, as Martians. You will intermarry, and your children will breed true. They too will be Martians. It is time you were told the history of this great experiment, of which each of you is a part. Then he told us. Man, he said, had first reached Mars in 1985. It had been uninhabited by intelligent life. There is plenty of plant life and a few varieties of non-flying insects. And he had found it, by terrestrial standards, uninhabitable. Man could survive on Mars only by living in glassite domes and wearing spacesuits when he went outside of them. Except by day in the warmer seasons, it was too cold for him. The air was too thin for him to breathe, and long exposure to sunlight, less filtered of rays harmful to him than on Earth because of the lesser atmosphere, could kill him. The plants were chemically alien to him, and he could not eat them. He had to bring all his food from Earth, or grow it in hydroponic tanks. For fifty years he had tried to colonise Mars, and all his efforts had failed. Besides this dome which had been built for us, there was only one other outpost, another glassite dome, much smaller and less than a mile away. It had looked as though mankind could never spread to the other planets of the solar system besides Earth, for, of all of them, Mars was the least inhospitable. If he couldn't live here, then there was no use even trying to colonise the others. And then, in 2034, thirty years ago, a brilliant biochemist named Weymouth had discovered daptine. 
a miracle drug that worked not on the animal or person to whom it was given, but on the progeny he conceived during a limited period of time after inoculation. It gave his progeny almost limitless adaptability to changing conditions, provided the changes were made gradually. Dr. Weymouth had inoculated and then mated a pair of guinea pigs. They had borne a litter of five, and by placing each member of the litter under different and gradually changing conditions, he had obtained amazing results. When they attained maturity, one of those guinea pigs was living comfortably at a temperature of forty below zero Fahrenheit. Another was quite happy at a hundred and fifty above. A third was thriving on a diet that would have been deadly poison for an ordinary animal, and a fourth was contented under a constant X-ray bombardment that would have killed one of its parents within minutes. Subsequent experiments with many litters showed that animals who had been adapted to similar conditions bred true, and their progeny was conditioned from birth to live under those conditions. Ten years later, ten years ago, the head teacher told us, you children were born, born of parents carefully selected from those who volunteered for the experiment, and from birth you have been brought up under carefully controlled and gradually changing conditions. From the time you were born, the air you have breathed has been very gradually thinned and its oxygen content reduced. Your lungs have compensated by becoming much greater in capacity, which is why your chests are so much larger than those of your teachers and attendants. When you are fully mature, and are breathing air like that of Mars, the difference will be even greater. Your bodies are growing fur to enable you to stand the increasing cold. You are comfortable now under conditions which would kill ordinary people quickly. Since you were four years old, your nurses and teachers have had to wear special protection to survive conditions that seem normal to you. In another ten years, at maturity, you will be completely acclimated to Mars. Its air will be your air. Its food plants, your food. Its extremes of temperature will be easy for you to endure, and its median temperatures pleasant to you. Already, because of the five years we spent in space under gradually decreased gravitational pull, the gravity of Mars seems normal to you. It will be your planet to live on and to populate. You are the children of Earth, but you are the first Martians. Of course, we had known a lot of those things already. The last year was the best. By then, the air inside the dome, except for the pressurised parts where our teachers and attendants live, was almost like that outside, and we were allowed out for increasingly long periods. It was good to be in the open. The last few months they relaxed segregation of the sexes, so we could begin choosing mates, although they told us there is to be no marriage until after the final day, after our full clearance. Choosing was not difficult in my case. I had made my choice long since, and I'd felt sure that she felt the same way. I was right. Tomorrow is the day of our freedom. Tomorrow we will be Martians. THE Martians. Tomorrow we shall take over the planet. Some among us are impatient, have been impatient for weeks now, but wiser counsel prevailed and we are waiting. We have waited twenty years, and we can wait until the final day. And tomorrow is the final day. Tomorrow, at a signal, we will kill the teachers and the other earthmen among us before we go forth. They do not suspect, so it will be easy. We have dissimulated for years now, and they do not know how we hate them. They do not know how disgusting and hideous we find them, with their ugly misshapen bodies so narrow-shouldered and tiny-chested, their weak, sibilant voices that need amplification to carry in our Martian air, and above all their white, pasty, hairless skins. 
we shall kill them, and then we shall go and smash the other dome, so that all the earthmen there will die too. If more earthmen ever come to punish us, we can live and hide in the hills where they'll never find us, and if they try to build more domes, we'll smash them. We want no more to do with earth. This is our planet, and we want no aliens. Keep off. End of Keep Out by Frederick Brown Read by Megan Argo The Long Voyage by Carl Richard Jacobi This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Bologna Times The Long Voyage by Carl Richard Jacobi When we published Carl Jacobi's last story, we had no assurance he would be with us so soon again, for when a uniquely gifted science fantasy writer becomes radioactive on the entertainment meter and goes voyaging into the unknown, he may be gone from the world we know for as long as yesterday's tomorrow. But Carl Jacobi has not only returned almost with the speed of light, he has brought with him shining new nuggets of wonder and surmise. The Long Voyage by Carl Jacobi The secret lay hidden at the end of nine landings, and Medusa Dark was one man's search for it in the strangest journey ever made. A soft, gentle rain began to fall as we emerged from the dark woods and came out onto the shore. There it was, the sea, stretching as far as the eye could reach, gray and sullen, and flecked with green-white froth. The blue hensor trees, crowding close to the water's edge, were bent backward, as if frightened by the bleakness before them. The sand, visible under the clear patches of water, was a bleached white, like the exposed surface of a huge bone. We stood there a moment in silence. Then Mason cleared his throat huskily. <clears throat> well, here goes, he said. We'll soon see if we have any friends about. He unslung the pack-sack from his shoulders, removed its protective outer shield, and began to assemble the organic surveyor an egg-shaped ball of white carponium secured to a segmented forty-foot rod. While Brant and I raised the rod with the aid of an electric fulcrum, Mason carefully placed his control cabinet on a piece of outcropping rock and made a last adjustment. The moment had come. Even above the sound of the sea you could hear the strained breathing of the men. Only Navigator Norris appeared unconcerned. He stood there calmly smoking his pipe, his keen blue eyes squinting against the biting wind. Mason switched on the speaker. Its high-frequency scream rose deafeningly above us and was torn away in unsteady gusts. He began to turn its center dial, at first a quarter circle, and then all the way to the final backstop of the calibration. All that resulted was a continuation of that mournful ululation like a wail out of eternity. Mason tried again. With stiff wrists he tuned while perspiration stood out on his forehead, and the rest of us crowded close. 
It's no use, he said. This pickup failure proves there isn't a vestige of animal life on Stragella, on this hemisphere of the planet, at least. Navigator Norris took his pipe from his mouth and nodded. His face was expressionless. There was no indication in the man's voice that he had suffered another great disappointment, his sixth in less than a year. We'll go back now, he said, and we'll try again. There must be some planet in the system that's inhabited, but it's going to be hard to tell the women. Mason let the surveyor rod down with a crash. I could see the anger and resentment that was gathering in his eyes. Mason was the youngest of our party, and the leader of the antagonistic group that was slowly but steadily undermining the authority of the navigator. This was our seventh exploratory trip after our sixth landing since entering the field of the sun, Pontus. Pontus, with its sixteen equal-sized planets, each with a single satellite. First there had been Colora, then in swift succession Jama, Tenethon, Mokro, and R9, and now Stragella, strange names of strange worlds revolving about a strange star. It was Navigator Norris who told us the names of these planets, and traced their positions on a chart for us. He alone of our group was familiar with astrogation and cosmography. He alone had sailed the spaceways in the days before the automatic pilots were installed and locked and sealed on every ship. A handsome man in his fortieth year, he stood six feet three with broad shoulders and a powerful frame. His eyes were the eyes of a scholar, dreamy yet alive with depth and penetration. I had never seen him lose his temper, and he governed our company with an iron hand. He was not perfect, of course. Like all Earthmen, he had his faults. Months before he had joined with that famed Martian scientist, Ganneth Clay, to invent that all-use material, Indurit, the formula for which had been stolen, and which therefore had never appeared on the commercial market. Norris would talk about that for hours. If you inadvertently started him on the subject, a queer glint would enter his eyes, and he would dig around in his pocket for a chunk of the black substance. "'Did I ever show you a piece of this?' he would say. "'Look at it carefully. Notice the smooth, grainless texture. Hard, and yet not brittle.' You wouldn't think that it was formed in a gaseous state, then changed to a liquid, and finally to a clay-like material that could be worked with ease. A thousand years after your body has returned to dust, that piece of indurit will still exist, unchanged, unworn. Erosion will have little effect upon it. Beside it, granite, steel, are nothing. If only I had the formula. But he had only half the formula the half he himself had developed. The other part was locked in the brain of Ganneth Clay, and Ganneth Clay had disappeared. What had become of him was a mystery. Norris, perhaps, had felt the loss more than anyone, and he had offered the major part of his savings as a reward for information leading to the scientists' whereabouts. Our party, eighteen couples and navigator Norris, had gathered together and subsequently left Earth in answer to a curious advertisement that had appeared in the Sunday edition of the London Times. Wanted, 
a group of married men and women, young, courageous, educated, tired of political and social restrictions, interested in extraterrestrial colonization, financial resources, no qualification. After we had been weeded out, interviewed, and rigorously questioned, Norris had taken us into the hangar, waved a hand toward the Marie Galante, and explained the details. The Marie Galante was a cruiser-type ship, stripped down to essentials to maintain speed, but equipped with the latest of everything. For a short run to Venus, for which it was originally built, it would accommodate a passenger list of ninety. But Norris wasn't interested in that kind of run. He had knocked out bulkheads, reconverted music room and ballroom into living quarters. He had closed and sealed all observation ports, so that only in the bridge cuddy could one see into space. "'We shall travel beyond the orbit of the sun,' he said. "'There will be no turning back. For the search for a new world, a new life, is not a task for cowards.' "'Aside to me,' he said, "'you're to be the physician of this party, Bagley. "'So I'm going to tell you what to expect when we take off. "'We're going to have some mighty sick passengers aboard then.' "'What do you mean, sir?' I said. "'He pointed with his pipe toward the stern of the vessel. "'See that? Well, call it a booster. "'Ganneth Clay designed it just before he disappeared, "'using the last lot of Indurit in existence.' It will increase our takeoff speed by five times, and it will probably have a bad effect on the passengers. So we had left Earth, a night from a field out in Essex, without orders, without clearance papers, without an automatic pilot check. Eighteen couples and one navigator. Destination unknown. If the Interstellar Council had known what Norris was up to, it would have been a case for the Space-Time Commission. Of that long initial lap of our voyage, perhaps the less said the better, as always is the case when monotony begins to wear away the veneer of civilization, character quirks came to the surface, cliques formed among the passengers, and gossip and personalities became matters of pre-eminent importance. Rising to the foreground out of our thirty-six came Fielding Mason, tall, taciturn, and handsome, with a keen intellect and a sense of values remarkable in so young a man. Mason was a graduate of Montape, the French outgrowth of St. Cyr, but he had majored in military tactics, psychology, and sociology, and knew nothing at all about astrogation or even elemental astronomy. He, too, was a man of good breeding and refinement. Nevertheless, conflict began to develop between him and Navigator Norris. That conflict began the day we landed on Colora. Norris stepped out of the airlock into the cold, thin air, glanced briefly about him, and faced the eighteen men assembled. "'We'll divide into three groups,' he said, each group to carry an organic surveyor and take a different direction." Each group will so regulate its marching as to be back here, without fail, an hour before darkness sets in. If you find no sign of animal life, then we will take off again immediately on your return." Mason paused halfway in the act of strapping on his pack-sack. "'What's that got to do with it?' he demanded. "'There's vegetation here. That's all that seems to be necessary.' Norris lit his pipe. 
"'If you find no signs of animal life, we will take off immediately on your return,' he said, as if he hadn't heard. But the strangeness of Colora tempered bad feelings then. The blue hensor trees were actually not trees at all, but a huge cattail-like growth, the stalks of which were quite transparent. In between the stalks grew curious cabbage-like plants that changed from red to yellow as an intruder approached, and back to red again after he had passed. Rock outcroppings were everywhere, but all were eroded, and in places polished smooth as glass. There was a strange kind of dust that acted as though endowed with life. It quivered when trod upon, and the outline of our footsteps slowly rose into the air, so that, looking back, I could see our trail floating behind us in irregular layers. Above us the star that was the planet's sun shone bright but faintly red, as if it were in the first stages of dying. The air, though thin, was fit to breathe, and we found it unnecessary to wear spacesuits. We marched down the corridors of Hensor trees until we came to an open spot, a kind of glade, and that was the first time Mason tuned his organic surveyor and received absolutely nothing. There was no animal life on Colora. Within an hour we had blasted off again. The forward impact delivered by the Ganeth clay booster was terrific, and nausea and vertigo struck us all simultaneously. But again, with all ports and observation shields sealed shut, Norris held the secret of our destination. On July 22nd, the ship gave that sickening lurch and came once again to a standstill. Same procedure as before, Norris said, stepping out of the airlock. Those of you who desire to have their wives accompany you may do so. Mason, you'll make a final correlation on the organic surveyors. If there is no trace of animal life, return here before dark. Once our group was out of sight of the ship, Mason threw down his pack sack, sat down on a boulder, and lighted a cigarette. Bagley, he said to me, has the old man gone loco? I think not, I said, frowning. He's one of the most evenly balanced persons I know. Then he's hiding something. Mason said. Why else should he be so concerned with finding animal life? You know the answer to that, I said. We're here to colonize, to start a new life. We can't very well do that on a desert. That's poppycock, Mason replied, flinging away his cigarette. When the Albertson expedition first landed on Mars, there was no animal life on the red planet. Now look at it. Same thing was true when Breslauer first settled Pluto. The colonies there got along. I tell you, Norris has got something up his sleeve, and I don't like it. Later, after Mason had taken his negative surveyor reading, the flame of trouble reached the end of its fuse. Norris had given orders to return to the Marie Galante, and the rest of us were sullenly making ready to start the back trail. Mason, however, deliberately seized his pick and began chopping a hole in the rock surface, preparatory, apparently, to erecting his plastic tent. "'We'll make temporary camp here,' he said calmly. "'Brant, you can go back to the ship and bring back the rest of the women.' He turned and smiled sardonically at Navigator Norris. Norris quietly knocked the ashes from his pipe and placed it in his pocket. He strode forward, 
took the pick from Mason's hands and flung it away. Then he seized Mason by the coat, whipped him around, and drove his fist hard against the younger man's jaw. When you signed on for this voyage, you agreed to obey my orders, he said, not raising his voice. You'll do just that. Mason picked himself up, and there was an ugly glint in his eyes. He could have smashed Norris to a pulp, and none knew it better than the navigator. For a brief instant, the younger man swayed there on the balls of his feet, fists clenched. Then he let his hands drop, walked over, and began to put on his pack sack. But I had seen Mason's face, and I knew he had not given in as easily as it appeared. Meanwhile, he began to circulate among the passengers, making no offers, yet subtly enlisting backers for a policy, the significance of which grew on me slowly. It was mutiny he was plotting, and with his personal charm and magnetism he had little trouble in winning over converts. I came upon him arguing before a group of the women one day, among them his own wife, Estelle. He was standing close to her. "'We have clothing and equipment and food concentrate,' Mason said, "'enough to last two generations.' We have brains and intelligence, and we certainly should be able to establish ourselves without the aid of other vertebrate forms of life. Calora, Jama, Tenethon, Macro, R9, and Stragala. We could have settled on any one of those planets, and apparently we should have, for conditions have grown steadily worse at each landing. But always the answer is no, because Norris says we must go on until we find animal life. He cleared his throat and gazed at the feminine faces before him. Go where? What makes Norris so sure he'll find life on any planet in this system? And incidentally, where in the cosmos is this system? One of the women, a tall blonde, stirred uneasily. What do you mean? she said. I mean, we don't know if our last landing was on Stragella or Colora. I mean, we don't know where we are or where we're going, and I don't think Norris does either. We're lost. That was in August. By the last of September, we had landed on two more planets, to which Norris gave the simple names of R-12 and R-14. Each had crude forms of vegetable life, represented principally by the blue hensor trees, but in neither case did the organic surveyor reveal the slightest traces of animal life. There was, however, a considerable difference in physical appearance between R-12 and R-14, and for a time that fact excited Norris tremendously. Up to then, each successive planet, although similar in size, had exhibited signs of greater age than its predecessor but on R-12 there were definite manifestations of younger geologic development. Several pieces of shale lay exposed under a fold of igneous rock. Two of those pieces contained fossils of highly developed ganoids, similar to those found on Venus. They were perfectly preserved. It meant that animal life had existed on R-12, even if it didn't now. It meant that R-12 though a much older planet than Earth, was still younger than Stragella or the rest. For a while, Norris was almost beside himself. He cut out rock samples and carried them back to the ship. He personally supervised the tuning of the surveyors, and when he finally gave orders to take off, 
he was almost friendly to Mason, whereas before his attitude toward him had been one of cold aloofness. But when we reached R-14, our eighth landing, all that passed, for R-14 was old again, older than any of the others. And then, on October 16th, Mason opened the door of the locked cabin. It happened quite by accident. One of the aurelium thaxide conduits broke in the Marie Lance central passageway, and the resulting explosion grounded the central feed lines of the instrument equipment. In a trice, the passageway was a sheet of flame, rapidly filling with smoke from burning insulation. Norris, of course, was in the bridge cuddy, with locked doors between us and him, and now with the wiring burned through, there was no way of signaling him he was wanted for an emergency. In his absence, Mason took command. That passageway ran the full length of the ship. Midway down, it was the door leading to the women's lounge. The explosion had jammed that door shut, and smoke was pouring forth from under the sill. All at once, one of the women rushed forward to announce hysterically that Mason's wife, Estelle, was in the lounge. Adjoining the lounge was a small cabin, which since the beginning of our voyage had remained locked. Norris had given strict orders that that cabin was not to be disturbed. We all had taken it as a matter of course that it contained various kinds of precision instruments. Now, however, Mason realized that the only way into the lounge was by way of that locked cabin. If he used a heat blaster on the lounge door, there was no telling what would happen to the woman inside. He ripped the emergency blaster from its wall mounting, pressed it to the magnetic latch of the sealed cabin door, and pressed the stud. An instant later he was leading his frightened wife, Estelle, out through the smoke. The fire was quickly extinguished after that, and the wiring spliced. Then, when the others had drifted off, Mason called Brant and me aside. "'We've been wondering for a long time what happened to Ganeth Clay, the Martian inventor who worked with Norris to invent Indurate,' he said very quietly. "'Well, we don't need to wonder any more. He's in there.' Brant and I stepped forward over the sill, and drew up short. Ganeth Clay was there all right, but he would never trouble himself about making a voyage in a locked cabin. His rigid body was encased in a transparent block of amber-colored solidifex, the after-death preservative used by all Martians. Both of us recognized his still features at once, and, in addition, his name tattoo, required by Martian law, was clearly visible on his left forearm. For a brief instant, the discovery stunned us. Clay dead? Clay, whose IQ had become a measuring guide for the entire system, whose Martian head held more ordinary horse sense in addition to radical postulations on theoretical physics than anyone on the planets? It wasn't possible. And what was the significance of his body on Norris's ship? Why had Norris kept its presence a secret, and why had he given out the story of Clay's disappearance? Mason's face was as cold as ice. "'Come with me, you two, he said. "'We're going to get the answer to this right now.' We went along the passage to the circular staircase. We climbed the steps, passing through the scuttle, and came to the door of the bridge cuddy. Mason drew the bar, and we passed in. 
Norris was bent over the chart table. He looked up sharply at the sound of our steps. "'What is the meaning of this intrusion?' he said. It didn't take Mason long to explain. When he had finished, he stood there, jaw set, eyes smoldering. Norris paled. Then quickly he got control of himself, and his old bland smile returned. "'I expected you to blunder into Clay's body one of these days,' he said. "'The explanation is quite simple.' Clay had been ill for many months, and he knew his time was up. His one desire in life was to go on this expedition with me, and he made me promise to bury him at the site of our new colony. The pact was between him and me, and I've followed it to the letter, telling no one. Mason's lips curled in a sneer. And just what makes you think we're going to believe that story? he demanded. Norris lit a cigar. It's entirely immaterial to me whether you believe it or not. But the story was believed, especially by the women, to whom the romantic angle appealed, and Mason's embryonic mutiny died without being born, and the Marie Gallant sailed on through uncharted space toward her ninth and last landing. As the days dragged by, and no word came from the bridge cuddy, restlessness began to grow amongst us. Rumor succeeded rumor, each story wilder and more incredible than the rest. Then just as the tension had mounted to fever pitch, there came the sickening lurch and grinding vibration of another landing. Norris dispensed with his usual talk before marching out from the ship. After testing the atmosphere with the ozonometer, he passed out the heat pistols and distributed the various instruments for computing radioactivity and cosmic radiation. This is the planet Nizar, he said shortly, largest in the field of the sun Pontus. You will make your survey as one group this time. I will remain here. He stood watching us as we marched off down the cliffside. Then the blue hensort trees rose up to swallow him from view. Mason swung along at the head of our column, eyes bright, a figure of aggressive action. We had gone but a hundred yards when it became apparent that, as a planet, Nizar was entirely different from its predecessors. There was considerable topsoil, and here grew a tall, reed-shaped plant that gave off varying chords of sound when the wind blew. It was as if we were progressing through the nave of a mighty church with a muted organ in the distance. There was animal life, too, a strange, lizard-like bird that rose up in flocks ahead of us and flew screaming overhead. "'I don't exactly like it, Bagley,' he said. "'There's something unwholesome about this planet. The evolution is obviously in an early state of development, but I get the impression that it has gone backward, that the planet is really old and has reverted to its earlier life.' Above us the sky was heavily overcast and a tenuous white mist rising up from the hensworth trees formed curious shapes and designs. In the distance I could hear the swashing of waves on a beach. Suddenly Mason stopped. "'Look!' he said. Below us stretched the shore of a great sea. But it was the structure rising up from that shore that drew a sharp exclamation from me. Shaped in a rough ellipse, yet mounted high toward a common point, was a large building of multiple hues and colors. 
The upper portion was eroded to crumbling ruins, the lower part studded with many bas-reliefs and triangular doorways. Let's go, Mason said, breaking out into a fast-loping run. The building was farther away than we had thought, but when we finally came up to it, we saw that it was even more of a ruin than it had at first appeared. It was only a shell with but two walls standing, alone and forlorn. Whatever race had lived here, they had come and gone. We prowled about the ruins for more than an hour. The carvings on the walls were in the form of geometric designs and cabalistic symbols, giving no clue to the city's former occupant's identity. And then Mason found the stairs leading to the lower crypts. He switched on his auto-flash and led the way down cautiously. Level one, level two, three. We descended lower and lower. Here water from the nearby sea oozed in little rivulets that glittered in the light of the flash. We emerged at length on a wide underground plaisance, a kind of amphitheatre, with tier on tier of seats surrounding it and extending back into the shadows. Judging from what I've seen, Mason said, I would say that the race that built this place had reached approximately a grade C5 of civilization, according to the Mokart scale. This apparently was their council chamber. What are those rectangular stone blocks depending from the ceiling? I said. Mason turned the light beam upward. I don't know, he said, but my guess is that they are burial vaults. Perhaps the creatures were ornithoid. Away from the flash, the floor of the plaisance appeared to be a great mirror that caught our reflections and distorted them fantastically and horribly. We saw then that it was a form of living mold, composed of millions of tiny plants, each with an eye-like iris at its center. Those eyes seemed to be watching us, and as we strode forward a great sigh rose up, as if in resentment at our intrusion. There was a small triangular dais in the center of the chamber, and in the middle of it stood an irregular black object. As we drew nearer, I saw that it had been carved roughly in the shape of this central building, and that it was in a perfect state of preservation. Mason walked around this carving several times, examining it curiously. Odd, he said, it looks to be an object of religious veneration, but I never heard before of a race worshipping a replica of their own living quarters. Suddenly his voice died off. He bent closer to the black stone, studying it in the light of the powerful auto-flash. He got a small magnifying glass out of his pocket and focused it on one of the miniature bought reliefs midway toward the top of the stone. Unfastening his geologic hammer from his belt, he managed with a sharp, swinging blow to break off a small protruding piece. He drew in his breath sharply, and I saw his face go pale. I stared at him in alarm. "'What's wrong?' I asked. He motioned that I follow and led the way silently past the others toward the stair shaft. Climbing to the top level was a heart-pounding task, but Mason almost ran up those steps. At the surface he leaned against a pillar, his lips quivering spasmodically. "'Tell me I'm sane, Bagley,' he said huskily. "'Or rather, don't say anything until we see Norris. Come on, 
We've got to see Norris. All the way back to the Marie Galant, I sought to soothe him, but he was a man possessed. He rushed up the ship's gangway, burst into central quarters, and drew up before Navigator Norris like a runner stopping at the tape. "'You damn lying hypocrite!' he yelled. Norris looked at him in his quiet way. "'Take it easy, Mason,' he said. "'Sit down and explain yourself.' But Mason didn't sit down. He thrust his hand in his pocket, pulled out the piece of black stone he had chipped off the image in the cavern, and handed it to Norris. "'Take a look at that!' he demanded. Norris took the stone, glanced at it, and laid it down on his desk. His face was emotionless. "'I expected this sooner or later,' he said. "'Yes, it's indirect, all right. Is that what you want me to say?' There was a dangerous fanatical glint in Mason's eyes now. With a sudden quick motion, he pulled out his heat pistol. "'So you tricked us!' he snarled. "'Why? I want to know why!' I stepped forward and seized Mason's gun-hand. "'Don't be a fool,' I said. "'It can't be that important.' Mason threw back his head and burst into an hysterical peal of laughter. "'Important!' he cried. "'Tell him how important it is, Norris. Tell him!' Quietly, the navigator filled and lighted his pipe. "'I'm afraid Mason is right,' he said. "'I did trick you. Not purposely, however. And in the beginning I had no intention of telling anything but the truth. Actually, we're here because of a dead man's vengeance.' Norris took his pipe from his lips and stirred at it absently. You'll remember that Ganneth Clay, the Martian, and I worked together to invent Indurate. But whereas I was interested in the commercial aspects of that product, Clay was absorbed only in the experimental angle of it. He had some crazy idea that it should not be given to the general public at once, but rather should be allocated for the first few years to a select group of scientific organizations. You see, Indurate was such a departure from all known materials that Ganneth Clay feared it would be utilized for military purposes. I took him for a dreamer and a fool. Actually, he was neither. How was I to know that his keen, penetrating brain had seen through my motive to get control of all commercial marketing of Indurate? I had laid my plans carefully, and I had expected to reap a nice harvest. Clay must have been aware of my innermost thoughts, but Martian-like, he said nothing. Norris paused to wet his lips and lean against the desk. "'I didn't kill Ganneth Clay,' he continued, "'though I suppose in a court of law I would be judged responsible for his death. The manufacture of Indurate required some ticklish work. As you know, we produced our halves of the formula separately. Physical contact with my half over a long period of time would prove fatal, I knew, and I simply neglected to so inform Ganneth Clay. But his ultimate death was a boomerang. With Clay gone, I could find no trace of his half of the formula. I was almost beside myself for a time. Then I thought of something. Clay had once said that the secret of his half of the formula lay in himself. A vague statement, to say the least but I took the words at their face value and gambled that he meant them literally, that is, that his body itself contained the formula. I tried everything, x-ray, 
chemical analysis of the skin. I even removed the cranial cap and examined the brain microscopically, all without result. Meanwhile, the police were beginning to direct their suspicions toward me in the matter of Clay's disappearance. You know the rest. It was necessary that I leave Earth at once and go beyond our system, beyond the jurisdiction of the planetary police. So I arranged this voyage with a sufficient complement of passengers to lessen the danger and hardship of a new life on a new world. I was still positive, however, that Clay's secret lay in his dead body. I took that body along, encased in the Martian preservative solidifex. It was my idea that I could continue my examination once we were safe on a strange planet, but I had reckoned without Ganeth Clay. What do you mean? I said slowly. I said Clay was no fool, but I didn't know that with Martian stoicism he suspected the worst and took his own ironic means of combating it. He used the last lot of Indurate to make that booster, a device which he said would increase our take-off speed. He mounted it on the Marie Gallant. Mason, that device was no booster. It was a time machine, so devised as to catapult the ship not into outer space, but into the space-time continuum. It was a mechanism designed to throw the Marie Gallant forward into the future. A cloud of fear began to well over me. What do you mean? I said again. Navigator Norris paced around his desk. I mean that the Marie Gallant has not once left Earth, has not, in fact, left the spot of its moorings, but has merely gone forward in time. I mean that the nine landings we made were not stops on some other planets, but halting stages of a journey into the future. Had a bombshell burst over my head, the effect could have been no greater. Cold perspiration began to ooze out on my forehead. In a flash I saw the significance of the entire situation. That was why Norris had been so insistent that we always return to the ship before dark. He didn't want us to see the night sky and the constellations there, for fear we would guess the truth. That was why he had never permitted any of us in the bridge cuddy, and why he had kept all ports and observation shields closed. But the names of the planets, Calora, Stragella, and the others, and their positions on the chart, I objected. Norris smiled grimly. All words created out of my imagination. Like the rest of you, I knew nothing of the true action of the booster. It was only gradually that truth dawned on me. But by the time we had made our first landing, I had guessed. That was why I demanded we always take organic surveyor readings. I knew we had traveled far into future time, far beyond the life period of man on Earth. But I wasn't sure how far we had gone, and I lived with the hope that Clay's booster might reverse itself and start carrying us backwards down the centuries. For a long time I stood there in silence, a thousand mad speculations racing through my mind. How about that piece of indurate? I said at length. It was chipped off an image in the ruins of a great building a mile or so from here. An image? repeated Norris. A faint glow of interest slowly rose in his eyes. Then it died. I don't know, 
he said, it would seem to presuppose that the formula, both parts of it, was known by Clay, and that he left it for posterity to discover. All this time Mason had been standing there, eyes smoldering, lips an ugly line. Now, abruptly, he took a step forward. "'I've wanted to return this for a long time,' he said. He doubled back his arm and brought his fist smashing into Norris's jaw. The navigator's head snapped backward. He gave a low groan and slumped to the floor. And that is where, by all logic, this tale should end. But, as you may have guessed, there is an anticlimax, what storytellers call a happy conclusion. Mason, Brandt, and I worked, and worked alone, on the theory that the secret of the Indurate formula would be the answer to our return down the time trail. We removed the body of Ganeth Clay from its solidifex envelope, and treated it with every chemical process we knew. By sheer luck, the fortieth trial worked. A paste of carbogenethon mixed with the crushed seeds of the Martian iron flower was spread over Clay's chest and abdomen. And there, in easily decipherable code, was not only the formula, but the working principles of the ship's booster, or rather, time catapult. After that, it was a simple matter to reverse the principle and throw us backward in the time stream. We are heading back as I write these lines. If they reach print and you read them, it will mean our escape was successful and that we return to our proper slot in the epilogue of human events. There remains, however, one matter to trouble me. Navigator Norris. I like the man. I like him tremendously, in spite of his cold-blooded confession and past record. He must be punished, of course. But I, for one, would hate to see him given the death penalty. It is a serious problem. End of The Long Voyage by Carl Richard Jacoby Navy Day by Harry Harrison. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Navy Day by Harry Harrison. General Wingrove looked at the rows of faces without seeing them. His vision went beyond the Congress of the United States, past the balmy June day to another day that was coming, a day when the Army would have its destined place of authority. He drew a deep breath and delivered what was perhaps the shortest speech ever heard in the hallowed halls of Congress. The General Staff of the U.S. Army requests Congress to abolish the archaic branch of the armed forces known as the U.S. Navy. The aging senator from Georgia checked his hearing aid to see if it was in operating order, while the press box emptied itself in one concerted rush and a clatter of running feet that died off in the direction of the telephone room. A buzz of excited comment ran through the giant chamber. One by one the heads turned to face the naval section, where rows of blue figures stirred and buzzed like smoked-out bees. 
The knot of men around a paunchy figure, heavy with gold braid, broke up, and Admiral Fitzjames climbed slowly to his feet. Lesser men have quailed before that piercing stare, but General Wingrove was never the lesser man. The Admiral tossed his head with disgust, every line of his body denoting outraged dignity. He turned to his audience, a small pulse beating in his forehead. I cannot comprehend the General's attitude, nor can I understand why he has attacked the Navy in this unwarranted fashion. The Navy has existed, and will always exist, as the first barrier of American defense. I ask you, gentlemen, to ignore this request as you would ignore the statements of any person, er, slightly demented. I should like to offer a recommendation that the General's sanity be investigated, and an inquiry be made as to the mental health of anyone else connected with this preposterous proposal." The General smiled calmly. I understand, Admiral, and really don't blame you for being slightly annoyed, but please let us not bring this issue of national importance down to a shallow and personal level. The Army has facts to back up this request, facts that shall be demonstrated tomorrow morning." Turning his back on the raging Admiral, General Wingrove included all the assembled Solons in one sweeping gesture. Reserve your judgment until that time, gentlemen. Make no hasty judgments until you have seen the force of argument with which we back up our request. It is the end of an era. In the morning the Navy joins its fellow fossils, the Dodo and the Brontosaurus. The Admiral's blood pressure mounted to a new record, and the gentle thud of his unconscious body striking the floor was the only sound to break the shocked silence in the giant hall. The early morning sun warmed the white marble of the Jefferson Memorial and glinted from the soldiers' helmets and the roofs of the packed cars that crowded forward in a slow-moving stream. All the gentlemen of Congress were there, the passage of their cars cleared by the screaming sirens of motorcycle policemen. Around and under the wheels of the official cars pressed a solid wave of government workers and common citizens of the capital city. The trucks of the radio and television services pressed close, microphones and cameras extended. The stage was set for a great day. Neat rows of olive-drab vehicles curved along the water's edge. Jeeps and half-tracks shouldered close by weapons carriers and six-bys, all of them shrinking to insignificance beside the looming patent tanks. A speaker's platform was set up in the center of the line, near the audience. At precisely ten a.m., General Wingrove stepped forward and scowled at the crowd until they settled into an uncomfortable silence. His speech was short and consisted of nothing more than amplifications of his opening statement, that actions speak louder than words. He pointed to the first truck in line, a two-and-a-half ton filled with an infantry squad sitting stiffly at attention. The driver caught the signal and kicked the engine into life. With a grind of gears it moved forward toward the river's edge. There was an indrawn gasp from the crowd as the front wheels ground over the marble parapet, and then the truck was plunging down toward the muddy waters of the Potomac. The wheels touched the water, and the surface seemed to sink while taking on a strange glassy character. The truck roared into high gear and rode forward on the surface of the water surrounded by a saucer-shaped depression. It parked two hundred yards offshore, and the soldiers, goaded by the sergeant's bark, leapt out and lined up with a showy present arms. The general returned the salute and waved to the remaining vehicles. 
They moved forward in a series of maneuvers that indicated a great number of rehearsal hours on some hidden pond. The tanks rumbled slowly over the water while the jeeps cut back and forth through their lines in intricate patterns. The trucks backed and turned like puffing ballerinas. The audience was rooted in a hushed silence, their eyeballs bulging. They continued to watch the amazing display as General Wingrove spoke again. You see before you a typical example of Army ingenuity, developed in Army laboratories. These motor units are supported on the surface of the water by an intensifying of the surface tension in their immediate area. Their weight is evenly distributed over the surface, causing the shallow depressions you see around them. This remarkable feat has been accomplished by the use of the Dornifier, a remarkable invention that is named after the brilliant scientist, Colonel Robert A. Dorn, commander of the Brook Point Experimental Laboratory. It was there that one of the civilian employees discovered the Dorn effect, under the Colonel's constant guidance, of course. Utilizing this invention, the Army now becomes master of the sea as well as the land. Army convoys of trucks and tanks can blanket the world. The surface of the water is our highway, our motor park, our battleground, the airfield and runway for our planes. Mechanics were pushing a shooting star onto the water. They stepped clear as flame gushed from the tailpipe. With the familiar whooshing rumble, it sped down the Potomac and hurled itself into the air. When this cheap and simple method of crossing oceans is adopted, it will, of course, mean the end of that fantastic medieval anachronism, the Navy. No need for billion-dollar aircraft carriers, battleships, dry docks, and all the other cumbersome junk that keeps those boats and things afloat. Give the taxpayer back his hard-earned dollar. Teeth grated in the naval section as carriers and battleships were called boats and the rest of America's sea might lumped under the casual heading of things. Lips were curled at the transparent appeal to the taxpayer's pocketbook, but with leaden hearts they knew that all this justified wrath and contempt would avail them nothing. This was Army Day, with a vengeance, and the doom of the Navy seemed inescapable. The Army had made elaborate plans for what they called Operation Sinker. Even as the general spoke, the publicity mills ground into high gear from coast to coast. The citizens absorbed the news with their morning nourishment. Agnes, you hear what that radio said? The Army's going to give a trip around the world in a B-36's first prize in this limerick contest. All you got to do is fill in the last line and mail one copy to the Pentagon and one other to the Navy. The Naval mailroom had standing orders to burn all limericks when they came in but some of the newer men seemed to think the entire thing was a big joke. Commander Bullman found one in the mess hall. The Army will always be there, on land, on the sea, in the air. So why should the Navy take all the gravy, to which a seagoing scribe had added, and not give us ensigns our share? The newspapers were filled daily with photographs of mighty B-36s landing on Lake Erie and grinning soldiers making mock beachhead attacks on Coney Island. Each man wore a buzzing black box at his waist and walked on the bosom of the now quiet Atlantic like a biblical prophet. Radio and television also carried the thousands of news releases that poured in an unending flow from the Pentagon building. Cards, letters, telegrams, and packages descended on Washington in an overwhelming torrent. 
The Navy Department was the unhappy recipient of deprecatory letters and a vast quantity of little cardboard battleships. The people spoke and their representatives listened closely. This was an election year. There didn't seem to be much doubt as to the decision, particularly when the reduction in the budget was considered. It took Congress only two months to make up its collective mind. The people were all pro-army. The novelty of the idea had fired their imaginations. They were about to take the final vote in the lower house. If the amendment passed, it would go to the states for ratification, and their votes were certain to follow that of Congress. The Navy had fought a last-ditch battle to no avail. The balloting was going to be pretty much of a sure thing. The wet-water Navy would soon become ancient history. For some reason, the admirals didn't look as unhappy as they should. The Naval Department had requested one last opportunity to address the Congress. Congress had patronizingly granted permission for even the doomed man is allowed one last speech. Admiral Fitzjames, who had recovered from his choleric attack, was the appointed speaker. Gentlemen of the Congress of the United States, we in the Navy have a fighting tradition. We damn the torpedoes and sail straight ahead into the enemy's fire if that is necessary. We have been stabbed in the back. We have suffered a second Pearl Harbor sneak attack. The Army relinquished its rights to fair treatment with this attack. Therefore, we are counterattacking. Worn out by his attacking and mixed metaphors, the Admiral mopped his brow. Our laboratories have been working night and day on the perfection of a device we hope we would never be forced to use. It is now in operation, having passed the final trials a few days ago. The significance of this device cannot be underestimated. We are so positive of its importance that we are demanding that the army be abolished. He waved his hand toward the window and bellowed one word. Look. Everyone looked. They blinked and looked again. They rubbed their eyes and kept looking. Sailing majestically up the middle of Constitution Avenue was the battleship Missouri. The Admiral's voice rang through the room like a trumpet of victory. The Mark I debinder, as you see, temporarily lessens the binding energies that hold molecules of solid matter together. Solids become liquids, and a ship equipped with this device can sail anywhere in the world on sea or land. Take your vote, gentlemen. The world awaits your decision. End of Navy Day by Harry Harrison One Shot by James Benjamin Blish This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Bologna Times One Shot by James Benjamin Blish. You can do a great deal if you have enough data and enough time to compute on it by logical methods, but given the situation that neither data nor time is adequate and an answer must be produced, what do you do? On the day that the Polish freighter Ludmilla laid an egg in New York Harbor, Abner Longman's one shot 
Braun, was in the city going about his normal business, which was making another million dollars. As we found out later, almost nothing else was normal about that particular weekend for Braun. For one thing, he had brought his family with him, a complete departure from routine, reflecting the unprecedentedly legitimate nature of the deals he was trying to make. From every point of view, it was a bad weekend for the CIA to mix into his affairs, but nobody had explained that to the master of the Ludmilla. I had better add here that we knew nothing about this until afterward, from the point of view of the storyteller, an organization like Civilian Intelligence Associates gets to all its facts backwards, entering the tale at the payoff, working back to the hook, and winding up with a sheaf of background facts to feed into the computer for next time. It's rough on the various people who've tried to fictionalize what we do, particularly for the lazy examples of the breed who come to us expecting that their plotting has already been done for them, but it's inherent in the way we operate, and there it is. Certainly nobody at CIA so much as thought of Braun when the news first came through. Harry Anderton, the harbor defense chief, called us at 0830 Friday to take on the job of identifying the egg. This was when our records show us officially entering the affair, but of course Anderton had been keeping the wires to Washington, steaming for an hour before that, getting authorization to spend some of his money on us. Our clearance status was then, and is now, C&R, clean and routine. I was in the central office when the call came through, and had some difficulty in making out precisely what Anderton wanted of us. Slow down, Colonel Anderton, please, I begged him. Two or three seconds won't make that much difference. How did you find out about this egg in the first place? The automatic compartment bulkheads on the Ludmilla were defective, he said. It seems that this egg was buried among a lot of other crates in the dump cell of the hold. What's a dump cell? It's a sea lock for getting rid of dangerous cargo. The bottom of it opens right to Davy Jones. Standard fitting for ships carrying explosives, radioactives, anything that might act up unexpectedly. All right, I said. Go ahead. Well, there was a timer on the dump cell floor, set to drop the egg when the ship came up the river. That worked fine, but the automatic bulkheads that are supposed to keep the rest of the ship from being flooded while the cells open didn't. At least they didn't do a thorough job. The Ludmilla began to list, and the captain yelled for help. When the harbor patrol found the dump cell open, they called us in. I see, I thought about it a moment. In other words, you don't know whether the Ludmilla really laid an egg or not. That's what I keep trying to explain to you, Dr. Harris. We don't know what she dropped, and we haven't any way of finding out. It could be a bomb. It could be anything. We're sweating everybody on board the ship now, but it's my guess that none of them know anything. The whole procedure was designed to be automatic. All right, we'll take it, I said. You've got divers down? Sure, but 
We'll worry about the butts from here on. Get us a direct line from your barge to the big board here, so we can direct the work. Better get on over here yourself. Right, he sound relieved. Official people have a lot of confidence in CIA. Too much, in my estimation. Some day the job will come along that we can't handle, and then Washington will be kicking itself, or more likely some scapegoat, for having failed to develop a comparable government department. Not that there was much prospect of Washington's doing that. Official thinking had been running in the other direction for years. The president, with the Associated Universities Organization, which ran Brookhaven, CIA had been started the same way, by a loose corporation of universities and industries, all of which had wanted to own an Ultimac, and no one of which had had the money to buy one for itself. The Eisenhower administration, with its emphasis on private enterprise and concomitant reluctance to sink federal funds into projects of such size, had turned the two examples into a nice fat trend, which Ultimac herself said wasn't going to be reversed within the practicable lifetime of CIA. I buzzed for two staffers, and in five minutes got Clark Cheney and Joan Hadamard, CIA's business manager and social science division chief, respectively. The titles were almost solely for the benefit of the T.O., that is, Clark and Joan do serve in those capacities, but said service takes about two percent of their capacities and their time. I shot them a couple of sentences of explanation, trusting them to pick up whatever else they needed from the tape and check the line to the diver's barge. It was already open. Anderton had gone to work quickly, and with decision, once he was sure we were taking on the major question. The television screen lit, but nothing showed on it but murky light, striped with streamers of darkness, slowly rising and falling. The audio went clunk, oing, oing, bonk, oing, underwater noises, shapeless and characterless. Hello out there in the harbor. This is CIA. Harris calling. Come in, please. Monique here, the audio said. Boink, oing, oing. Got anything yet? Not a thing, Dr. Harris, Monique said. You can't see three inches in front of your face down here. It's too silty. We've bumped into a couple of crates, but so far, no egg. Keep trying. Cheney, looking even more like a bulldog than usual, was setting his stopwatch by one of the eight clocks on Altamac's face. "'Want me to take the divers?' he said. "'No, Clark, not yet. I'd rather have Joan do it for the moment.' I passed the mic to her. "'You'd better run a probability series first. "'Check.' He began feeding tape into the integrator's mouth. "'What's your angle, Peter?' "'The ship. I want to see how heavily shielded that dump cell is.' It isn't shielded at all, Anderton's voice said behind me. I hadn't heard him come in. But that doesn't prove anything. The egg might have carried sufficient shielding in itself. Or maybe the commies didn't care whether the crew was exposed or not. Or maybe there isn't any egg. 
All that's possible, I admitted, but I want to see it anyhow. Have you taken blood tests? Joan asked Anderton. Yes. Get the reports through to me. Then I want white cell counts, differentials, platelet counts, hematocrit and sed rates on every man. Anderton picked up the phone, and I took a firm hold on the doorknob. Hey, Anderton said, putting the phone down again, are you going to duck out just like that? Remember, Dr. Harris, we've got to evacuate the city first of all, no matter whether it's a real egg or not. We can't take the chance on its not being an egg. Don't move a man until you get a go-ahead from CIA, I said. For all we know now, evacuating the city may be just what the enemy wants us to do, so they can grab it unharmed. Or they may want to start a panic for some other reason, any one of fifty possible reasons. You can't take such a gamble, he said grimly. There are eight and a half million lives riding on it. I can't let you do it. You passed your authority to us when you hired us, I pointed out. If you want to evacuate without our okay, you'll have to fire us first. It'll take another hour to get that cleared from Washington, so you might as well give us the hour. He stared at me for a moment, his lips thinned. Then he picked up the phone again to order Joan's blood count, and I got out the door fast. A reasonable man would have said that I found nothing useful on the Ludmilla except negative information, but the fact is that anything I found would have been a surprise to me. I went down looking for surprises. I found nothing but a faint trail to Abner Longman's brawn, most of which was fifteen years cold. There'd been a time when I'd known brawn briefly and to no profit to either of us. As an undergraduate majoring in social sciences, I'd taken on a term paper on the old International Longshoremen's Association, a racket-ridden union now formally extinct, although anyone who knew the signs could still pick up some traces on the docks. In those days, Braun had been the business manager of an insurance firm, the sole visible function of which had been to write policies for the ILA and its individual dock wallopers. For some reason, he had been amused by the brash youngster who barged in on him and demanded the lowdown, and had shown me considerable lengths of ropes not normally in view of the public. Nothing incriminating, but enough to give me a better insight into how the union operated than I had had any right to expect, or even suspect. Hence, I was surprised to hear somebody on the docks remark that Braun was in the city over the weekend. It would never have occurred to me that he still interested himself in the waterfront, for he'd gone respectable with a vengeance. He was still a professional gambler, and, according to what he had told the Congressional Investigating Committee last year, took in thirty to fifty thousand dollars a year at it, but his gambles were no longer concentrated on horses, the numbers, or shady insurance deals. Nowadays, what he did was called investment, mostly in real estate. Realtors knew him well as the man who had almost bought the Empire State Building. The almost in the equation stands for the moment when the shoestring broke. Joan had been following his career, too. 
not because she had ever met him, but because for her he was a type-study in the evolution of what she called the extra-legal ego. With personalities like that, respectability is a disease, she told me. There's always an almost open conflict between the desire to be powerful and the desire to be accepted. Your ordinary criminal is a moral imbecile, but people like Braun are damned with conscience, and sooner or later they crack trying to appease it. I'd sooner try to crack a Timken bearing, I said. Braun's ten-point steel all the way through. Don't you believe it? The symptoms are showing all over him. Now he's backing Broadway plays, sponsoring beginning actresses, joining playwrights' groups. He's the only member of Buskin and Brush who's never written a play, acted in one, or so much as pulled the rope to raise the curtain. That's investment, I said. That's his business. Peter, you're only looking at the surface. His real investments almost never fail. But the plays he backs always do. They have to. He's sinking money in them to appease his conscience. And if they were to succeed, it would double his guilt instead of solving it. It's the same way with the young actresses. He's not sexually interested in them. His type never is. Because living a rigidly orthodox family life is part of the effort towards respectability. He's backing them to pay his debt to society. In other words, they're talismans to keep him out of jail. It doesn't seem like a very satisfactory substitute. Of course it isn't, Joan had said. The next thing he'll do is go in for direct public service, giving money to hospitals or something like that. You watch. She had been right. Within the year, Braun had announced the founding of an association for clearing the Detroit slum area where he had been born the plainest kind of symbolic suicide. Let's not have any more Abner Longman's bronze born down here. It depressed me to see it happen, for next on Joan's agenda for Braun was an entry into politics as a fighting liberal, a new dealer twenty years too late. Since I'm mildly liberal myself when I'm off duty, I hated to think what Braun's career might tell me about my own motives if I'd let it all of which had nothing to do with why I was prowling around the Ludmilla, or did it. I kept remembering Anderton's challenge. You can't take such a gamble. There are eight and a half million lives riding on it. That put it up into Braun's normal operating area, all right. The connection was still hazy, but on the grounds that any link might be useful, I phoned him. He remembered me instantly. Like most uneducated, power-driven men, he had a memory as good as any machine's. "'You never did send me that paper you was gonna write,' he said. His voice seemed absolutely unchanged, although he was in his seventies now. "'You promised you would.' "'Kids don't keep their promises as well as they should,' I said. "'But I've still got copies, and I'll see to it that you get one this time.' Right now I need another favor. Something right up your alley. CIA business? Yes. I didn't know you knew I was with CIA. Braun chuckled. I still know a thing or two, he said. What's the angle? That I can't tell you over the phone. 
but it's the biggest gamble there ever was, and I think we need an expert. Can you come down to CIA's central headquarters right away? Yeah, if it's that big. If it ain't, I got lots of business here, Andy, and I ain't going to be in town long. You sure it's top stuff? My word on it. He was silent a moment. Then he said, Andy, send me your paper. The paper? Sure, but... Then I got it. I'd given him my word. You'll get it, I said. Thanks, Mr. Braun. I called headquarters and sent a messenger to my apartment to look for one of those long, dusty blue folders with the legal-length sheets inside them, with orders to scorch it over to Braun without stopping to breathe more than once. Then I went back myself. The atmosphere had changed. Anderton was sitting by the big desk, clenching his fists and sweating. His whole posture telegraphed his controlled happiness. Cheney was bent over a seismograph, echo-sounding for the egg through the river bottom. If that even had a prayer of working, I knew, he'd have had the trains of the Hudson and Manhattan stopped. Their rumbling course through their tubes would have blanked out any possible echo-pip from the egg. "'Wild goose chase?' Jones said, scanning my face. "'Not quite. I've got something, if I can just figure out what it is. Remember one-shot Braun?' "'Yes. What's he got to do with it?' "'Nothing,' I said. But I want to bring him in. I don't think we'll lick this project before deadline without him. What good is a professional gambler on a job like this? He'll just get in the way.' I looked toward the television screen which now showed an amphorous black mass jutting up from a foundation of even deeper black. Is that operation getting you anywhere? Nothing's gotten us anywhere, Anderton interjected harshly. We don't even know if that's the egg. The whole area is littered with crates. Harris, you've got to let me get that alert out. Clark, how's the time going? Cheney consulted the stopwatch. Deadline in twenty-nine minutes, he said. All right, let's use those minutes. I'm beginning to see this thing a lot clearer. Joan, what we've got here is a one-shot gamble, right? In effect, she said cautiously. And it's my guess that we're never going to get the answer by diving for it. Not in time, anyhow. Remember when the Navy lost a barge load of shells in the harbor back in 52? They scrabbled for them for a year, and never pulled up a one. They finally had to warn the public that if it found anything funny-looking along the shore, it shouldn't bang said object, or shake it either. We're better equipped than the Navy was then, but we're working against a deadline. If you'd admitted that earlier, Anderton said hoarsely, we'd have half a million people out of the city by now. Maybe even a million. We haven't given up yet, Colonel. The point is this, Joan. What we need is an inspired guess. Get anything from the prob series, Clark? I thought not. On a one-shot gamble of this kind, the laws of chance are no good at all. For that matter, the so-called ESP experiments showed us long ago that even the way we construct random tables is full of holes and that a man with a feeling for the essence of a gamble can make a monkey out of chance almost at will and if there ever was such a man 
Braun is it. That's why I asked him to come down here. I want him to look at that lump on the screen and play a hunch. You're out of your mind, Anderton said. A decorous knock spared me the trouble of having to deny, affirm, or ignore the judgment. It was Braun. The messenger had been fast, and the gambler hadn't bothered to read what a college student had thought of him fifteen years ago. He came forward and held out his hand, while the others looked him over, frankly. He was impressive, all right. It would have been hard for a stranger to believe that he was aiming at respectability. To the eye, he was already there. He was tall and spare, and walked perfectly erect, not without spring, despite his age. His clothing was as far from that of a gambler as you could have taken it by design. A black, double-breasted suit with a thin vertical stripe, a gray silk tie with a pearl stick-pen, just barely large enough to be visible at all, a black Homburg, all perfectly fitted, all worn with proper casualness, one might almost say a formal casualness. It was only when he opened his mouth that one shot Braun was in the suit with him. I come over as soon as your runner got to me, he said. What's the pitch, Andy? Mr. Braun, this is Joan Hadamard, Clark Cheney, Colonel Anderton. I'll be quick because we need speed now. A Polish ship has dropped something out in the harbor. We don't know what it is. It may be a hell bomb, or it may be just somebody's old laundry. Obviously, we've got to find out which, and we want you to tell us. Braun's aristocratic eyebrows went up. Me? Hell, Andy, I don't know nothing about things like that. I'm surprised with you. I thought CIA had all the brains it needed. Ain't you got machines to tell you answers like that? I pointed silently to Joan who had gone back to work the moment the introductions were over. She was still on the mic to the divers. She was saying, What does it look like? It's just a lump of something, Dr. Hadamard. Can't even tell its shape. It's buried too deeply in the mud. Clunk. Oing. Oing. Try the Geiger. We did. Nothing but background. Scintillation counter? Nothing, Dr. Hadamard. Could be it's shielded. Let us do the guessing, Monig. All right, maybe it's got a clockwork fuse that didn't break with the impact, or a gyroscopic fuse. Stick a stethoscope on it and see if you pick up a ticking or anything that sounds like a motor running. There was a lag, and I turned back to Braun. As you can see, we're stymied. This is a long shot, Mr. Braun. One throw of the dice. One showdown hand. We've got to have an expert call it for us. Somebody with a record of hits on long shots. That's why I called you. It's no good, he said. He took off the Homburg, took his handkerchief from his breast pocket, and wiped the hatband. I can't do it. Why not? It ain't my kind of thing, he said. Look, I never in my life run odds on anything that made any difference. But this makes a difference. If I guess wrong... Then we're all dead ducks. But why should you guess wrong? Your hunches have been working for sixty years now. Braun wiped his face. No, you don't get it. I wish you'd listen to me. Look, my wife and my kids are in the city. It ain't only my life. It's theirs, too. 
that's what I care about. That's why it's no good. On things that matter to me, my hunches don't work. I was stunned, and so, I could see, were Joan and Cheney. I suppose I should have guessed it, but it had never occurred to me. Ten minutes, Cheney said. I looked up at Braun. He was frightened, and again I was surprised without having any right to be. I tried to keep at least my voice calm. Please try it anyhow, Mr. Braun, as a favor. It's already too late to do it any other way, and if you guess wrong, the outcome won't be any worse than if you don't try at all. My kids, he whispered. I don't think he knew that he was speaking aloud. I waited. Then his eyes seemed to come back to the present. All right, he said. I told you the truth, Andy. Remember that. So, is it a bomb, or ain't it? That's what's up for grabs, right? I nodded. He closed his eyes. An unexpected stab of pure fright went down my back. Without the eyes, Braun's face was a death mask. The water sounds and the irregular ticking of a Geiger counter seemed to spring out from the audio speaker four times as loud as before. I could even hear the pen of the seismograph scribbling away, until I looked at the instrument and saw that Clark had stopped it, probably long ago. Droplets of sweat began to form along Braun's forehead and his upper lip. The handkerchief remained crushed in his hand. Anderton said, Of all the fool— Hush, Joan said quietly. Slowly, Braun opened his eyes. All right, he said. You guys wanted it this way. I say it's a bomb. He stared at us for a moment more, and then, all at once, the Timken bearing burst. Words poured out of it. Now you guys do something. Do your job like I did mine. Get my wife and kids out of there. Empty the city. Do something. Do something. Anderton was already grabbing for the phone. You're right, Mr. Braun. If it isn't already too late. Cheney shot out a hand and caught Anderton's telephone arm by the wrist. Wait a minute, he said. What do you mean, wait a minute? Haven't you already shot enough time? Cheney did not let go. Instead, he looked inquiringly at Joan and said, One minute, Joan. You might as well go ahead. She nodded and spoke into the mic. Monig, unscrew the cap. Unscrew the cap? The audio squawked. But, Dr. Hadamard, if that sets it off... It won't go off. That's the one thing you can be sure it won't do. What is this? Anderton demanded. And what's this deadline stuff, anyhow? The cap's off, Monig reported. We're getting plenty of radiation now. Just a minute. Yeah, Dr. Hadamard. It's a bomb, all right. But it hasn't got a fuse. Now, how could they have made a fool mistake like that? In other words, it's a dud, Joan said. That's right, a dud. Now, at last, Braun wiped his face, which was quite gray. I told you the truth, he said grimly. My hunches don't work on stuff like this. But they do, I said. I'm sorry we put you through the ringer, and you too, Colonel. But we couldn't let an opportunity like this slip. It was too good a chance for us to test how our facilities would stand up in a real bomb drop. 
A real drop, Anderton said. Are you trying to say that CIA staged this? You ought to be shot, the whole pack of you. No, not exactly, I said. The enemy's responsible for the drop, all right. We got word last month from our men in Gdynia that they were going to do it, and that the bomb would be on board the Ludmilla. As I say, it was too good an opportunity to miss. We wanted to find out just how long it would take us to figure out the nature of the bomb, which we didn't know in detail, after it was dropped here. So we had our people in Gdynia defuse the thing after it was put on board the ship, but otherwise leave it entirely alone. Actually, you see, your hunch was right on the button as far as it went. We didn't ask you whether or not that object was a live bomb. We asked whether it was a bomb or not. You said it was, and you were right. The expression on Braun's face was exactly like the one he had worn while he had been searching for his decision, except that, since his eyes were open, I could see that it was directed at me. If this was the old days, he said, in an ice-cold voice, I might have made the colonel's idea come true. I don't go for tricks like this, Andy. It was more than a trick, Clark put in. You'll remember we had a deadline on the test, Mr. Braun. Obviously, in a real drop, we wouldn't have had all the time in the world to figure out what kind of thing had been dropped. If we had still failed to establish that, when the deadline ran out, we would have had to allow evacuation of the city, with all the attendant risk that that was exactly what the enemy wanted us to do. So? So we failed the test, I said. At one minute short of the deadline, Joan had the divers unscrew the cap. In a real drop, that would have resulted in a detonation. If the bomb was real, we'd never risk it. That we did do it in the test was a concession of failure, an admission that our usual methods didn't come through for us in time. And that means that you were the only person who did come through, Mr. Braun. If a real bomb drop ever comes, we're going to have to have you here as an active part of our investigation. Your intuition for the one-shot gamble was the one thing that bailed us out this time. Next time, it may save eight million lives. There was quite a long silence. All of us, Anderton included, watched Braun intently, but his impassive face failed to show any trace of how his thoughts were running. When he did speak at last, what he said must have seemed insanely irrelevant to Anderton, and maybe to Cheney, too, and perhaps it meant nothing more to Joan than the final clinical note in a case history. It's funny, he said. I was thinking of running for Congress next year for my district, but maybe this is more important. It was, I believe, the sigh of a man at peace with himself. End of One Shot by James Benjamin Blish Shamback by Jack Vance This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite
Shamback by Jack Vance Howard Freyberg, production director of No, no Your, Your Universe. Universe, was a man of sudden unpredictable moods, and Sam Catlin, the show's continuity editor, had learned to expect the worst. Sam, said Freyberg, regarding the show last night. He paused to seek the proper words, and Catlin relaxed. Freyberg's frame of mind was merely critical. Sam, we're in a rut. What's worse, the show's dull. Sam Catlin shrugged, not committing himself. Seaweed processors of Alfred Nine? Who cares about seaweed? It's factual stuff, said Sam, defensive, but not wanting to go too far out on a limb. We bring em everything. Color, fact, romance, sight, sound, smell. Next week it's the ball expedition to the mixed-up mountains on Gropus. Freyberg leaned forward. Sam, we're working the wrong slant on this stuff. We've got to loosen up, sock em, shift our ground, give em the old human angle, glamour, mystery, thrills. Sam Catlin curled his lips. I got just what you want. Yeah? Show me. Catlin reached into his waste-basket. I filed this just ten minutes ago. He smoothed out the pages. Sequence Idea by Wilbur Murphy Investigate Horseman of Space, the man who rides up to meet incoming spaceships. Freyberg tilted his head to the side. Rides up on a horse? That's what Wilbur Murphy says. How far up? Does it make any difference? No, I guess not. Well, for your information, it's up ten thousand, twenty thousand miles. He waves to the pilot, takes off his hat to the passengers, then rides back down. And where does all this take place? On... on... Catlin frowned. I can write it, but I can't pronounce it. He printed on his scratch screen. Sergamesk? read Freyberg. Catlin shook his head. That's what it looks like, but those consonants are all aspirated gutturals. It's more like... Where did Murphy get this tip? I didn't bother to ask. Well, mused Freyberg, we could always do a show on strange superstitions. Is Murphy around? He's explaining his expense account to Shifkin. Get him in here. Let's talk to him. Wilbur Murphy had a blonde crew-cut, a broad freckled nose, and a serious sidelong squint. He looked from his crumpled sequence idea to Catlin and Freyberg. Didn't like it, eh? We thought the emphasis should be a little different, explained Catlin. Instead of The Space Horseman, we'd give it the working title of Odd Superstitions of Oh, hell, said Freyberg. Call it Sergamesque. Anyway, said Catlin, that's the angle. But it's not superstition, said Murphy. Oh, come, Wilbur. I got this for sheer sober-sided fact. A man rides a horse up to meet the incoming ships. Where did you get this wild fable? My brother-in-law is a purser on the Celestial Traveler at Riker's Planet. They make connection with the feeder line out of... Wait a minute, said Catlin. How did you pronounce that? The steward on the shuttle ship gave out this story, and my brother-in-law passed it along to me. Somebody's pulling somebody's leg. My brother-in-law wasn't, and the steward was cold sober. They've been eating bong. Sergamesk is a Javanese planet, isn't it? Javanese, Arab, Malay. 
Then they took a bong supply with them, and hashish, chat, and a few other sociable herbs. Well, this horseman isn't any drug dream. No. What is it? So far as I know, it's a man on a horse. Ten thousand miles up? In a vacuum? Exactly. No spacesuit? That's the story. Catlin and Freyberg looked at each other. Well, Wilbur, Catlin began. Freyberg interrupted. What we can use, Wilbur, is a sequence on Sergamesque superstition, emphasis on voodoo or witchcraft, naked girls dancing, stuff with roots in earth, but now typically Sergamesque, lots of color, secret rite stuff. Not much room on <laughs> for secret rites. It's a big planet, isn't it? Not quite as big as Mars. There's no atmosphere. The settlers live in mountain valleys with airtight lids over them. Catlin flipped the pages of thumbnail sketches of inhabited worlds. Says here there's ancient ruins millions of years old. When the atmosphere went, the population went with it. Freyberg became animated. There's lots of material out there. Go get it, Wilbur. Life, sex, excitement, mystery. Uh, okay, said Wilbur Murphy. But lay off this horseman in space. There is a limit to public credulity, and don't let anyone tell you different. Sergamesk hung outside the port, twenty thousand miles ahead. The steward leaned over Wilbur Murphy's shoulder and pointed a long brown finger. It was right out there, sir. He came riding up. What kind of man was it? Strange-looking? No, he was Sergamesky. Oh, you saw him with your own eyes, eh? The steward bowed, and his loose white mantle fell forward. Exactly, sir. No helmet? No spacesuit? He wore a Singhult vest and pantaloons and a yellow Hadrasi hat. No more. And the horse? Ah, the horse. There's a different matter. Different how? I can't describe the horse. I was intent on the man. Did you recognize him? By the brow of Lord Allah, it's well not to look too closely when such matters occur. Then you did recognize him. I must be at my task, sir. Murphy frowned in vexation at the steward's retreating back, then bent over his camera to check the tape-feed. If anything appeared now, and his eyes could see it, the two hundred million audience of Know Your Universe could see it with him. When he looked up, Murphy made a frantic grab for the stanchion, then relaxed. Sergamesk had taken the great twitch. It was an illusion, a psychological quirk. One instant the planet lay ahead, then a man winked or turned away, and when he looked back, ahead had become below. The planet had swung an astonishing ninety degrees across the sky, and they were falling. Murphy leaned against the stanchion. The great twitch, he muttered to himself, I'd like to get that on two hundred million screens. Several hours passed. Sergamesk grew. The Sampan range rose up like a dark scab. The valley of the sultanates of Singhult Hadra and New Batavia and Boing Bohat showed like glistening chicken tracks. The great rift colony of Sundaman reached down through the foothills like the trail of a slug. A loudspeaker voice rattled the ship. Attention, passengers for Singhult and other points on Sergamesk, kindly prepare your luggage for disembarkation. Customs at Singhult are extremely thorough. Passengers are warned to take no weapons, drugs, or explosives ashore. This is important. The warning turned out to be an understatement. 
Murphy was plied with questions. He suffered search of an intimate nature. He was three-dimensionally x-rayed with a range of frequencies calculated to excite fluorescence in whatever object he may have secreted in his stomach, in a hollow bone, or under a layer of flesh. His luggage was explored with similar minute attention, and Murphy rescued his cameras with difficulty. What are you so damn anxious about? I don't have drugs. I don't have contraband. It's guns, Your Excellency. Guns. Weapons. Explosives. I don't have any guns. But these objects here. They're cameras. They record pictures and sounds and smells. The inspector seized the cases with a glittering smile of triumph. They resemble no cameras of my experience. I fear I shall have to impound. A young man in loose white pantaloons, a pink vest, pale green cravat, and a complex black turban strolled up. The inspector made a swift obeisance with arms spread wide. Excellency! The young man raised two fingers. You may find it possible to spare Mr. Murphy any unnecessary formality. As Your Excellency recommends. The inspector nimbly repacked Murphy's belongings while the young man looked on benignly. Murphy covertly inspected his face. The skin was smooth, the color of the rising moon. The eyes were narrow, dark, superficially placid. The effect was a silken punctilio with hot ruby blood close beneath. Satisfied with the inspector's zeal, he turned to Murphy. Allow me to introduce myself to An Murphy. I am Ali Tomas of the House of Singhult, and my father, the Sultan, begs you to accept our poor hospitality. Why? Thank you, said Murphy. This is a pleasant surprise. If you will allow me to conduct you. He turned to the inspector. Mr. Murphy's luggage to the palace. Murphy accompanied Ali Tomas into the outside light, fitting his own quick step to the prince's feline saunter. This is coming it pretty soft, he said to himself. I'll have a magnificent suite with bowls of fruit and gin pahits, not to mention two or three silken girls with skin like rich cream bringing me towels in the shower. Well, well, well. It's not so bad working for Know Your Universe, after all. I suppose I ought to unlimber my camera. Prince Ali Tomas watched him with interest. And what is the audience of Know Your Universe? We call them participants. Expressive. And how many participants do you serve? Oh, the bowler index rises and falls. We've got about two hundred million screens with five hundred million participants. Fascinating. And tell me, how do you record smells? Murphy displayed the odor recorder on the side of the camera with its gelatinous track which fixed the molecular design. And the odors recreated, are they like the originals? Pretty close, never exact, but none of the participants knows the difference. Sometimes the synthetic odor is an improvement. Astounding, murmured the prince. And sometimes, well, Carson Tenlake went out to get the myrrh blossoms on Venus. It was a hot day, as days usually are on Venus, and a long climb. When the show was run off, there was more smell of Carson than of flowers. Prince Ali Tomas laughed politely. We turn through here. They came out into a compound paved with red, green, and white tiles. Beneath the valley roof was a sinuous trough full of haze and warmth and golden light. As far in either direction as the eye could reach, the hillsides were terraced, barred in various shades of green. Spattering the valley floor were tall canvas pavilions, tents, booths, shelters. 
Naturally, said Prince Ali Tomas, we hope that you and your participants will enjoy Singhult. It is a truism that in order to import we must export. We wish to encourage a pleasurable response to the made-in-Singhult tag on our batiks, carvings, lacquers. They rolled quietly across the square in a surface car displaying the house emblem. Murphy rested against deep, cool cushions. Your inspectors are pretty careful about weapons. Ali Tomas smiled complacently. Our existence is ordered and peaceful. You may be familiar with the concept of a duck. I don't think so. A word, an idea from old earth. Every living act is ordered by ritual, but our heritage is passionate, and when unyielding, a duck stands in the way of an irresistible emotion. There is turbulence, sometimes even killing. And a muck? Exactly. It is as well that the amuck has no weapons other than his knife. Otherwise he would kill twenty where he now kills one. The car rolled along a narrow avenue, scattering pedestrians to either side like the bow of a boat spreading foam. The men wore loose white pantaloons and a short open vest. The women wore only the pantaloons. Handsome set of people, remarked Murphy. Ali Tomas again smiled complacently. I'm sure Singhult will present an inspiring and beautiful spectacle for your program. Murphy remembered the keynote to Howard Freyberg's instructions. Excitement, sex, mystery. Freyberg cared little for inspiration or beauty. I imagine, he said casually, that you celebrate a number of interesting festivals. Colorful dancing, unique customs? Ali Tomas shook his head. To the contrary, we left our superstitions and our ancestor worship back on earth. We are quiet Mohammedans and indulge in very little festivity. Perhaps here is the reason for amuks and shambaks. Shambaks? We are not proud of them. You will hear sly rumor, and it is better that I arm you beforehand with the truth. What's a shambak? They are bandits, flouters of authority. I will show you one presently. I heard, said Murphy, of a man riding a horse up to meet the spaceships. What would account for a story like that? It can have no possible basis, said Prince Ali Tomas. We have no horses on Sergamesk, none whatever. But the veriest idle talk, such nonsense will have no interest for your intelligent participants. The car rolled into a square a hundred yards on a side, lined with luxuriant banana palms. Opposite was an enormous pavilion of gold and violet silk, with a dozen peaked gables casting various changing sheens. In the center of the square a twenty-foot pole supported a cage about two feet wide, three feet long, and four feet high. Inside this cage crouched a naked man. The car rolled past. Prince Ali Tomas waved an idle hand. The caged man glared down from bloodshot eyes. That, said Ali Tomas, is a shambak. As you see, a faint note of apology entered his voice, we attempt to discourage them. What's that metal object on his chest? The mark of his trade. By that you may know all, Shambak. In these unsettled times only we of the house may cover our chests. All others must show themselves and declare themselves true Singhalusi. Murphy said tentatively, I must come back here and photograph that cage. Ali Tomas smilingly shook his head. I will show you our farms, our vines and orchards. Your participants will enjoy these. They have no interest in the doler of an ignoble shambak. 
Well, said Murphy, our aim is a well-rounded production. We want to show the farmers at work, the members of the great house at their responsibilities, as well as the deserved fate of wrongdoers. Exactly. For every shamback there are ten thousand industrious Singhalusi. It follows, then, that only one ten-thousandth part of your film should be devoted to this infamous minority. About three-tenths of a second, eh? No more than they deserve. You don't know my production director. His name is Howard Freyberg, and— Howard Freyberg was deep in conference with Sam Catland, under the influence of what Catland called his philosophic kick. It was the phase which Catlin feared most. Sam, said Freyberg, do you know the danger of this business? Ulcers, Catlin replied promptly. Freyberg shook his head. We've got an occupational disease to fight. Progressive mental myopia. Speak for yourself, said Catlin. Consider. We sit in this office. We think we know what kind of show we want. We send out our staff to get it. We're signing the check, so back it comes the way we asked for it. We look at it, hear it, smell it, and pretty soon we believe it. Our version of the universe, full-blown from our brains, like Minerva stepping out of Zeus. You see what I mean? I understand the words. We've got our own picture of what's going on. We ask for it. We get it. It builds up and up, and finally we're like mice in a trap built of our own ideas. We cannibalize our own brains. Nobody will ever accuse you of being stingy with a metaphor. Sam, let's have the truth. How many times have you been off Earth? I went to Mars once, and I spent a couple of weeks at Aristillus Resort on the moon. Freyberg leaned back in his chair as if shocked. And we're supposed to be a couple of learned planetologists. Catlin made a grumbling noise in his throat. I haven't been around the Zodiac, so what? You sneezed a few minutes ago, and I said Gesundheit, but I don't have any doctor's degree. There comes a time in a man's life, said Freyberg, when he wants to take stock and get a new perspective. Relax, Howard, relax. In our case, it means taking out our preconceived ideas, looking at them, checking our illusions against reality. Are you serious about this? Another thing, said Freyberg, I want to check up a little. Shifkin says the expense accounts are frightful, but he can't fight it. When Keeler says he paid ten minutes for a loaf of bread on Nakar 4, who's going to call him on it? Hell, let them eat bread. That's cheaper than making a safari around the cluster, spot-checking the supermarkets." Freyberg paid no heed. He touched a button. A three-foot sphere full of glistening motes appeared. Earth was at the center, with thin red lines, these scheduled spaceship routes radiating out in all directions. "'Let's see what kind of circle we can make,' said Freyberg. "'Gower's here at Canopus. Keeler's over here at Blue Moon. Wilbur Murphy's at Sergamesk. Don't forget, muttered Catlin, we've got a show to put on. We've got enough material for a year, scoffed Freyberg. Get a hold of space lines. We'll start with Sergamesk, and see what Wilbur Murphy's up to. Wilbur Murphy was being presented to the Sultan of Singhort by the Prince Ali Tomas. The Sultan, a small, mild man of seventy, sat cross-legged on an enormous pink and green air cushion. Be at ease, Mr. Murphy, we dispense with as much protocol here as practicable. The Sultan had a dry, clipped voice, and the air of a rather harassed corporation executive. I understand you represent Earth's central home screen network. I'm a staff photographer for the Know Your Universe show. We export a great deal to Earth, mused the Sultan, but not as much as we'd like. 
We're very pleased with your interest in us, and naturally we want to help you in every possible way. Tomorrow the Keeper of the Archives will present a series of charts analyzing our economy. Ali Tomas shall personally conduct you through the fish hatcheries. We want you to know we're doing a great job out here on Singholt. I'm sure you are, said Murphy uncomfortably. However, that isn't quite the stuff I want. No? Just where do your desires lie? Ali Tomas said delicately, Mr. Murphy took a rather profound interest in the shamback displayed in the square. Oh, and you explained that these renegades could hold no interest for serious students of our planet. Murphy started to explain that clustered around two hundred million screens tuned to Know Your Universe were four or five hundred million participants, the greater part of them neither serious nor students. The Sultan cut in decisively. I will now impart something truly interesting. We Singhalusi are making preparations to reclaim four more valleys with an added area of six hundred thousand acres. I shall put my physiographic models at your disposal. You may use them to the fullest extent. I'll be pleased for the opportunity, declared Murphy, but tomorrow I'd like to prowl around the valley, meet your people, observe their customs, religious rites, courtships, funerals. The Sultan pulled a sour face. We are ditchwater dull. Festivals are celebrated quietly in the home. There is small religious fervor. Courtships are consummated by family contract. I fear you will find little sensational material here in Singholt. You have no temple dances? asked Murphy. No firewalkers, snake charmers, voodoo? The Sultan smiled patronizingly. We came out here to Sergamesk to escape the ancient superstitions. Our lives are calm, orderly. Even the amucks have practically disappeared. But the shambacks? Negligible. Well, said Murphy, I'd like to visit some of these ancient cities. I'd advise against it, declared the Sultan. They are shards, weathered stone. There are no inscriptions, no art. There is no stimulation in dead stone. Now tomorrow I will hear a report on hybrid soybean plantings in the upper Cam district. You will want to be present. Murphy's suite matched or even excelled his expectation. He had four rooms and a private garden enclosed by a thicket of bamboo. His bathroom walls were slabs of glossy actinolite, inlaid with cinnabar, jade, galena, pyrite, and blue malachite, in representations of fantastic birds. His bedroom was a tent thirty feet high. Two walls were dark green fabric, a third was golden rust, the fourth opened upon the private garden. Murphy's bed was a pink and yellow creation ten feet square, soft as cobweb, smelling of rose sandalwood. Carved black lacquer tubs held fruit, two dozen wines, liquors, syrups, essences flowed at a touch from as many ebony spigots. The garden centered on a pool of cool water, very pleasant in the hothouse climate of Singholt. The only shortcoming was the lack of the lovely servitors Murphy had envisioned. He took it upon himself to repair this lack, and in a shady winehouse behind the palace, called Bangangapan, he made the acquaintance of a girl musician named Soik Panyobang. He found her enticing tones of quavering sweetness from the Gamelan, an instrument well-loved in Old Bali. Soyik Panyobang had the delicate features and transparent skin of Sumatra, the supple long limbs of Arabia, and in a pair of wide and golden eyes a heritage from somewhere in Celtic Europe. Murphy bought her a goblet of frozen shavings, each a different perfume, while he himself drank white rice-beer. 
Soik Panyobang displayed an intense interest in the ways of earth, and Murphy found it hard to guide the conversation. Wheelbar, she said. Such a funny name. Wheelbar. Do you think I could play the gameland in the great cities, the great palaces of earth? Sure. There's no law against gamelands. You talk so funny, Wilbert. I like to hear you talk. I suppose you get kind of bored here in Singholt. She shrugged. Life is pleasant, but it concerns with little things. We have no great adventures. We grow flowers. We play the gameland. She eyed him archly sidelong. We love. We sleep. Murphy grinned. You run amuck. No, no, no. That is no more. Not since the Shambaks, eh? The Shambaks are bad, but better than Amuk. When a man feels the knot forming around his chest, he no longer takes his chris and runs down the street. He becomes Shambak. This was getting interesting. Where does he go? What does he do? He robs. Who does he rob? What does he do with his loot? She leaned toward him. It is not well to talk of them. Why not? The Sultan does not wish it. Everywhere are listeners. When one talks Shambak, the Sultan's ears rise like the points on a cat. Suppose they do. What's the difference? I've got a legitimate interest. I saw one of them in that cage out there. That's torture. I want to know about it. He is very bad. He opened the monorail car and the air rushed out. Forty-two Singhalusi and Hadrasi bloated and blew up. And what happened to the Shambak? He took all the gold and money and jewels and ran away. Ran where? Out across the great Farasang Plain. But he was a fool. He came back to Singholt for his wife. He was caught and set up for all people to look at so they might tell each other. Thus it is for Shambaks. Where do Shambaks hide out? Oh, she looked vaguely around the room. Out in the plains, in the mountains. They must have some shelter and air dome? No. The Sultan would send out his patrol boat and destroy them. They roam quietly, they hide among the rocks and tend their oxygen stills. Sometimes they visit old cities. I wonder, said Murphy, staring into his beer, could it be Shambaks who ride horses up to meet the spaceships? Soik Banyubang knit her black eyebrows as if preoccupied. That's what brought me out here, Murphy went on, the story of a man riding a horse out in space. Ridiculous, we have no horses in Sergamesk. All right, the steward won't swear to the horse. Suppose the man was up there on foot, or riding a bicycle. But the steward recognized the man. Who was this man, pray? The steward clammed up. The name would have just been noise to me, anyway. I might recognize the name. Ask him yourself. The ship's still out at the field. She shook her head slowly, holding her golden eyes on his face. I do not care to attract the attention of either steward, Shambak, or Sultan. Murphy said impatiently, in any event, it's not who, but how. How does the man breathe? Vacuum sucks a man's lungs up out of his mouth, bursts his stomach, his ears. We have excellent doctors, said Soyik Panyubang, shuddering. But alas, I am not one of them. Murphy looked at her sharply. Her voice held the plangent sweetness of her instrument, with additional overtones of mockery. There must be some kind of invisible dome around him, holding in air, said Murphy. And what if there is? It's something new, and if it is, I want to find out about it." Soik smiled languidly. You are so typical an old lander, worried, frowning, dynamic, 
You should relax. Cultivate Napao. Enjoy life as we do here in Singhult. What's Napao? It's our philosophy, where we find meaning and life and beauty in every aspect of the world. That shamback in the cage could do with a little less Napao right now. No doubt he is unhappy, she agreed. Unhappy? He's being tortured. He broke the Sultan's law. His life is no longer his own. It belongs to Singhult. If the Sultan wishes to use it to warn other wrongdoers, the fact that the man suffers is of small interest. If they all wear that metal ornament, how can they hope to hide out? He glanced at her own bare bosom. They appear by night, slip through the streets like ghosts. She looked in turn at Murphy's loose shirt. You will notice persons brushing up against you, feeling you. She laid her hand along his breast. And when this happens you will know they are agents of the Sultan, because only strangers and the house may wear shirts. But now let me sing to you a song from the old land, old Java. You will not understand the tongue, but no other words so join the voice of the gamelan. This is the gravy train, said Murphy. Instead of a garden suite with a private pool, I usually sleep in a bubble tent with nothing to eat but condensed food. Soik Panubang flung the water out of her sleek black hair. Perhaps, Wilbert, you will regret leaving Sergamesk. Well, he looked up to the transparent roof, barely visible where the sunlight collected and refracted. I don't particularly like being shut up like a bird in an aviary. Mildly claustrophobic, I guess. After breakfast, drinking thick coffee from tiny silver cups, Murphy looked long and reflectively at Soik Panyabang. What are you thinking, Wilbur? Murphy drained his coffee. I'm thinking that I'd better get to work. And what will you do? First I'm going to shoot the palace, and you sitting here in the garden playing your gamelan. But Wilbur, not me. You're part of the universe, rather an interesting part. Then I'll take the square. And the shamback? A quiet voice spoke from behind. A visitor to on Murphy. Murphy turned his head. Bring him in. He looked back to Soik Panyubang. She was on her feet. It is necessary that I go. When will I see you? Tonight, at the Barangapan. The quiet voice said, Mr. Rube Trimmer to one. Trimmer was small and middle-aged, with thin shoulders and a paunch. He carried himself with a hell-raising swagger, left over from a time twenty years gone. His skin had the waxy look of lost floridity. His tuft of white hair was coarse and thin. His eyelids hung in the off-side droop that amateur physiognomists like to associate with guile. I'm the resident director of the Import-Export Bank, said Trimmer. Heard you were here and thought I'd pay my respects. I suppose you don't see many strangers. Not too many. There's nothing much to bring them. Sergamesk isn't a comfortable tourist planet. Too confined. Shut in. A man with a sensitive psyche goes nuts pretty easy here. Yeah, said Murphy. I was thinking the same thing this morning. That dome begins to give a man the willies. How do the natives stand it? Or do they? Trimmer pulled out a cigar case. Murphy refused the offer. Local tobacco, said Trimmer. Very good. He lit up thoughtfully. Well, you might say that the Sergameski are schizophrenic. They've got the docile Javanese blood plus the Arabian Elan. The Javanese part is on top, but every once in a while you see a flash of arrogance. You never know. I've been out here nine years and I'm still a stranger. He puffed on his cigar, studied Murphy with his careful eyes. 
You work for Know Your Universe, I hear. Yeah, I'm one of the legmen. Must be a great job. A man sees a lot of the galaxy, and he runs into queer tales, like this Shamback stuff." Trimmer nodded without surprise. "'My advice to you, Murphy, is to lay off the Shambacks. They're not healthy around here.' Murphy was startled by the bluntness. "'What's the big mystery about these Shambacks?' Trimmer looked around the room. "'This place is bugged.' "'I found two pickups and plugged them,' said Murphy. Trimmer laughed. "'Those were just plants. They hide them where a man might just barely spot them. You can't catch the real ones. They're woven into the cloth, pressure-sensitive wires." Murphy looked critically at the cloth walls. "'Don't let it worry you,' said Trimmer. They listen more out of habit than anything else. If you're fussy, we'll go for a walk." The road led past the palace into the country. Murphy and Trimmer sauntered along a placid river, overgrown with lily-pads swarming with large white ducks. This shamback business, said Murphy, everybody talks around it. You can't pin anybody down. Including me, said Trimmer. I'm more or less privileged around here. The Sultan finances his reclamation through the bank, on the basis of my reports. But there's more to Singholt than the Sultan. Namely? Trimmer waved his cigar waggishly. Now we're getting in where I don't like to talk. I'll give you a hint. Prince Ali thinks roofing in more valleys is a waste of money when there's Hadra and New Batavia and Sundaman so close. You mean armed conquest? Trimmer laughed. You said it, not me. They can't carry on much of a war unless the soldiers commute by monorail. Maybe Prince Ali thinks he's got the answer. Shambaks? I didn't say it, said Trimmer blandly. Murphy grinned. After a moment, he said, I picked up with a girl named Soik Panyobang, who plays the gamelan. I suppose she's working for either the Sultan or Prince Ali. Do you know which? Trimmer's eyes sparkled. He shook his head. Might be either one. There's a way to find out. Yeah? Get her off where you're sure there's no spy cells. Tell her two things, one for Ali, the other for the Sultan. Whichever one reacts, you know you've got her tagged. For instance? Well, for instance, she learns that you can rig up a hypnotic ray from a flashlight battery, a piece of bamboo, and a few lengths of wire. That'll get Ali in an awful sweat. He can't get weapons. None at all. And for the Sultan, Trimmer was warming up to his intrigue, chewing his cigar with gusto. Tell her you're onto a catalyst that turns clay into aluminum and oxygen in the presence of sunlight. The Sultan would sell his right leg for something like that. He tries hard for Singholt and Sergamesk. And Ali? Trimmer hesitated. I never said what I'm going to say. Don't forget. I never said it. Okay, you never said it. Ever hear of a jihad? Mohammedan holy wars? Believe it or not, Ali wants a jihad. Sounds kind of fantastic. Sure it's fantastic. Don't forget, I never said anything about it. But suppose someone, strictly unofficial, of course, let the idea percolate around the peace office back home. Ah, said Murphy, that's why you came to see me. Trimmer turned a look of injured innocence. Now, Murphy, you're a little unfair. I'm a friendly guy. Of course I don't like to see the bank lose what we've got tied up in the Sultan. Why don't you send in a report yourself? I have. But when they hear the same thing from you, a know-your-universe man, they might make a move." Murphy nodded. 
Well, we understand each other, said Trimmer heartily, and everything's clear. Not entirely. How's Ali going to launch a jihad when he doesn't have any weapons, no warships, no supplies? Now, said Trimmer, we're getting into the realm of supposition. He paused, looked behind him. A farmer pushing a rotary tiller bowed politely, trundled ahead. Behind was a young man in a black turban, gold earrings, a black and red vest, white pantaloons, black curl-toed slippers. He bowed, started past. Trimmer held up his hand. Don't waste your time up there. We're going back in a few minutes. Thank you, Tuan. Who are you reporting to? The Sultan or Prince Ali? The Tuan is sure to pierce the veil of my evasions. I shall not dissemble. I am the Sultan's man. Trimmer nodded. Now, if you'll kindly remove to about a hundred yards where your whisper pickup won't work. By your leave, I go. He retreated without haste. He's almost certainly working for Ali, said Trimmer. Not a very subtle lie. Oh, yes, third level. He figured I'd take it second level. How's that again? Naturally, I wouldn't believe him. He knew I knew that he knew it. So when he said Sultan, I'd think he wouldn't lie simply, but that he'd lie double, that he actually was working for the Sultan. Murphy laughed. Suppose he told you a fourth-level lie. It starts to be a toss-up pretty soon, Trimmer admitted. I don't think he gives me credit for that much subtlety. What are you doing the rest of the day? Taking footage. Do you know where I can find some picturesque rites, mystical dances, human sacrifice? I've got to work up some glamour and exotic lore. There's this shambak in the cage that's about as close to the medieval as you'll find anywhere in Earth Commonwealth. Speaking of shambaks, No time, said Trimmer. Got to get back. Drop in at my office, right down the square from the palace. Murphy returned to his suite. The shadowy figure of his room-servant said, His Highness the Sultan desires the Tuan's attendance in the Cascade Garden. Thank you, said Murphy, as soon as I load my camera. The cascade room was an open patio in front of an artificial waterfall. The Sultan was pacing back and forth, wearing dusty khaki puttees, brown plastic boots, a yellow polo shirt. He carried a twig which he used as a riding crop, slapping his boots as he walked. He turned his head as Murphy appeared, pointed his twig at a wicker bench. I pray you sit down, Mr. Murphy. He paced once up and back. How is your suite? Do you find it to your liking? Very much so. Excellent, said the Sultan. You do me honor with your presence. Murphy waited patiently. I understand that you had a visitor this morning, said the Sultan. Yes, Mr. Trimmer. May I inquire the nature of the conversation? It was of a personal nature, said Murphy, rather more shortly than he meant. The Sultan nodded wistfully. A single Lucy would have wasted an hour telling me half-truths, distorted enough to confuse, but not sufficiently inaccurate to anger me if I had a spy-cell on him all the time. Murphy grinned. A single Lucy has to live here the rest of his life. A servant wheeled a frosted cabinet before them, placed goblets under two spigots, withdrew. The Sultan cleared his throat. Trimmer is an excellent fellow, but unbelievably loquacious. Murphy drew himself two inches of chilled, rosy, pale liquor. The Sultan slapped his boots with the twig. Undoubtedly he confided all my private business to you, or at least as much as I have allowed him to learn. Well, he spoke of your hope to increase the compass of Singhult. That, my friend, is no hope. It's an absolute necessity. 
Our population density is fifteen hundred to the square mile. We must expand or smother. There'll be too little food to eat, too little oxygen to breathe." Murphy suddenly came to life. I could make that the idea of the theme of my feature. Singholt Dilemma. Expand or perish. No, that would be inadvisable, inapplicable. Murphy was not convinced. It sounds like a natural. The Sultan smiled. I'll impart an item of confidential information, although Trimmer no doubt has preceded me with it. He gave his boots an irritated whack. To expand I need funds. Funds are best secured in an atmosphere of calm and confidence. The implication of emergency would be disastrous to my aims. Well, said Murphy, I see your position. The Sultan glanced at Murphy sidelong. Anticipating your cooperation, my Minister of Propaganda has arranged an hour's program, stressing our progressive social attitude, our prosperity, and financial prospects. But, Sultan— Well? I can't allow your Minister of Propaganda to use me and know your universe as a kind of investment brochure. The Sultan nodded wearily. I expected you to take that attitude. Well, what do you yourself have in mind? I've been looking for something to tie to, said Murphy. I think it's going to be the dramatic contrast between the ruined cities and the new domed valleys. How the earth settlers succeeded where the ancient people failed to meet the challenge of the dissipating atmosphere. Well, the Sultan said grudgingly, that's not too bad. Today I want to take some shots of the palace, the dome, the city, the paddies, groves, orchards, farms. Tomorrow I'm taking a trip out to one of the ruins. I see, said the Sultan. Then you won't need my charts and statistics? Well, Sultan, I could film the stuff your propaganda minister cooked up, and I could take it back to Earth. Howard Freyberg or Sam Catlin would tear into it, rip it apart, lard in some head-hunting, a little cannibalism, and temple prostitution, and you'd never know you were watching Singholt. You'd scream with horror, and I'd be fired." "'In that case,' said the Sultan, "'I will leave you to the dictates of your conscience.'" Howard Freyberg looked around the gray landscape of Riker's planet, gazed out over the roaring black Mogador ocean. Sam. I think there's a story out there." Sam Catlin shivered inside his electrically heated glass overcoat. Out on that ocean? It's full of man-eating plesiosaurs. Horrible things, forty feet long. Suppose we worked something out on the line of Moby Dick, the white monster of the Mogador Ocean. We'd set sail in a catamaran. Us? No, said Freyberg impatiently. Of course not us two or three of the staff. They'd sail out there, look over these gray and red monsters, maybe fake a fight or two. But all the time they're after the legendary white one. How's it sound?" I don't think we pay our men enough money. Wilbur Murphy might do it. He's willing to look for a man riding a horse up to meet his spaceships. He might draw the line at a white plesiosaur riding up to meet his catamaran. Freyberg turned away. Somebody's got to have ideas around here. We'd better head back to the spaceport, said Catlin. We got two hours to make the Sergamesk shuttle. Wilbur Murphy sat in the Barangapan, watching marionettes performing to xylophone, castanet, gong, and gamelan. The drama had its roots in proto-historic Mohino Dado. It had filtered down through ancient India, medieval Burma, Malaya, across the Straits of Malacca to Sumatra and Java, from modern Java across space to Sergamesk. Five thousand years' time, two hundred light-years of space. 
Somewhere along the route it had met and assimilated modern technology. Magnetic beams controlled arms, legs, and bodies, guided the poses and posturings. The manipulator's face, by agency of clip, wire, radio control, and minuscule selsin, projected his scowl, smile, sneer, or grimace to the peaked little face he controlled. The language was that of old Java, which perhaps a third of the spectators understood. This portion did not include Murphy, and when the performance ended he was no wiser than at the start. Soik Panyobang slipped into the seat beside Murphy. She wore musician's garb, a sarong of brown, blue, and black batik, and a fantastic headdress of tiny silver bells. She greeted him with enthusiasm. Wheelbear! I saw you watching! It was very interesting. Ah, yes, she sighed. Wheelbear, you take me with you back to Earth? You make me a great picturama star, please, Wheelbear? Well, I don't know about that. I behave very well, Wheelbear. She nuzzled his shoulder, looked soulfully up with her shiny yellow hazel eyes. Murphy nearly forgot the experiment he intended to perform. What did you do today, Wilbur? You look at all the pretty girls? Nope, I ran footage, got the palace, climbed the ridge up to the condensation veins. I never knew there was so much water in the air till I saw the stream pouring off those veins. And hot! We have much sunlight. It makes the rice grow. The Sultan ought to put some of that excess light to work. There's a secret process. Well, I, I'd better not say. Oh, come, Wilbur, tell me your secrets. It's not much of a secret, just a catalyst that separates clay into aluminum and oxygen when sunlight shines on it. Soik's eyebrows rose, poised in place like a seagull riding the wind. Wilbur, I did not know you for a man of learning. Oh, you thought I was just a bum, eh? Good enough to make picturama stars out of Gameland players, but no special genius. No, no, Wilbur. I know a lot of tricks. I can take a flashlight battery, a piece of copper foil, a few transistors, and bamboo tube, and turn out a paralyzer gun that'll stop a man cold in his tracks. And you know how much it costs? No, Wilbur. How much? Ten cents. It wears out after two or three months, but what's the difference? I make them as a hobby. Turn them out two or three an hour. Wheelbar, you're a man of marvels. Hello. We will drink. And Murphy settled back in the wicker chair, sipping his rice beer. Today, said Murphy, I get into a spacesuit and ride out to the ruins in the plain. Gatamapole, I think they're called. Like to come? No, Wheelbar. Soik Panyabang looked off into the garden, her hands busy tucking a flower into her hair. A few minutes later, she said, why must you waste your time among the rocks? There are better things to do and see, and it might well be dangerous." She murmured the last word off-handedly. Danger? From the Shambaks? Yes, perhaps. The Sultan's giving me a guard, twenty men with crossbows. The Shambaks carry shields. Why should they risk their lives attacking me? Soik Panyabang shrugged. After a moment she rose to her feet. Goodbye, Wilbur. Goodbye. Isn't this rather abrupt? Won't I see you tonight? If so be Allah's will. Murphy looked after the lithe swaying figure. She paused, plucked a yellow flower, looked over her shoulder. Her eyes, yellow as the flower, lucent as water jewels, held his. Her face was utterly expressionless. She turned, tossed away the flower with a jaunty gesture, and continued. <laughs> 
her shoulders swinging. Murphy breathed deeply. She might have made picturama at that. One hour later he met his escort at the valley gate. They were dressed in spacesuits for the plains, twenty men with sullen faces. The trip to Gatamapol clearly was not to their liking. Murphy climbed into his own suit, checked the oxygen pressure gauge, the seal at his collar. All ready, boys? No one spoke. The silence drew out. The gatekeeper, on hand to let the party out, snickered. They're all ready, Tuan. Well, said Murphy, let's go, then. Outside the gate Murphy made a second check of his equipment. No leaks in his suit. Inside pressure, 14.6. Outside pressure, zero. His twenty guards morosely inspected their crossbows and slim swords. The white ruins of Gatamapol lay five miles across the Farasang Plain. The horizon was clear, the sun was high, the sky was black. Murphy's radio hummed. Someone said sharply, Look! There it goes! He wheeled around. His guards had halted and were pointing. He saw a fleet something vanish into the distance. Let's go, said Murphy. There's nothing out there. Shamback. Well, there's only one of them. Where one walks, others follow. That's why the twenty of you are here. It is madness challenging the Shambaks. What is gained? another argued. I'll be the judge of that, said Murphy, and set off along the plain. The warriors reluctantly followed, muttering to each other over their radio intercoms. The eroded city walls rose above them, occupied more and more of the sky. The platoon leader said in an angry voice, We have gone far enough. You're under my orders, said Murphy. We're going through the gate. He punched the button on his camera and passed under the monstrous portal. The city was frailer stuff than the wall, and had succumbed to the thin storms which had raged a million years after the passing of life. Murphy marveled at the scope of the ruins. Virgin archaeological territory. No telling what a few weeks' digging might turn up. Murphy considered his expense account. Shifkin was the obstacle. There'd be tremendous prestige and publicity for Know Your Universe if Murphy uncovered a tomb, a library, works of art. The Sultan would gladly provide diggers. They were a sturdy enough people. They could make quite a showing in a week, if they were able to put aside their superstitions, fears, and dreads. Murphy sized one of them up from the corner of his eye. He sat on a sunny slab of rock, and if he felt uneasy he concealed it quite successfully. In fact, thought Murphy, he appeared completely relaxed. Maybe the problem of securing diggers was a minor one, after all. And here was an odd sidelight on the Singalusi character. Once clear of the valley, the man openly wore his shirt, a fine loose garment of electric blue, in defiance of the Sultan's edict. Of course, out here he might be cold. Murphy felt his own skin crawling. How could he be cold? How could he be alive? Where was his spacesuit? He lounged on the rock, grinning sardonically at Murphy. He wore heavy sandals, a black turban, loose breeches, the blue shirt, nothing more. Where were the others? Murphy turned a feverish glance over his shoulder. A good three miles distant, bounding and leaping toward Singholt were twenty desperate figures. They all wore spacesuits. This man here. A shamback? A, a wizard? A hallucination? The creature rose to his feet, strode springily towards Murphy. He carried a crossbow and a sword like those of Murphy's fleet-footed guards, but he wore no spacesuit. Could there be breathable traces of an atmosphere? 
Murphy glanced at his gauge. Outside pressure, zero. Two other men appeared, moving with long elastic steps. Their eyes were bright, their faces flushed. They came up to Murphy, took his arm. They were solid, corporeal. They had no invisible force fields around their heads. Murphy jerked his arm free. Let go of me, damn it! But they certainly couldn't hear him through the vacuum. He glanced over his shoulder. The first man held his naked blade a foot or two behind Murphy's bulging spacesuit. Murphy made no further resistance. He punched the button on his camera to automatic. It would now run for several hours, recording one hundred pictures per second, a thousand to the inch. The shambacks led Murphy two hundred yards to a metal door. They opened it, pushed Murphy inside, banged it shut. Murphy felt the vibration through his shoes, heard a gradually waxing hum. His gauge showed an outside pressure of five, ten, twelve, fourteen, fourteen point five. An inner door opened. Hands pulled Murphy in, unclamped his dome. Just what's going on here? demanded Murphy angrily. Prince Ali Tomas pointed to a table. Murphy saw a flashlight battery, aluminum foil, wire, a transistor kit, metal tubing, tools, a few other odds and ends. There it is, said Prince Ali Tomas. Get to work. Let's see one of these paralysis weapons you boast of. Just like that, eh? Just like that. What do you want him for? Does it matter? I'd like to know. Murphy was conscious of his camera, recording sight, sound, odor. I lead an army said Ali Tomas, but they march without weapons. Give me weapons. I will carry the word to Hadra and New Batavia, to Sundaman, to Boing Bahat. How? Why? It is enough that I will it. Again, I beg of you. He indicated the table. Murphy laughed. I've got myself in a fine mess. Suppose I don't make this weapon for you. You'll remain until you do, under increasingly difficult conditions. I'll be here a long time. If such is the case, said Ali Tomas, we must make our arrangements for your care on a long-term basis. Ali made a gesture. Hands seized Murphy's shoulders. A respirator was held to his nostrils. He thought of his camera and he could have laughed. Mystery, excitement, thrills. Dramatic sequence for Know Your Universe, staff man murdered by fanatics. The crime recorded on his own camera. See the blood, hear his death rattle. Smell the poison. The vapor choked him. What a break. What a sequence. Sergamesk, said Howard Freyberg, bigger and brighter every minute. It must have been just about in here, said Catlin, that Wilbur's horseback rider appeared. That's right. Steward. Yes, sir. We're about twenty thousand miles out, aren't we? About fifteen thousand, sir. Sidereal cavalry. What an idea. I wonder how Wilbur's making out on his superstition angle." Sam Catlin, watching out the window, said in a tight voice, "'Why not ask him yourself?' "'Eh?' "'Ask him yourself. There he is, outside, riding some kind of critter.' "'It's a ghost,' whispered Freyberg. "'A man without a spacesuit. There's no such thing.' "'He sees us. Look!' Murphy was staring at them, and his surprise seemed equal to their own. He waved his hand. Catlin gingerly waved back. Said Freyberg, That's not a horse he's riding, it's a combination ramjet and kitty car with stirrups. He's coming aboard the ship, said Catlin. That's the entrance port down there. 
Wilbur Murphy sat in the captain's stateroom, taking careful breaths of air. "'How are you now?' asked Freyberg. "'Fine. A little sore in the lungs.' "'I shouldn't wonder,' the ship's doctor growled. "'I never saw anything like it.' "'How does it feel out there, Wilbur?' Catlin asked. "'It feels awful lonesome and empty, and the breath seeping up out of your lungs, never going in. That's a funny feeling. And you miss the air blowing on your skin. I never realized it before. Air feels like—like like silk, like whipped cream. It's, it's got a texture. But aren't you cold? Space is supposed to be absolute zero. Space is nothing. It's not hot and it's not cold. When you're in the sunlight, you get warm. It's better in the shade. You don't lose any heat by air convection. But radiation and sweat evaporation keep you comfortably cool. I still can't understand it, said Freyberg. This Prince Ali, he's kind of a rebel, eh? I don't blame him in a way. A normal man living under those domes has to let off steam somehow. Prince Ali decided to go out crusading. I think he would have made it, too, at least on Sergamesk. Certainly there are many more men inside the domes. When it comes to fighting, said Murphy, a shamback can lick twenty men in spacesuits. A little nick doesn't hurt him, but a little nick bursts open a spacesuit and the man inside comes apart. Well, said the captain, I imagine the peace office will send out a team to put things in order now. Catlin asked, What happened when you woke up from the chloroform? Well, nothing very much. I felt this attachment on my chest, but didn't think much about it. Still kind of woozy. I was halfway through decompression. They keep a man there eight hours, drop pressure on him two pounds an hour, nice and slow, so he don't get the bends. Was this the same place they took you when you met Ali? Yeah. That was their decompression chamber. They had to make a shamback out of me. There wasn't anywhere else they could keep me. Well, pretty soon my head cleared and I saw this apparatus stuck to my chest. He poked at the mechanism on the table. I saw the oxygen tank. I saw the blood running through the plastic pipes blue from me to that carburetor arrangement, red on the way back in. And I figured out the whole arrangement. Carbon dioxide still exhales up through your lungs, but the vein back to the left auricle is routed through the carburetor and supercharged with oxygen. A man doesn't need to breathe. The carburetor flushes his blood with oxygen. The decompression tank adjusts him to the lack of air pressure. There's only one thing to look out for. That's not to touch anything with your naked flesh. If it's in the sunshine, it's blazing hot. If it's in the shade, it's cold enough to cut. Otherwise, you're free as a bird. But how did you get away? I saw those little rocket bikes and began figuring. I couldn't go back to Singholt. I'd be lynched on sight as a shamback. I couldn't fly to another planet. The bikes don't carry enough fuel. I knew when the ship would be coming in, so I figured I'd fly up to meet it. I told the guard I was going outside for a minute, and I got on one of the rocket bikes. There was nothing much to it. Well, said Freyberg, it's a great feature, Wilbur, a great film. Maybe we can stretch it into two hours. There's one thing bothering me, said Catlin. Who did the steward see up here the first time? Murphy shrugged. It might have been somebody up here skylarking. A little too much oxygen and you start cutting all kinds of capers. Or it might have been someone who decided he had enough crusading. There's a shamback in a cage right in the middle of Singholt. Prince Ali walks past. They look at each other eye to eye. Ali smiles a little and walks on. Suppose this shamback tried to escape to the ship. He's taken aboard, turned over to the Sultan, and the Sultan makes an example of him. What'll the Sultan do to Ali? Murphy shook his head. 
If I were Ali, I'd disappear. A loudspeaker turned on. Attention, all passengers. We have just passed through quarantine. Passengers may now disembark. Important, no weapons or explosives allowed on Singhult. This is where I came in, said Murphy. End of Shamback by Jack Vance Two-Timer by Frederick Brown This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite Two-Timer by Frederick Brown One Experiment the first time machine, gentlemen, Professor Johnson proudly informed his two colleagues. True, it is a small-scale experimental model. It will operate only on objects weighing less than three pounds five ounces and for distances into the past and future of twelve minutes or less. But it works. The small-scale model looked like a small scale, a postage scale, except for two dials in the part under the platform. Professor Johnson held up a small metal cube. Our experimental object, he said, is a brass cube weighing one pound two point three ounces. First I shall send it five minutes into the future. He leaned forward and set one of the dials on the time machine. Look at your watches, he said. They looked at their watches. Professor Johnson placed the cube gently on the machine's platform. It vanished. Five minutes later, to the second, it reappeared. Professor Johnson picked it up. Now, five minutes into the past, he set the other dial. Holding the cube in his hand, he looked at his watch. It is six minutes before three o'clock. I shall now activate the mechanism by placing the cube on the platform at exactly three o'clock. Therefore, the cube should, at five minutes before three, vanish from my hand and appear on the platform, five minutes before I place it there. How can you place it there, then? asked one of his colleagues. It will, as my hand approaches, vanish from the platform and appear in my hand to be placed there. Three o'clock. Notice, please. The cube vanished from his hand. It appeared on the platform of the time machine. See? Five minutes before, I shall place it there. It is there. His other colleague frowned at the cube. But, he said, what if now that it has already appeared five minutes before you place it there, you should change your mind about doing so and not place it there at three o'clock? Wouldn't there be a paradox of some sort involved? An interesting idea, Professor Johnson said. I had not thought of it, and it will be interesting to try. Very well. I shall not. There was no paradox at all. The cube remained. But the entire rest of the universe, professors and all, vanished. Two, Sentry. He was wet and muddy and hungry and cold, and he was fifty thousand light-years from home. A strange blue sun gave light, and the gravity, twice what he was used to, made every movement difficult. But in tens of thousands of years this part of war hadn't changed. The flyboys were fine with their sleek spaceships and their fancy weapons. 
When the chips are down, though, it was still the foot-soldier, the infantry, that had to take the ground and hold it, foot by bloody foot. Like this damned planet of a star he'd never heard of until they'd landed him here. And now it was sacred ground because the aliens were there, too. The aliens, the only other intelligent race in the galaxy, cruel, hideous, and repulsive monsters. Contact had been made with them near the center of the galaxy after the slow but difficult colonization of a dozen thousand planets, and it had been war at sight. They'd shot without even trying to negotiate or to make peace. Now planet by bitter planet it was being fought out. He was wet and muddy and hungry and cold, and the day was raw with a high wind that hurt his eyes. But the aliens were trying to infiltrate, and every sentry post was vital. He stayed alert, gun ready, fifty thousand light-years from home, fighting on a strange world and wondering if he'd ever live to see home again. And then he saw one of them, crawling toward him. He drew a bead and fired. The alien made that strange, horrible sound they all make. Then it lay still. He shuddered at the sound and sight of the alien lying there. One ought to be able to get used to them after a while, but he'd never been able to. Such repulsive creatures they were, with only two arms and two legs, ghastly white skins and no scales. End of Two-Timer by Frederick Brown